Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here as always to talk about stuff this week, our primary topic being the Doctor Who Series 9 finale and Doctor Who Series 9 as a whole. Spoiler-free reaction, Sean? It's really, really, really fucking good. It is, again, I feel like every time we come on here to talk about this season of Doctor Who, we kind of end up just saying the same thing over and over again. But yeah, they, they completely nailed the landing in a way that Doctor Who never really has the closest is season five, and I, th- I think this is easily, easily the best season of New Who, and probably the best, like, because old Doctor Who talking about seasons is kind of weird, but this yeah. is the best season of Doctor Who. Yeah, I mean, you and I watched the finale together, and I turned to you when it was over, and I said, Sean, is that the best season of TV you've ever seen? And you're like, probably, yeah, yeah. and I'm like, yeah, probably, good God, I think that says it all, this season has hit me where I live so many times and never more strongly than in that finale. So, yeah, lots to talk about yep. with that. So we're excited for that. That'll be a big topic. We are also going to review Jessica Jones, the Marvel Netflix show. Yes. Uh, because I finally watched it. Yes, I, I watched it over Thanksgiving break. And it might as well pair it with Doctor Who because it's a Doctor Who adjacent. You've got sure, the Doctor yeah. in there being a, a creepy rapist. Yeah. So. <laughs> It's no. a weird. It's a weird. It's weird yeah. seeing David Tennant. It's so weird. We'll talk about world. it. Yeah, uh, but we'll talk about that. So this will be a largely kind of spoilerish podcast. If you haven't seen Jessica Jones, we'll spoil that. If you haven't seen Doctor Who, we'll spoil that. Maybe I'll include a time chart with this one. We'll see if I am not lazy enough to do yeah. that. But anyway, um, but before then, we've got a lot of little things to talk about. Yes, um, just little pieces of news, a lot of video game stuff. There's the PlayStation Experience. There were the Game Awards. Just different things that have happened. But Sean, we've got to start. I think this happened shortly after our last episode aired. Mm -hmm. Um, Warner Brothers, out of the blue, this just feels like what a lot of people are doing. We're going to release a trailer, out of the blue, surprise, but they released a surprise new trailer for Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice, and they actually, before we even get to the trailer, we have to talk about the little clip they put out before the trailer. Did you see that? No. Oh yeah, they, they they do this a lot now, where they preview the preview with a preview. Oh, yeah, okay, I haven't seen that for this, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah, so they did a little, like, 30-second clip where it's... Superman has Batman chained in a government basement, like, with the, like, BDSM style. Right, yeah, that's in the trailer, yeah. Yeah, and Supes comes down, he's super angry, he has all the military people bow to him like he's a god... Because that's what Superman does. Yeah, in totally. General, like it's, that's just sort of like the vibe he rolls with. Yeah, and he walks up to Batman with the angriest look on his face, and it's not something Henry Cavill. And it's not his fault. Yeah. No one could do this, but it's not something he could do well. So it just looks like he's really constipated, and he goes to Batman and rips the mask off, and looks like he wants to kill him, and then that's how it ends. And and it was Lex Luthor the whole time. <laughs> no, oh. so that was already bad enough. That scene is like. That is as not Superman as it is possible to be. Yeah, yeah, and that that whole that's in the trailer. Yes, yeah, but like when you see it extended, it's so funny. And then we have the trailer itself, and Sean, I kind of love this trailer because it sure. is so bad. Yeah, it is so bad. It's it's yeah, it's I mean it's bad in a number of different ways. I mean it's just it's a bad trailer. Like, because whenever yes. we're talking about trailers for movies and we're talking about a trailer that's good and a trailer that's bad, I think it's always really important to draw a distinction between a trailer that is good or a trailer that is bad and a movie that is advertising and the movie actually being good or actually being bad. And it's often yeah. very hard to tell. I feel like this trailer is both a bad trailer in terms of it gives away things and exposes things 
that like it's not a huge spoiler, but it's not stuff that you want to put into your marketing necessarily, especially when you have this really strong marketing direction built into the movie, which is Batman versus Superman. And up till now, they've kept that as being, that's the thing. It's Batman is in the movie, Superman is in the movie, and they're going to fight each other. And that's a concept that is, like, markets itself. And a skilled, talented, savvy marketing team would build their entire marketing strategy around that. And basically do, like, what Halo 5 did with its marketing. Which, like, is effectively misrepresents what the actual movie or product is going to be. But advertises, like what the coolest version of that thing would be, even if it's not actually sustainable for the plot of a whole film, which it obviously wasn't. Like, we all know that the movie's going to turn into Batman and Superman teaming up to fight another force. We know Lex Luthor's in the movie. You know those things, but you don't advertise the movie that way because that's not as interesting as the other way. So it's bad. It's a bad trailer in that it doesn't do its job well in terms of marketing. It's also a really bad trailer in that it betrays that probably this movie's going to have a really shitty third act because it shows the doomsday reveal at the end of the trailer where the trailer just gives away the the entire three-act structure of the movie. So it's like if you watch the trailer, you can reconstruct the basics of the plot completely through the trailer, which is always, I think, a bad move that you don't... You never want to give away the third act of a movie in the trailer. Like, that's always just, like, a shitty thing to do. But the, the third act that they do give away reeks of, like, the most disgusting, like, mid-2000s studio-managed superhero movie bullshit you've ever seen with, like, Zod's corpse being genetically modified and resurrected to become, like, a version of the Superman villain Doomsday that has nothing to do with the actual character Doomsday, just sort of vaguely looks like a mix between the Doomsday character and the shitty CG Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles from that movie a couple of years ago. And just, like... And that's it. Like, and they just, they completely destroy this one character from the comics that has a huge amount of potential to be used in the movies in the future if they wanted to do the Death of Superman storyline, where that's where Doomsday comes from and what he's famous for. Instead, you just, like, throw him in there randomly because he's a semi-recognizable monster for comic book fans. And it's also just a very easy character to just throw in there and have a bunch of people fight him and not care about any of the storyline stuff around the character. Okay. I agree with everything you just said. Yeah. We gotta take this even more basic. Okay. Because you say this makes it look like it's gonna have a shitty third act. It makes it look like it's gonna have a shitty first, second, third, and every other act. I mean, specifically the third act looks like it's gonna be disastrous to me. But but every moment of that trailer is bad. Yeah. And that trailer is edited so poorly. It's a three-minute trailer, and I swear, a full third of it is Batman and Superman having this wink-wink conversation at Lex Luthor's party. Yeah. And... Every single... And I've watched this like three times just to count this oh, theory. God. Every single line of dialogue in this trailer could be followed with a... Wah, wah, that kind of thing. Because it's sure, all yeah. like, you know... It's like Lex Luthor going up like, You have a firm handshake. Wouldn't want to fight this guy. Yeah. Wah, wah. Is she with you? I thought she was with you. Wah, wah. They're all like that. Yeah. And it's like, it's poorly paced. It, it doesn't... And every scene is bad. The acting is terrible. The writing is terrible. Everything in this trailer is awful, and I have really tried so hard on this podcast to be fair to this movie, because I don't want to just be automatically against it, because I liked things about Man of Steel, and I think you could bake a good Batman versus Superman movie. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, you know, I'd heard a lot of bad things just kind of behind the scenes that I didn't like, but then I thought the initial marketing materials were okay. I thought that second trailer they did was a good good trailer for a movie like it doesn't mean the movie's gonna be good it doesn't mean it made me really excited for it I just thought it was a well cut trailer that was on point and on message sure yeah definitely yeah 
And it's like, okay, that's enough for now. But no, then they give this fucking turd to us. This trailer is so hilariously bad where the first time I watched it, I was like, is this a parody? Is this yeah. like, was this all an elaborate college humor video or something? Or, uh, no, Funny or Die is what yeah. I'm thinking of. Yeah. I don't, yeah, anyway. So it looks so bad. I mean, that first scene where they're Batman and Superman are talking to each other as Clark Kent and Bruce Wayne, awful, all of it. Yeah. One, I don't know how Clark Kent... The intrepid reporter doesn't know who Bruce Wayne is. Yeah, that's, that's a stupid. really, like, a weird moment where Bruce Wayne's getting out of a car and Clark Kent's like, who's that guy? It's like, what, you haven't heard? Yeah. It's like, how yeah, it's, how the fuck would Clark Kent not know who Bruce Wayne is? Like, CEO of Wayne Enterprises, like, this huge philanthropist. Like, he's supposed to have, and, like, international, like, Playboy and all that stuff with, like, all the, the tabloid gossip around him. Yeah. It's like, you would have to know who Bruce Wayne is. Like, that's absolutely the the character that he is it's like not knowing who steve jobs is or bill gates is or something it's like that's fucking impossible there's no way you wouldn't know exactly and then clark kent just starts throwing these horrible questions at bruce wayne like accusing him for the batman which if he doesn't know bruce wayne is batman makes no sense yeah which it doesn't seem like he would at that point in the movie like who knows yeah maybe he just like randomly went and just like looked like, flew over to Gotham, saw Batman doing something, used his extra vision, was like, okay, it's Bruce Wayne. Yeah, who knows? Maybe that's the first scene. But either way... <laughs> It'd be a really funny first scene. Clark Kent is being an awful journalist in that yeah. scene, just being a super accusatory to this guy who seems... Like, the way Ben Affleck is playing him just as this kind of normal, nice guy. Yeah. Which is weird. And then Ben Affleck, I actually think, gets an okay line in there on him about crazy people in capes, because the way they're playing it with Superman... Yeah, he does look like a crazy clown. Yeah. Anyway, and then Lex Luthor comes in. God, Lex Luthor in this trailer. Poor Jesse Eisenberg. Fucking shit. That dude, like, Jesse Eisenberg is an actor who plays, like, normal people usually. And just is kind of a, a little bit of a, not a subtle actor, but he's not a ham. And he is being asked to play the most hammy version of Lex Luthor ever. And I include Gene Hackman in that. But, like... It, he's it's, it's not even Lex Luthor. Like no, there's, it's nothing, not, there's nothing, and I know that like there's some stupid thing about how it's like oh it's technically it's like Lex Luthor Junior or something in this universe, like which is completely fucking meaningless. I love that they like they put that out as like a weird viral marketing thing. It's just like oh no, it's actually Lex Luthor Junior. It's like so what? fucking what? Like this is a it's independent movie continuity. Lex Luthor was never a character in these movies. You can't just say that it's Lex Luthor's son when you've never established who Lex Luthor is. It's like, for all I know, Lex Luthor's fucking dad's name in the comics was Lex Luthor. I it's, don't fucking know. It's like in Amazing Spider-Man 2 where they introduced the Green Goblin, but they haven't shown us Norman Osborn yet. Exactly, So they yeah. still include Norman Osborn. None of it makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it's like, yeah, it's like you're taking weird comic book continuity for granted in a movie universe where you're trying to establish everything in the context of that universe. So I'm, I'm going to ignore the fact that it's Lex Luthor's son because people are like things like, oh, that means that it doesn't need to be like Lex Luthor from the comics. It's like, and you obviously you can interpret the character and change a lot of things about the character and that can be absolutely fine and is oftentimes completely necessary for a character like this who's changed dramatically over the course of, his, of the comics and of the other movies and TV shows and all that stuff. But I, just, I fail to find anything recognizable about the character whatsoever, at least represented in the trailer, like, he's just another fucking psychotic lunatic villain. He's the Joker. He's just yeah, the exactly. Joker. Yeah, exactly. It's the, and it's a really shitty version of the Joker. That is yeah. like, 
And it's something that's increasingly frustrating me over the years of that every fucking time we get a villain in a like superhero-esque supernatural kind of setting, the villain always has to be a completely psychotic like office fucking rocker, cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, Daffy Duck style villain. And I say it like that because a lot of villains are going to be like homicidal maniacs or like psychopaths in a slightly more technical sense because that's like the kind of character you need your villain to be a lot of times if they're going to be murdering hundreds of people or whatever it is. But it, there's a huge difference between like Alex Luthor in the comics and him being sort of psychotic and sort of homicidal in that way and not having empathy for people and, and stuff like that. And him just going around and like, well, hi, I'm Lex Luthor, and man, you people sure look tough, and I'm, I'm going to totally be totally good, and I'm not going to be evil or psychotic at all in this movie. He like, looks like he's they're on totally sp- different. He looks like he's on speed. Like, yeah, exactly. He it's, sounds like he's about to have a nosebleed and have to go to the bathroom. He's, like, like, bouncing off the fucking walls. And the biggest issue with it, and again... Maybe they just picked, like, the worst scene. Maybe there's, like, some really elaborate context for why he's acting like this. Because you only get, like, a couple of other lines of him in the trailer that it's... The other appearances of Lex Luthor in the trailer are not enough to sort of determine what the rest of the performance is going to look like. But if we just extrapolate based on what we see in this trailer, and that's what he is for basically the whole movie, the biggest issue I have with that kind of villain and the way they represent those kinds of villains, and also I think my the, the number one example for me is the new Moriarty in the Sherlock is I think the worst version I've ever seen of this, is that you make the, the character so loony, just completely fucking Looney Tunes, that he's not threatening anymore. And that's the number one thing you need to maintain as a villain is there's a sense of threat and danger to them. And they need to be imposing in some way. Which, if we go back to Gene Hackman in Superman the movie, that dude is scary. Yes. He's also funny, but you also believe that he will fucking destroy the world to make a couple bucks. Yeah, or he will just fucking kill someone if it's to his benefit in some way. Yeah. And yeah, there's like there is a legitimate sense of threat to that character and intimidation, and it's something that like when I look at Jesse Eisenberg's performance in this trailer, and I think of like if me in the real world, if like I somehow was in that party and saw that dude talking, like I might just punch that dude in the nose and not feel anything about it because he's just being a bratty asshole, and that's it. And I'm in no way intimidated by this character. I am in no way threatened by this character. Well, and it's extra important for Lex Luthor because why he is a seminal Superman villain is because he's an unlikely Superman villain. Yes. He's not someone who can go toe-to-toe with Superman. He just has to intimidate a god until that, you know, god kowtows to him. That's yeah. kind of his idea. And that's what's interesting about, like, Superman the movie is that Superman, you can tell Christopher Reeve just wants to punch this guy through a wall. Yeah. But he can't because... Lex Luthor has planned, he's got his ideas, he knows what he's doing. And, and, like, and the man that Lex Luthor is just beating him up would never stop him. No. Like, that's never enough. You have to convince him he's wrong. You have to like engage right. on him on his level. Can you... Superman would just punch this guy out, right? Yes, the, yeah. the and, it, and that would be it. And he'd yeah. go, he'd cry and run home. Yeah. And like go and fucking like write fan fiction on the internet or whatever this fucking asshole does on his own and I time, mean, you know? Good God, I mean, the one scene with Amy Adams in this trailer, too, is her being kidnapped by Lex Luthor and him giving her the speech that we've seen in a million of these movies about how psychosis is just genius misinterpreted yeah. or something. Which is, the, again, it's something where it feels like he is just a guy who spends way too much time on Tumblr. Yeah. And not a genius that, like, well, this guy is, like definitely knows more than me. It's like, no, 
this is a bratty asshole who like has a very limited, small perspective on the world, who has spent way too much time on his own, has never talked to anybody ever, and that's why he's acting like this. Not like Lex Luthor in like the Superman cartoon, which is probably my favorite version, where that character is like, no, this guy's like legitimately a genius. Like this guy knows everything that he's doing. He's planned ahead. He's very smart. He's very intelligent. And there's also an element of him that you can respect because I think there is a sort of humanist element to Lex Luthor in his best incarnations, which is that he stands for what the best of humanity can be and the worst of what humanity can be in opposition to Superman, who is an alien, effectively God. And that, like, his like Lex Luthor's insane ambition is both a, a curse and a benefit. And I think that's what's really fascinating about the character. And there's a lot of different versions of the character that leverage that aspect of him. And it's just really disappointing to see this, what looks like a really cookie-cutter villain version of fucking Lex Luthor just vomited onto the screen for us. I mean, here's the thing that's funny. There have been so many Joker imitators in the 2000s, as you said, mm-hmm. of just let's go as loony tunes as we can with our villains. Heath Ledger in The Dark Knight might legitimately be one of the more subtle of these villains. It, I mean, he is. I mean, it's it's something where Heath Ledger's performance as the Joker, like, I think, sparked this interest in that kind of villain. Even though that's not what he is. Yeah, exactly. But all, yeah, all the imitations have completely missed that, like, there is this really sinister undercurrent always there in the Heath Ledger yes. Joker performance that it's like, he's not crazy. And he's constantly, like, affirming. It's like, no... I'm not insane. And when he says it, you kind of believe it. And yes. that's the key point with the Heath Ledger Joker, is that he's fucking killing people and you want to just dismiss him as an insane psychotic, but it's kind of hard to in a lot of the scenes in that movie when he gets kind of actually legitimately serious. It's hard to dismiss him in a lot of ways. And that's what makes the performance work so much. It's incredibly nuanced. It's incredibly subtle. It's yes. really multifaceted. It's why it's one of the best villain performances in the past several decades on mo- in film. Yeah, I mean, I have seen The Dark Knight many times, and I never stop being scared of him. Yeah. And that's the ideal, and as you say, it's like, everyone just looked at the absolute surface, which is a platitude in that movie, yeah. and decided to take that and not any of the substance. Yeah. And it's just, it's affected absolutely everything, as you say. You know, yeah. on to, down to the worst example, which is Moriarty and Sherlock. But, I mean, you can point at, you know, Star Trek Into Darkness, and yeah. you can point at... Just anything. It's, yeah, God. And just, I, this trailer just looks like it's a trailer for five different movies. Mm -hmm. A movie about a Batman origin story, a movie where Superman has decided he wants to be a god, um, where he, like, took that Kanye West song, I'm a god, way too seriously, and he's deciding he's going to live by that. There's a movie where Batman and Superman are fighting. There's a movie where Batman and Superman are friends. There's a movie where Wonder Woman's in it for some reason. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say there's a movie where Wonder Woman just sort of shows up, which I'm sure that's going to have some context in the full movie, but it is sort of like a really inexplicable moment in the trailer. It just, it doesn't feel like the money shot of the trailer. It feels like, what the, that doesn't have anything to do with what we just were watching. Yeah. Yeah, because it is just a sense of like, why is Wonder Woman in this movie? It's like, oh, right, the studios want to make a franchise. That's why Wonder Woman is in this movie. That's they why are, all these characters are in this movie. They're going to fuck Wonder Woman up so hard. I just, we've had some, this is like, this year has been the first year where we've gotten some good female superheroes, I yeah. feel like. Pretty much only on TV, but we're getting them. And I'm looking at that Wonder Woman and I'm so scared for her. Yeah. Especially if you look at the behind the scenes stuff where Warner Brothers are just a bunch of sexist assholes. Yeah. Yeah, I am scared for Wonder Woman. But anyway, I mean, they don't even let her talk in this fucking trailer. 
That's what annoys me about that last scene is she comes in and Batman and Superman do their womp womp line about is yeah. she with you and she just kind of stands there silently and it's like well what that's not showing us anything yeah. with Wonder Woman do something with her no this trailer is epically terrible like I really wonder how it got out and it makes me think is this is this really just what the movie is going to be where it's a, like a hundred different people with a hundred different ideas just spitting it out onto a screen and then fuck it we have to make the money let's get it out there yeah. I, I have, like, a weird theory where it's specifically with how bad that third act twist with Doomsday is for someone who's a fan of the comics and, like, and is, you know, the Death of Superman storyline has its issues, but it's at least it's an incredibly interesting storyline and is very important in sort of comic book history, that, like, as a fan of that stuff, man, if I had gone into this movie and not known that that was going to happen, I think, like, I would tear this fucking movie apart, and maybe I still will, but I fucking guarantee you I'm going to like this movie more now because I already know that. I already know that that's what I'm getting, going in for. That's like, that's not a surprise. I've like dealt with that in my own way before seeing the movie and like I'll be able to <laughs> accept the movie a little bit more. And I like, I wonder if legitimately at some point they realize that's how bad that third act twist is and how generic and lazy and fucking just dumb and boring of a, a choice it is for your movie that they're just like, well, let's just put it out there so that people know that, so that when it does happen, and people going in, that people who are really stupid going in and thinking that the whole movie's going to just be Batman fighting Superman will not be surprised by that twist and disappointed. But then also, people who are expecting there's going to be something else in the third act, but expecting something maybe slightly creative with it, are also going to come in and not be disappointed by that twist because they already know it because of the trailer. Yeah. No, I... It's just... Again, you've got to make the comparisons to Marvel. This yeah. this movie, just and everything it sounds like they're doing at DC, feels like it's made by a bunch of people who have never read a comic book, don't care about these characters, don't really like these characters. They, yeah. I mean, Zack Snyder and David S. Square clearly don't like Superman. At least sure, in yeah. his uh, in, in any recognizable incarnation, they have no interest in Superman. And I think they're the wrong people to be making Superman movies for yes. that reason. Yeah. Uh, but you compare that to, you know, we're going to talk about Jessica Jones later. And I think Jessica Jones is a hugely flawed show. Yeah. But I watched 13 hours of it because you can tell it's made by people who have, at the bare fucking minimum, enthusiasm for and understanding of the material. And if you've got that, you can build a, you can build something. Yeah. And I don't see that in any of this. I mean, we haven't even talked about this. Batman is branding people with his logo right, yeah. and wielding a shotgun in this yeah. trailer. What are you doing? Seriously. That is... that Like, Frank Miller wouldn't write that. Frank I mean, Miller's crazy. I think Frank Miller might have thing, legitimately maybe. just. I think he's hacked. I think I'm pretty sure. I mean, keep in mind, Frank okay. Miller wrote an entire series of okay, Batman where he abducts Dick Grayson, I, yeah, yeah, locks yeah. him in the Batcave, and forces him to basically hunt and eat bats and rats to make to fucking survive on his okay. own can in I, the Batcave. Can I Frank my... Miller's written fucking way more insane shit than this. Can I amend my? Statement? Yes. Okay. Frank Miller would totally write that. Yeah. And if you're adapting what Frank Miller would write for Batman, you're doing it wrong. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Let's this is this is a kind of Batman that Frank Miller would write, and that's very problematic, especially in the fucking 21st century yes. when it was like maybe more acceptable in like 1986 or whatever when The Dark Knight Returns first came out. Yeah. Okay. Well, this is not good. Yeah, but it was fun to make fun of. So, Sean, let's go ahead and move on. What else is going on here? Speaking of Marvel news, just really quick, I wanted to All say, right. Marvel sounds like they've found their director for Black Panther. It's going to be Ryan right, Coogler, yeah. and I just want to mention that, because last week we reviewed Creed on the podcast. 
Creed is a great movie. Ryan Coogler directed that. He also directed a little movie a couple years ago called Fruitvale Station that is really good. And I like that idea. I think if any... I, It's another case where Ryan Coogler is a director where I would frankly be more interested in seeing him go do his own stuff. Because sure. I'm interested to see what he has to say. But if he wants to make a Marvel pit stop along the way and... Maybe everything he wants to say is contained within Black Panther. <laughs> Black Panther's... I don't know if you've heard. He's pretty fucking cool. No, so. and I... And if I had the opportunity to make a Black Panther movie, I would totally fucking make a Black Panther Well, movie. and it's clear that Ryan Coogler from Creed can make a big crowd pleaser. He knows pace. He knows how to shoot an action scene just with those boxing scenes in Creed. He's a very, he's got a great sense of style. And he's a very, very thoughtful director about race relations in the United States. And obviously you're making a movie called Black Panther. You've got to be thinking about those things. Yeah. So I like that. I, I think, I like what, the little what we've seen of Black Panther in the Civil War trailer. And I think... You know, it's just something like, that seems like a fun direction. Yeah, yeah, so. it seems like a good fit. Yeah. All right, let's go ahead and talk about a little thing that happened this week at the Game Awards. Right, okay, um, yeah. Not a lot, I mean, there were, it's just kind of going to be a theme on this podcast where a lot of big things happened in gaming this week where we had the Game Awards, we had the P PlayStation Experience. Not a lot of interesting news came out of any of that. I feel like the biggest thing out of the Game Awards was that Telltale is making a Batman game, <laughs> which sounds that. like... Not quite as bad of an idea as Zack Snyder doing this stuff, but a bad idea. I mean, it's just that it's just something where I desperately want Telltale to slow the fuck down and like put like put more care into individual projects instead of like making a billion of them. Because I've I've in theory I really want to play and like and enjoy these other Telltale games because there's a lot of stuff in the Walking Dead season one that I played that I really liked. I still think episode two of the Walking Dead season one was fucking amazing and I I love the shit out of that episode in particular. But like they need to do so much in sort of advancing their technology and I think their delivery model and the way that they think about how they write and construct individual episodes. As I think a lot of people are going to have to think about like how episodic storytelling is evolving and changing and how we need to approach that. And them just fucking throwing out all these projects constantly means I never can stop and be like, well, maybe this is the one I want to jump back in on. Because it's like, well, and then I look yeah. at videos and I'm like, it doesn't look like they fixed a lot of the issues with their animation and stuff like that that they need to fix. And it's just, it's stuff like, you know, I played like a half an hour of that Game of Thrones one. And if you, I'm sorry, if you have the Game of Thrones license and you can't grab me in half an hour, you're doing it wrong. And I mean me as someone who just is one of millions who loves Game of Thrones, watches yeah. the show, read the books. That should be like catnip to me. And you did it wrong. Yeah. You know, like immediately. The technology is so bad. The writing is so off. It's just like, no, I'm not doing this shit anymore. And I feel like we're at a point now where I'm not seeing any enthusiasm for Telltale. Even the most diehard people seem yeah. to be kind of cooling off on that. The only the only project, weirdly enough, that people seem to actually really enjoy, and I'm kind of interested in trying it out at some point, is the Tales from the Borderlands one. Okay. But that's actually getting... Like, it's weird because it's not... It doesn't get much critical attention, but it's the only one that, like, when I go into forums and stuff and I see people talking about these kinds of games, that's the only one that people playing them actually show any enthusiasm for. Yes. But I think the... the the issue with that one is that the franchise does not necessarily have a huge amount of appeal in that market. So I think that's why nobody actually pays attention to it, even though yeah. it's apparently doing some really good stuff. Well, that sounds right. And the, But with Batman, it's like in specifics. Batman sounds like such a bad idea for the Telltale model, because you know they're going to try to do some stupid Batman fight, or you're going to use your Batarang or something, and it's going to yeah, break the whole game. Yeah, just have to like, drag the cursor over like yeah. three things, yeah. And it's probably not going to be that good a story, and they're going to miss the point, and it's probably they're going to have to do it in the DC model of Batman being super dark and brooding, 
and no lightness can, you know, it just, I, that sounds like such a colossally bad idea to me, especially because you're going to be comparing yourself to the Arkham Trilogy that yeah. just finished and is one of the great accomplishments in game history, and I feel like you should probably just let Batman cool down for a while on that front. Yeah. But anyway. It also just makes me wonder, like, because it's important to note that, like, they didn't show anything from the game. It was, like, a one-minute, like, concept art teaser, basically. And so I'm curious to see, like, because, again, like, one of the main things is I think they need to do is they really need to update their technology. And, like, because I think the games look terrible and they animate terribly, which is the biggest thing for me, is I think the animation quality needs to be a lot better because this is all story based the presentation is really important to how you're telling your story and ignoring that it's like making the the characters as stiff and wooden and plasticky as they are in those games makes it really hard for me to get invested in, in them at a certain point and it's like i think it, there's a lot of area to explore and expand your visual style and like if they went with a much more like traditional like even just straight up 2d like comic book panels like stylistically there's a lot of stuff you could do that's really interesting that they might do again we haven't seen anything from the game Uh, but they're not i mean last time we talked about this it's they're making visual novels and pretending they're not yeah and visual novels are way more engaging because they know what their technology limitations are and they write this and they feel like their story first technology second and that's not the Telltale model. Yeah. I, I don't. Yeah, I don't anticipate any of that. I think we're going to get really stiff plastic Batman. I just hope he's seventies Batman. If they give him a blue cape, I'll play this. They should just, maybe they should just all be like Adam West style Batman, just like straight up just oh, do that. Here's the thing: that there are so many good opportunities. Like Telltale could totally do silly Adam West Batman as a yeah. five episode thing and just have fun with it, like they seem to be doing with like Minecraft Story Mode. Totally. They're not going to do that, but if they did, I'd play it. That sounds like a good idea, and you could get away with more technology limitations there. They're not going to. I wonder if they're going to, like, go the Arkham route and trying to, like, cast as many animated series people like Kevin Conroy as you can. I wonder if they're going to Hmm. go with their own cast. We'll see. I I, I feel like Kevin Conroy and Mark Hamill aren't coming out except for the best of the best. So, yeah. yeah. We will see. Anyway, that's that. Um... But the big thing at the Game Awards turned out to be a controversy. It wasn't what was there. It was the person who yeah. wasn't. Um, the host of the Game Awards came out at one point. They Jeff Keighley. Jeff Keighley. Um, I forget if this was around one of the awards, Metal Gear Solid 5. Yes, won. yeah, it was. Okay. I, can't, I think Best Action Game is what okay. NGS 5 won. Yeah, so it won that. Yeah, because Kiefer Sutherland came out to accept the award. Okay. Yeah. And Jeff Keighley came out and basically said in very kind of pointed tone... Um, Hideo Kojima could not wanted to be here tonight could not because Konami's lawyers told him he could not attend yeah Sean react that's fucking evil like that's just evil like it's an evil disrespectful disgusting immoral thing to do in my opinion to take this guy who like and this is completely regardless of my personal opinions on Metal Gear Solid and both of our opinions on Metal Gear Solid 5 that obviously we have our issues with the games and stuff, but there is no arguing that Hideo Kojima is one of the most important game designers in the history of video games, and that barring him from attending what is, like, this burgeoning sort of attempt to make some sort of vaguely official video game awards in, like, a, a an area by which the video game community can celebrate the people who make video games, barring him from attending that kind of function is... Like I said, it's completely disgusting. It's the wrong thing to do. It's incredibly pig-headed and stubborn and childish and idiotic. And and Konami and the people at Konami who made that decision should be incredibly ashamed of themselves. And I'm very happy that Konami is getting the fuck out of making video games because they don't belong here. I Yeah, I don't know if I can say it better than that. Yeah, it's disgusting. I mean, 
you know, when you are a corporation and you are having an internal grievance like this, the last thing you want to do is let it spiral into the public to make you look bad. And Konami did that from the first. And every time it comes up, they make themselves look worse and worse and worse. And it's like every bit of goodwill they have had as a company is gone because of how they've treated their most important employee. They would, in the 21st century, be nothing without that man. Exactly, yeah. Nothing at all. And, you know, Metal Gear Solid Five would not have the acclaim it has without that guy. You know, it, it is a, as that game reminds you, early and often, it is a Hideo Kojima game. Yes. If you're awarding that game, the guy should be there. If your employee who made you millions of dollars off this fucking thing, you know, is up for an award, you let him go there and represent his work. Yeah, there, there is no, there's absolutely no good reason to not no. let... Like, anyone attend these awards. Like, there's no, yeah. like, valid legal reason to do that. It's no. just disgusting. Just disgusting. And, again, I mean, we bitched about Metal Gear Solid Five. We harbor no ill will towards Hideo Kojima for no, that. No, not at all. And, and again, as I said, you know, the other thing is just, you look at videos of the guy, he seems like the nicest guy. He seems yeah. like it would be, he would actually be a fun guy just to kind of hang out with and talk yeah, about absolutely. games in the world. Like mecha anime. Right. So I, it's just, it's getting to the point where I can't imagine... What Konami's beef could possibly be that they would be this much of just dicks about it? Yeah, it's yeah. really it's really bizarre and unsettling. Yeah. So, fuck you, Konami. Yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. <laughs> fuck you, Konami. So stay strong, Kojima. I, I look forward to your future work. Yeah, because I'm glad that he's getting out of there. One way or another, he will be the guy coming out on top of this. He yeah. already has. So, mm-hmm. in any case. Um, then we had PlayStation Experience. I, I want to say one thing that, like, one thing I really liked about the Game Awards is that they gave the right game Game of the Year. Oh yeah, they gave it to Witcher Three, and yes, I know you're that a big was fan of that. The one. appropriate choice. Did you see? I saw this online today. Someone made a mod for The Witcher Three, where when you yeah. start a battle, it, like in the in the you know open world map, you take your sword out and you slash at someone, and it just goes to a game of Gwent. The yeah, card yeah, game. the, the in game card mini game. <laughs> yes, I saw that, and that legitimately like. Gwent became a weird addiction for me when I was playing The Witcher 3 because it's a, like when you get good at the game and you figure out its rules it's actually a lot of fun and so like every time I went to a town the absolute first thing I, I did is I was like okay where are the merchants I need to go play Gwent with everyone you can play Gwent with in this town gives me cards that mod sounds super fun I'm really I really kind of wish I had that PC that could run Witcher 3 on PC because I, I want to just do that where every time you just attack some bandits and play them at Gwent and then and when you win they just all fall over dead. It's just one of the things I love about video games. You can't get this in any other medium. Yeah. You can have someone have a crazy idea like that and then spend the, I assume, dozens of hours yeah, programming, programming that mod, yeah. and then release it and it's just so goofy and wonderful. I love yeah, it. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> Alright. Uh, so PlayStation Experience. Um... I, not a lot came out of it. I mean, they didn't. They mostly focused on projects that they're all we already know all about, like Uncharted Four or the new uh, Ratchet and Clank game, right, stuff yeah. like that. Just a little more on that. A lot on PlayStation VR, which definitely I'm going to be interested in how they market this as a broad thing when that's ready. Yeah, it's the. It was one of the first instances of, and actually, PlayStation is the only company actually really doing this on a big stage. Because they were also the only people at E3 who did it, of trying to actually demo and explain and show VR to people in like a, on a wider wider format. Because like Oculus Rift is obviously it's the sort of the most famous famous VR headset, but they're not really getting out there. Like they're just like kind of being vaguely conceptual and stuff. Where Sony is like actually trying to like show trailers and stuff and is not entirely successful at it. But you have to give them credit for being the only people willing to even try to do it because obviously showing off VR in a format where people aren't wearing VR headsets is, like, an insane and impossible thing to do. Yes. 
Uh, but I feel like the biggest news out of it, at least that I saw on the internet, was they had a new trailer for the Final Fantasy VII remake. Yeah. I thought that was glorious. Yeah, really and it's, it's, it's interesting because that's the, it's the most significant piece of information we've had on it since it's announced. And it's cool to see. I think they're, they're going in the right direction with it in terms of like making it a, a remake instead of a remaster or anything. Even and calling it a remake, I feel like, doesn't go far enough. It's yeah. a different game. I mean, Yeah, because it's like the battle system looks like it's much more sort of on the action, like Kingdom Hearts-y kind of side of things. Or actually, like it's probably just Final Fantasy XV's combat system, which is actually more uh, action-y. And yeah, and there's voice acting and stuff, which obviously you would assume there's going to be voice acting, but there wasn't in the original game, so they might have avoided that. So yeah, it looks I mean, cool. Yeah, yeah, it just it's it is interesting because it's I was surprised they had an, as much of this game done as they did to show this much. Yeah, and it is primarily from the first disc of the game, so maybe that's what they have done so far. But it's you know I know that part of the game pretty intimately, and it was interesting just seeing these iconic scenes done completely differently. Like I said. This is not a kind of thing where this is going to replace the original Final Fantasy VII. Yeah. It's going to be a companion piece. It feels like it's a game inspired by Final Fantasy VII, not a new game inspired by Final Fantasy VII, not a remake. Yeah, more like what if we made Final Fantasy VII today from yes. the ground up and like the original game didn't exist in a weird right. way. And it's, it's really interesting just how far they're taking it with things. You mentioned the battle system, but like just the cutscenes, the voice acting, which seems pretty good, actually. Yeah. Uh, you've always got to be wary with Square Enix, Square Enix there. Yeah. But it seemed pretty good, and uh, I thought they used the music fantastically. Yes. Yeah. Basically used good the battle trailer. theme. Yeah, good trailer. So, But was there anything else from PlayStation Experience worth mentioning? Um, there was a couple things that I was interested in. Uh, I'm, I mean, one, the thing that was the coolest was Nino Kuni 2 getting announced, which that's... I know, like... I, I was always sort of interested in it, never had the time to play it. I know there are a lot of people who really like it. And the main thing I like about it is just that it's a completely gorgeous-looking game that looks like absolutely nothing else on the market. And so if nothing else, getting, like, a series of Nino Kuni 2 trailers is very exciting for me because I just love the way that game looks and the music. I, I looked into it. It, it. Did they say anything at the show? Does Studio Ghibli have any involvement this time? I don't around? know. Joe Hisaishi is still composing the he music. He is, at the okay. I don't, cool. I don't know about like the rest of the involvement. It still has like the same sort of Ghibli visual style, okay. but I don't know if the I would, studios... I would have to guess no because yeah. I don't think they're producing anything at the moment. That would be but, my guess as well. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I was just curious because the, yeah. the Joe Hisaishi thing was the one I was most interested in because yeah. his music very much defined that first game. Yeah, and then and then also, it's a, it's a series I've always been vaguely interested in is the Yakuza series, which is a big. It's basically Grand Theft Auto in Japan, but it, and by that I mean it's set in Japan and it's only ever really out in Japan, and a couple of them have come out over here in like very limited localization releases, and so Yakuza Five and Yakuza Zero are going to come out over here at some point. And maybe someday I'll play one of these games, because I'm very fascinated by them. I would love to. I think Yakuza 5, didn't they just say it's out on PSN now for PS3? Yes, I think yeah. so, yeah. So it's out. I, I was thinking of maybe picking that up, because I'd like to play that. Yeah. And my PS3 is still rocking it, so. And then, maybe, then Yakuza 6 will come out over here, because I remember, like, six months ago or so, there was a trailer for Yakuza 6, which had Takeshi Kitano in it. Like, modeled, like, it looked like that him and his voice the character. It's pretty fucking cool. That is now my most anticipated yeah. game. Yeah, I so will import that. Yeah, so hopefully Yakuza 6 will come out over here if we're getting into the Yakuza's coming out in the West. That Got to. Cool. Yakuza stuff is the best. Yeah. It's just the best. American Gangsters got nothing on Yakuza. It's yeah, great. It's true. Uh, and then the other big piece of PlayStation news that kind of broke before the PlayStation experience is there... Bringing some PS2 backwards compatibility yes. to PS4, but in kind of the most half-hearted 
asinine way possible, I it, feel it like. It seems like it's a weird, like, they haven't really said much about it, and it's just sort of happening. Like, I, I don't really understand but they're not, what's going on with what it. What they're doing, so they've got ten of them out now. They just released a big chunk, and including, like, all the Grand Theft Auto games from that era. Like, Liberty City, Story, you know, Liberty City and San Andreas and some of yeah. those. And three, I think, is on that list. And then a couple others that I honestly have not heard of. But anyway, and they are, they're like mastered in 1080p. Obviously, they're not like, they didn't redo the visuals or anything. Yeah, yeah. They're just a little up Um They're upscaled to 1080p. Um, they're running on, basically, the one of the recent updates to the PS4 firmware made, like, basically put an emulator in the PS4. Yeah. But people were unsure exactly how it was going to work. And they're not, but what's strange about it to me is it's not going to run PS2 discs. Which isn't that unexpected, but the bigger one is it's not going to run PS2 Classics either, which is their big thing they did for PS3, where you can buy a bunch of PS2 games that way. Yeah. And so you will have to buy, if they re-release any of them that were PS2 Classics, you're going to have to buy them again for PS4. And it's just like, nothing about Sony's approach to backwards compatibility is okay to me. Like, especially when you compare it to what Microsoft is trying with Xbox One and with what Nintendo even does with Virtual Console and stuff. It's just... It does not make sense. It's like half-hearted to the point of I don't know why they're even trying. And kind of consumer, just anti-consumer in the way it's being done. I don't get, and these are like, they're super expensive too. They're like 15 bucks a piece. Which for uh, old PS2 games that you've probably bought five other times, like not even Nintendo prices, there's stuff like that. Yeah. It's crazy. I mean, it's a weird thing because, again, like they didn't say, it. like I feel like, it doesn't feel like, it's a full, like, initiative by them. It feels like they're testing the waters yeah. in a weird way. Like, because because how this actually came out, like, how we found out about it originally was that when Battlefront came out, there was a special PS4 bundle that was, like, a special version of the PS4 that looked like Darth Vader or something. And, with, and it had Star Wars Battlefront. And it had, like, eight or something, like, Star Wars classic video games, which was just, like, a weird hodgepodge of, like, whatever games I guess they could get the rights to. And release them, and some of them, and specifically, I think it was Star Wars Bounty Hunter was a PS2 game. And when people went in and looked at what they were doing with Star Wars Bounty Hunter, they were like, it seemed like they were emulating the game instead of having completely remade it in some way, which is what they did for like Super Star Wars. So I'm not completely remade it, but are like exactly like putting in a full like Super Nintendo emulator thing. And so, like that was sort of where they're like, well, you guys seem to be like, this is something where potentially you could make other games that would run with this sort of PS2 emulator you've made for the PS4 and then a couple of weeks later Sony was like yeah and there's going to be a couple of other games out and that was kind of it like yeah. it's very strange it's really strange I I don't get a lot of that that yeah. and the whole PS Now thing just kind of baffle me in how they're being handled I don't know I feel like in a couple of ways the PS4 is popular enough I'm feeling Sony getting cocky again just in a couple of areas and I hope they don't yeah, but this is one of those moves where it's like you're getting cocky. Stop it! Don't get cocky, you guys. You made that mistake once before. Listen to Han Solo. You've got your Star Wars games on there. Yeah, I I don't feel like I get that sense as much, and maybe it's because like PS2 backwards compatibility is not that important to me in any way. Yeah, because it's weird because it's specifically that it's PS2 backwards compatibility, and obviously like PS3 backwards compatibility is like a whole other fucking kernel of no, like yeah. insanity of trying to emulate those games. But it's it's a weird. It's a weird scenario. I don't know. I'm just saying the timing is not a coincidence of it being around the, as a kind of an answer to the Xbox One and what they're Kind doing. of, but obviously it would have had to be in production before the 360's backwards compatibility stuff was announced. Yeah. If for the Star Wars Battle, or Battle right. Hunter thing to come out. 
yeah, it's just a little weird, but yeah. we'll see. Um, all right, so I think that ties it up for all the video game stuff. Anything else we want to mention? Nothing that's off the top of my head. Yeah, we're going to be quiet on video games for a while, I feel like. just Yeah, I'm playing Fallout 4 still. That's Okay. I, like, there's nothing more to say about that. I feel like I'm kind of slowing down on it. It's about my time has come. I'm playing Majora's Mask still. I'm in the second dungeon. I love that game. It's good. Cool. I'm helping save the Gorons. Yeah, the Gorons. The Gorons are like one of my favorite races in Zelda. I just love the lore and stuff around them. Yeah. And they're, they're just... You want to help them. They're so nice. They are. Because I feel like in any other game, the Gorons would be like weird thugs or something with their design. Yeah, no, they're just like they're fun, friendly, naive, yeah. like they're just your buddies. Yep, I love it. All right, anyway, so... Yes, um, let's go ahead and move on. Sean, why don't we do our first topic here? Let's talk okay. about Jessica Jones. Yes, let's Jessica review this Jones. sucker. So you said your piece on it last week. You want to recap that a little bit? Yeah, sure. I think it's it's a series that I very much enjoyed. I think it's flawed in the sense of that, like I think the pacing is flawed. I think it loses track of a lot of its supporting characters, particularly near the end. Some of them just kind of go way off the rails in weird subplots and stuff, which happens. I feel like on the like most American TV shows I watch, is you have weird. Fucking subplots that just pop up all the time, but the, the but what it does nail really well is I think Jessica Jones and Kilgrave the villain are both really well defined characters. In particular, Jessica Jones, I think, obviously it's she's the show is named after her. She's the main character. She's the most important character to get right because in like the Marvel comic book style, it is all about the characters and these very interesting, complex, flawed characters that also have these powers. And I think they everything that they need to nail about Jessica Jones as a character they absolutely nail, and she carries the show for me for a lot of parts, like more or less on her back. And I'm, you know, I, I think it's a flawed show, but it's a very interesting show that deals with themes that most other things don't deal with. And it's not as good as Daredevil to me in a lot of ways, but it's also a lot more ambitious in the kinds of things it tries to tackle than something like Daredevil is. It is, and what I first tweeted about this show when like, I finished watching the first three episodes, which I thought were really good, um, was Jessica Jones automatically goes above a lot of other Marvel stuff for me in that it really tries to tackle something so serious and meaty. And by that, I didn't mean it's better. I just mean that I think in terms of ambition yeah. and how much I respect certain parts of it, it automatically just gets a slot higher than anything else Marvel has done because it's basically a season-long allegory, and if you can't even really call it an allegory at a certain point. The, the comics were, this is not. It's a story about rape, and it's about... Yeah. Um, it's a very feminist story. It's a story about a villain who represents male privilege. It's a very interesting look into some really difficult topics that TV and movies largely avoid because they are so difficult to talk about. Yeah. Just the fact that this show is honestly willing to use the word rape and have it mean something, I mean, that's very important in a world where a show as good and big as Game of Thrones does not get the fucking point that rape is a bad thing you don't want to throw around willy-nilly. Yeah, and that Jessica and Jones is never gratuitous about it. And never never like, shows it. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Like, it doesn't... Because that's not what's important about it, and it understands that. Yes, and I think... So this feels like a really good answer to a lot of the problems with how American television and media treats those issues. So I like that, and to see that in a Marvel series of all places, because Marvel movies, you know, they don't really tackle real issues all that much. Sure. I think Daredevil does a little bit with religion. I think Iron Man does a little bit with alcoholism and kind of self-hatred, even though they largely elided the actual alcohol part of Tony Stark's character. Yeah. In the movies, I still think some of that is there. But other than that, I mean, they're, they're fun and silly, and that's great. I, I love that. Yeah. They know what they are. But, so to see that in Jessica Jones is a nice surprise. That being said, I don't know how hot I am on the show itself as a whole. I think, structurally, this show is awful. 
and I have almost nothing good to say about the narrative and the narrative mechanics and the pace of this show. I think at what it does well, which is those themes, which is the characters of Jessica, her sister, and Kilgrave in particular, uh, and, and like I said, some of those themes and character interactions, it does as well or better than anything else Marvel's ever done. Yeah. But I think narrative matters and pace matters, and this show botches it so hard, it was a real slog for me to get through. I got through it mostly because... I was, you know, I wanted to talk about it on the podcast. I was kind of interested in just seeing it through and, and seeing where they would go with things. And I think it has a great ending, but man, was it tough for me to get there at some points. I mean, I was sitting on the couch down here, and I was really glad I had the Wii U with me because I spent a lot of episodes playing Mario 64 on the gamepad <laughs> while I was watching because I found it so structurally inept. <clears throat> yeah, I think you have more significant flaws with that side of it than I do. Like, I, I mean, can I just go into it a little sure, bit? Sure, yeah, go ahead. Because it's a 13-episode series. And it is a problem with a lot of Netflix shows that Netflix still orders 13-episode series when a lot of cable networks are honestly down to 10. And I think that's not enough episodes for some shows, but it's more than enough for others. And 13 is way too much for Jessica Jones. It's way too much for House of Cards every year on Netflix. It was way too much for Daredevil, I thought, too, even though Daredevil handled it much better. But, like, Jessica Jones is the worst offender at that. And I don't know if it's the show's fault. I think there are things they could have done to mitigate it. But they decided they were going to tell the Kilgrave story and only the Kilgrave story. Yeah. There is nothing else going on in this season. Every other subplot ties into Kilgrave. It is not episodic. Even Daredevil would have some one-off villains and stuff. Or yes, they would yeah. have the episode with Stick or something. Uh, no, there's none of that in Jessica Jones. It is all Kilgrave all the time. And so... You've got to have a really good story if you're going to tell that over 13 hours. And these are long episodes. They're like 50 to 55 minutes a piece. Yeah. None of them go short. They go 50 to 55 minutes. Every one of them is bloated. And virtually the entire supporting cast out of those three characters I mentioned exist solely for narrative function because Kristen Ritter cannot be overworked to the point where she stars in that much television shot in that short amount of time. And this is a problem you see on lots of TV shows as you say in American television, it's just an issue where you have a supporting cast sometimes primarily because you can't have one actor on set all day, every day. Yeah. I think my classic example is like 24 had yes. that like so bad from the very beginning yes. that the supporting characters existed entirely as a way to pad out episodes. Yeah, I mean, and especially near the end where it was Jack and Chloe are the only people you care about. Yeah. And then you have a lot of other subplots where you just, you would learn to tune out for 20 minutes a week because... Obviously, Kiefer Sutherland cannot star in 24 solid hours of TV a year. That's impossible. Yeah. And I think it's the same here. So, like, you have the whole thing with her lawyer, played by Carrie Ann Moss. That was fucking worthless. You go, like, 10 weeks, or 10 episodes, which would be 10 weeks if this were airing yeah. normally, of her dealing with her wife. And it's kind of interesting. Like, I like the fact that we're at a point now, culturally, where we can not just tell gay marriage stories, but we can finally tell a gay divorce story. Exactly. Like, that feels really progressive. And I actually, like, I think the Carrie Ann Moss subplot, the Hogarth subplot, is actually the only one that I enjoyed. Because yeah. I think it's... Because it's, like, a little bit of piece, like, kind of every episode, you get a little bit of it. It doesn't dwell on it too much in the way that, like, I think it would dwell on other subplots for, like, long stretches of time. Instead, it's like, you just, like, dip into it a little bit every time the character pops up. And you just get a little another piece of it. And it's just like a fun, weird little sub-story. It's okay. I liked it through like three episodes. And then it just kind of, for a while, it's every week you go back to Hogarth. And she's like, I need my wife to sign these divorce papers. 
Will she sign them? No, she won't sign them. She wants 70%. Now she wants 90%. Jessica, do something about it. I don't want to do anything about it. Jessica, do something about it. I don't want to do anything about it. And then finally Jessica throws the woman on the train tracks. And then we do three more episodes of she won't sign the divorce papers. I don't want to do anything about it. Blah, 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 blah. But I guess the the reason why I don't have a big problem with it is that those scenes are so small. No, it's not always. Yes. I mean, compared to like when you have like the twins or the drug addict guy who wants to be a social worker like they would have scenes that go on for like five minutes at a stretch where like the Hogarth felt like it was like you get like two minutes an episode that are dedicated to that uh, subplot specifically I guess but anyway um, yeah I mean I I'll think agree. you're exaggerating she's it probably not the worst I think it's one of the more repetitive ones because in terms of where it actually goes that's like uh, an episode of plot that they stretched over 13 and then ends in this way that is like totally horrific and is not reconciled with in any way um, even though I thought it was kind of cool where Kilgrave just says, give her a thousand cuts. That yeah. was, you know, in terms of evil things Kilgrave does, that's a pretty evil one. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so you've got the one with the incest twins, and incest twins are funny at first, and then for some reason, they become central to the narrative crux of the season. And, I mean, you've got that stuff in, I think it's episode 10, where incest sister is mad about incest brother's death. Yes. No, she doesn't know he's dead yet. Okay. So she rallies the entire support group to go attack Jessica Jones, which mm-hmm. lets Kilgrave out solely because they can't let the season end yet, and she's got Kilgrave. Well, I, I think that more serves a character point for Jessica, that the way that Jessica Jones is using these people and manipulating them, and also like refusing to address some of the problems that she has, that like maybe... like. She keeps on rejecting sort of therapy and, and like, like that sort of approach throughout the entire series. But do you, maybe she really... Because she is a deeply, deeply troubled person throughout she, this entire show. She and, is. Do you really think they earned that with that specific plot beat? I think so, yeah. I okay. mean, because that also comes off of her, like, literally torturing Kilgrave and locking him in, like... Which is not an insane way to deal with any of these problems. Like, no, she's, but, it, but it comes from characters who are disconnected from all of that. I mean... Incest, sure. incest, crazy incest sister. I understand she has a legitimate beef because her brother's gone missing. Yes, she because, has like one of the most legitimate beefs of any character. But when you're played a hundred percent comically yeah. up until that point, you can't do that. Yeah, I think I think it's if an it issue were, with if it were the drug addict guy who got angry and did all that, I could buy that. But that's not what they do. He just kind of he has, and he is one of the most frustrating to me because I think that actor does good work, and I think that's such an interesting idea for a character. And he just goes in circles forgiving Jessica yeah. for all these horrible things. And he, there needed to be a point where he broke with her. I mean, she was really fucking up his life and not help, you know, not doing anything about it. Although, except for I think he sort of represents... Because he's the only, like, legitimately straight-up just, like, heroic character in the show. Like, in a sort of a classical sense that he is very selfless. He is always trying to do the right thing. And he's very concerned with doing the right thing for other people and not for himself. And he's kind of the only person that's really doing that. I get that. But, like... Like, I think there are problems with it, like, for sure. Like, I don't think any of those subplots are flawless or amazing. But I think they serve more of a point than you're giving them credit for in general. Okay, but serving a point and being good are two different things. And, like, fitting structurally. Because here's where it really kind of started to... Where I realized I wasn't enjoying the show much is episodes 8 and 9, which everyone said were the best of the season. That's the Which one where that's Kilgrave in that who, where he makes the house for Jessica and she yeah. comes back home, and then nine is is Sinbin where he's he's in the the box and yeah. everything, 
And I think those episodes have a lot of good things. I don't think they're good episodes because I think they are so frayed at the edges of other things going on and, like, just weird narrative turns happening and we keep having to cut away to these other things and I think that breaks the tension. I mean, both of those should be 35-minute bottle episodes and having to cut away to some of the things they have to cut away with there really starts to fray it for me. I think it comes out of some bad plotting in previous episodes and then it goes into some bad plotting. And 8 and 9 feel like we're coming to the climax of the season. But then we have 10, 11, 12, we have four more hours left to go after Sinbin. And it feels like there should be maybe one or two after that of like total narrative like structure. And instead we have to have, we have to get to episode 13. So we are crawling to that finish line. And I think it's episode 12 where like a good, there's a good like 10 minute scene where it is um, the drug addict guy and incest sister trying, like, talking about forgiveness, and he takes her to the bay where they buried his body and all this, and it's like, I don't care. Yeah. You have not earned enough... You have not earned having these two characters alone for a significant portion of the penultimate episode of your season. Yeah. That is just bad plotting to me. I mean, yeah, I, and I think... Like, because I think that, that the... Kilgrave with the house and then the Sinbin episode, I do think that those are the two best... Although, like, it's a weird thing because... Like I said the first time I talked about it, like this show is not structured episodically almost at all. There's like a couple, there's like maybe two episodes that kind of are like that. For the vast majority of them, they are not at all. And it is just like, it's just a 13 hour long movie, basically, is how it's structured, which I think, yeah, it is a big mistake. And I think. Because eight and nine should feel like individual episodes, they should feel like big pillars of the season. And it just kind of all bleeds together for me. But I think that, like, Eight and nine still have so much really interesting stuff, and for me, like by far the most interesting stuff in the whole series, which is getting into, like, actually digging into Kilgrave's character and like who he is and why he is the way he is, which I think is some of the most meaty material that the series has to really go through. And I think like one of the biggest issues is then after that, like that after episode nine, I think that's when the series to me really drags. Especially because then you get, like, that one... I don't remember which episode it is, but there's one episode after that where Kilgrave straight up never appears. Like, he's just not in the episode at all. It's a huge mistake. And it's one of the only episodes in the entire show where he doesn't even make a small appearance. Like, he's literally not in an entire episode. That's also the episode where they storm Jessica's headquarters and the the therapy group is mad and all of that. It's... Yeah, that is a really bad episode. And, yeah, it's just... Because here... There's... And there... I mean... It leads to so many bad narrative decisions, too. Like, uh, the most frustrated I got with the show was episode 7, which is right before you get to that 8 and 9 stuff. Yeah. Where you start with a great scene where Kilgrave comes to Jessica's apartment, Incest Brother is there, and he gets petty and kills the guy. Yeah. As Kilgrave does. Great start to an episode. You're like, what are they going to do with that? Oh, they're going to make the most nonsensical episode of television I've ever seen, where Jessica decides to just leave the body there because she's going to convince a cop that she did it so she can go to a specific prison because for some reason Kilgrave will follow her there. I mean, of course Kilgrave Kilgrave would absolutely follow her there. None of that episode made sense. Not a moment of that episode made sense. She's just got this body stewing in her room, hoping no one's going to smell it and find it or something. And she makes her poor, you know, friend down the hallway who just got off of fucking heroin have to go clean up the body and all this shit. Then she drops the head on a desk. And, the, and then I think that last scene with Kilgrave in the police station is good because David Tennant's really good and Kristen Ritter's really good. But then she just gets to walk out. And, like, there are so many things Jessica does in this season that there are no consequences for in a weird way. And it's you can kind of explain it away with Kilgrave is magical, but it's not satisfying to me. Sure, yeah. I mean, I think 
like a weird thing with that part is that like yes, what she is doing there is stupid and the wrong thing to do, but like also the like that the the drug addict social worker guy is constantly saying this is stupid, this is crazy, this is the wrong thing to do, and she's like like I, Jessica Jones like and you're maybe right in that she's not the sort of like she's no, not an idiot, she's self-destructive, she's not retarded. I mean, that but, I, is, I, it's I, I wouldn't say that she's an idiot. It's more that she's distressed and like so insanely focused on trying to capture Kilgrave and not thinking clearly. It's not that she's an idiot. I guess, but every other, I feel like the best characterization of her in this season is she can be distressed, she can be destructive, and she can make bad decisions. But she has this clarity to her and this detective side of her, and this you know really keen intellect that I think is really interesting to follow. And then it just kind of goes out the window for a week. It's it's bizarre to me, and and I don't know. There's a lot well, of narrative. No, but because she blames herself for the guy's death, which okay. is why she's like kind of she's not thinking clearly. But okay. like, I like I I think again. I think your criticisms are legitimate, but I think you're maybe blowing them out of proportion. It just was really distracting, and I think it, it's a snowball effect for me because then I think a lot of her plans in episode 8 and 9, in part because they don't get kind of fully fleshed out, are stupid too. Like, there's just certain things where I think Jessica is such an interesting character and the weight of what's on her is so heavy that there are certain plot points you need to explore more. Like I thought in episode 8, the most interesting thing in that episode, and I know, I think you agree with me on this, is the idea of, well, Kilgrave could be used for good. Sure, but, theoretically, yes. Theoretically. But, you know, what is this guy? How does this result in evil? Jessica realizing, and us realizing at the same time, of course a guy with these powers could only be a force of evil. And then the question she asks her sister about, you know, well, what if I were to do, you know, the kind of, instead of let's kill Hitler, let's raise Hitler with a Jewish family or something yeah. kind of thing. And it's, it's a weird thing where they give that five minutes of lip service, and then they do a, a very suitably badass ending where she just knocks the fucker out and throws him in a fucking cell. Yeah. Which is cool, but at the same time it's like, well, once you ask that question, just the resounding no, I don't know if that's enough development on that idea for me, especially when you have so much else of this season that is pure and utter filler. Yeah, although I think there's maybe, it's the, there's something about the fact that it doesn't dwell on that question that makes the answer sort of so powerful to me, that like, and so very Jessica, that like, she is not the person to do that she is not in the place to do that and she shouldn't necessarily have to do that like it's not her responsibility to, to, to raise Kilgrave and to keep Kilgrave with her and to keep him good as like whatever that would actually mean because he wouldn't actually believe in anything that he's doing it's like she's the wrong person and there's something interesting about the conversation of like this being a superhero show and Jessica Jones being like in terms of genre the superhero character but she in no way fits that mold. She's in no way that person. She just has these powers and is in this situation. And she's not, she's not Peter Parker. She's not Clark Kent. She's not Bruce Wayne. She is not those like archetypal characters that have that sort of crushing sense of like responsibility that will make them throw everything away and dedicate everything to like save one person. She's much more human than that. Yes, and that's fine. I and I agree with all of that. There are. There are certain points in the season, and I don't even know how to articulate it, just where I thought the writing wasn't up to snuff to a point where I felt like I was extrapolating a lot of interesting ideas out of the show, and I didn't think the show itself was reckoning with them as fully as maybe I would like. And I don't know how else to say that. 
but I feel like there are a lot of interesting ideas here. The further I got into the show and the deeper I got into the show, I thought it was sort of leaving them on the table or just suggesting them rather than dealing with them. Like, I think there's some really interesting stuff in the first three episodes. Cause I just, and I don't know why I'm cutting that off. I don't remember the specific content. I just remember really enjoying, like, up through that. Sure. And um, just where, like, I think there's something they show so well early on of Jessica's just bravery. Of that, in many ways, I think she's like the bravest of the Marvel Cinematic Universe characters so far because she's willingly going back into the ring with this guy who raped her and destroyed her life and made yeah. her a killer. And that is, I can't imagine a braver action than that. I think, I think that's cool about the Netflix series. Is I would say Daredevil and Jessica Jones happen to be the bravest people in the MCU so far. I mean, because they are the most breakable. Like they're they the most breakable and they're incredibly vulnerable people. Yes, and I love that. I think that's a really interesting theme. And then I think there's just certain things like when you get deeper into the season, like. I don't know how I feel completely about the decision that she just magically is immune to Kilgrave now. Because I think it strips out some of those things that are interesting about that and, and the amount of detective work she has to be doing to take this guy down. It makes I think they deal with it really well in the finale, but because they stretch it out over five episodes as an arc, it gets a little weird to me. Yeah. Like she should have discovered that in episode 11 or something, or 12, and not 9, which was weird. But anyway, I don't know. What let's Let's focus on the positive here. Okay. Well, uh, let's talk about Kilgrave, because I think he's the most sort of interesting character to talk about, for me at least, in a lot yeah, of ways. I spent a lot of time, and I still don't know the answer, of wondering if I'm okay with how close David Tennant is playing this to the Tenth Doctor, mm-hmm. or if I feel like they should have gone in a different direction. I think it's kind of brilliant. Yeah. I think he's... You said on the podcast last week that it's kind of funny because he's using the same accent. It's more than that. I mean, he's using similar inflections. He's doing the thing where he says, well... He well, does that. He throws his arms well, out the same way. Well, he kind well, of, yeah, well, and David Tennant does that very well. And he's using some of the same just facial features and kind of the same pouting face when he gets angry. And I think there's something, but obviously it's a very different character because the yes. Tenth Doctor is like one of the nicest and friendliest and just most fun incarnations of that particular character. And this is one of the most sinister characters in the Marvel universe to date. Because he is a rapist, he's a horrible person, he is a manipulator of people. If he's not literally raping you, he is metaphorically raping you. He is doing horrible things to absolutely everyone he encounters. And yet, we have this wrapped up in the package of an incredibly charismatic actor who is turning on the charisma pretty consistently throughout the show. Yeah, And I think I find that really fascinating. And ultimately, I think that's a good choice. I mean, yes, I think it's absolutely. really interesting yeah. because I think there's even something sort of clever and postmodern going on there where you're taking a sort of heroic male archetype and kind of exposing something about male privilege. I mean, that's what he is allegorically, is he's someone who has never had to be told no to. He gets everything handed to him on a silver platter, quite literally. Yeah. And so what else could he become but a monster? And that's something about, you know, obviously white male power in America and in developed countries is uh, not even developed, just in the world as itself. Or, like, just the power of any, like, class of people that yes. is, like, in, like socially advantaged in any way. Yes, exactly. And I think he represents that. And it's interesting, when you finally do meet him, the face he wears isn't monstrous. The, the, the feeling he gives is not monstrous, and yet he is a monster. And I find that really interesting. Because, especially, I think, it's in conversation with Daredevil. There's very few links, but I think I, you can't help yourself but think of Wilson Fisk when yeah. you watch this. Because he's a guy who is also a complex villain, but he's got the monstrous appearance and all of that. And But he has this kind of little kid underneath, you know? Yeah. Whereas I feel like that's kind of the opposite here. Um, 
So yeah, I think David Tennant does great work, and I think he and Kristen Ritter in particular have great chemistry. Not in a like romantic sense, like that you want to see yeah. them. No, no. Like almost the exact opposite. Yeah. No, but they have a, I mean, it is chemistry, though. Things yeah. are going off between them, and I think Kristen Ritter, I love how she refuses to give him an inch in any of those scenes. Yeah. And that's not easy opposite an actor who is exuding that much charisma as David Tennant, you know? Yeah. He, like, and David Tennant is such a big actor, it's easy to swallow a scene. And when he's opposite Kristen Ritter, he doesn't. And that's interesting. I mean, yeah. that speaks to both of those performances. So anyway. Yeah. And for me, like, what I find really interesting about the Kilgrave character, and this is what comes up in, like, episode 8 and episode 9, is that, like, in so many ways, he's, when you learn about his backstory, he is a very tragic character in so many ways because it's when you're faced with the reality of that, like, he has had these powers since he was a child... And that, like, he has no control over the powers. It just happens. Like, it's just, he says something, and people acquiesce to it, no matter what, against their will. And even, like, worse than that, it's not that they just acquiesce against it, against their will. It's that, like, chemically, like, their brain is telling them that they want to, even though there's a part of them that is, like, recognizes that this is sort of supernatural and, like, not naturally what they want to do. But, like, there's a, like, an insane sort of, like, chemical response to it is, I think, what they're kind of trying to get across. And there's something about that idea of, especially when they they do it where they try, they have that one little scene where she tries to have Kilgrave, like, save those people. And he almost tells that guy to shoot his head off. Well, he tells the guy to shoot his head off with the shotgun and stops him. That, like, you realize there is no way for this guy to live a normal life certainly not a normal life but there's also no way for him to be a good person like there is no framework i mean there's no way for him to understand what being good is because there's no way for him to understand what and who like what other people are if they if all they do is acquiesce to you like there's a sort of like almost a psychoanalytic aspect to it of like a lacanian thing of that for him he is his world is in such a childish state that like I think that you can understand that for him, other people aren't distinct. Like, they're not other selves that are inherent and have their own sort of sense of self and and utility and agency. Because to him, they do not. To him, they are just things that respond to his output. And that's all it is. And so it's like, to him, other people can't be people. Like, they simply can't. And I think that that's a... And I wish that they did more with it. And it's the thing that's really frustrating about, like after episodes 8 and 9, especially when Kilgrave is missing for that whole episode, is I think there's a lot more area to explore what that means for that character and for people around that character. That I, And it's sort of thing that I kind of wish that they didn't kill him at the very end of the series and, like, instead maybe stripped him of his power or something like that and, like, kept the door open to explore what that character says and means in more ways because I find, like, that idea so fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I actually... I like the decision to kill him at the end, just within the series they actually made. I think it's the right one. Sure, I get yeah. where you're coming from. Um, my issue with it is, I think all the raw ingredients are there for all of that to come through loud and clear and be powerful, because when I just think of the arc of the season, which is really built around the different beats of where Kilgrave takes things, and what you learn about him, and then just how kind of ruthless he becomes because he's getting into this emotionally unstable territory. Yeah. Um, and again, I think it's got a perfect beginning and ending. I think episode one is easily the best of the whole series because I think it's a really clear, contained story where you get to yeah. the end and 
Hope kills her parents, and you're like, okay, this is where we're going. This is yeah. what we're dealing with. And then I think probably number two would be the finale, because I think the finale, the, the last scene with him and Jessica is perfect. But in between that, you have a lot of good Kilgrave and Jessica moments, and I don't care how good the stuff around it is. The stuff with the lawyer and the stuff with the drug addict and the incest twins could be the best subplots ever. They don't belong in the season because that's not what the story is. Sure, yeah. And it has to be more concentrated. It would be like if you took The Dark Knight did a 10-hour version of it, and in between the Joker doing all these escalations of villainy, you would have, I don't know, Batman's college roommate out trying to get a divorce or something. You would yeah. be like, well, what the... I, we go back to the Joker. That guy's interesting. Go back to Batman. That's what this story's about. And that's not what this show is. And it really frustrates me because it's all so diffuse at a certain point. I think the power of a lot of it doesn't come through. I think this needed to be... Probably, if we're being strict, a six-episode miniseries, probably like a BBC model. Maybe eight, if we're being generous. I think you probably could have done an eight-episode version, like a broad church or something, sure, and done yeah. it right. But 13 is way too much, and 55 minutes an episode is way too much. And it just gets to a point where you get those interesting Kilgrave scenes, and I'm bored from sitting on the couch kind of rolling my eyes through ten minutes of other fluff outside of that. And you get back to it, and it makes a punch... Like at the end of episode 9, and then he's gone. Just he's in the wind for an episode. And they're talking about him, but he's not there, which is weird. So there's no narrative momentum there. So it's stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't disagree with that at all. Like, I have those exact same structural issues, but I just feel like... I felt like every TV show has these fucking structural issues, man. Other there's than, like, some. there's a small handful, like Doctor Who obviously doesn't because it's, like, a totally different scenario... But, like, it's something where, like, people who make TV shows that, like, need to figure this out, like, need to figure but, out what the episodic structure means and what it can do. You're absolutely right, but you don't watch a lot of American TV. It's true, yeah. And I do. And that record I mean, is, the reason why I don't is because that side of it put me off it. For I, so I understand. Yeah. We're cha- it's changing, though, and that's what's yeah, interesting. Yeah. And it does feel like the Netflix model is trying to be cutting edge and is instead just way the hell behind everyone else. Because if you look at, like... I think the turn to 10-episode seasons, which is, is what is what most common on all the cable networks now, is 10-episode seasons. And in some ways, for some shows, that can be bad because you need more than that. Particularly comedies. I don't think you should be doing more than 10 if you're a comedy. I think sometimes you want sure. more than that. If you're a 20-minute-a-week 20 20 comedy, you might want to live with that world a little more. But it's it's been good for Game of Thrones. It's been good for a lot of the shows that kind of went down to that. And then you've got this emerging class of shows on cable like Fargo and The Leftovers and Review on Comedy Central, which is technically a comedy but feels much more akin to a drama. And just a lot of the shows that are going to be on my top ten this year where it doesn't really feel like there's a wasted moment in any of those, but there's still also enough time to do some standalones or to build episodes around themes if you want to. And it's like, you know, okay, ten, it's clear we've got our chapters in our story, but we can still craft individual things. And I just, I feel like that evolution is starting to happen by the new great shows. But then you've got Netflix over here, which is still 13 episodes a season and still pushing for nearly hour-long episodes when there is no reason on earth that there should be a time restriction on any of these. They should be as long or as short as they need to be. And Although, are, like, I think there's maybe something from, like, the creator's point of view that maybe having, like, a more strict, like... Because, obviously, like, the episodes are not all the same length, but they are in, like, a similar window yeah. of length. And then, and knowing like exactly how many episodes you are going to make from the outset, 
like I can imagine from the creator's point of view and from all the people having to make the show, that takes a lot of work off their back in terms of like they know what they need to fill. I totally get that, but why fifty five minutes? Well, like maybe they need like because I think you can do that. Like that could totally work it if de- you know like what you're doing. But it didn't work on this, and it didn't. I think the Daredevil episodes are all too long too. I mean, I would have to go back and look like very specifically, but I didn't get that impression when I was watching them. I just thought every with the ones that were really good. And there are a couple Netflix shows that aren't shaggy like this. Um, they're usually the half hour ones. But I thought this about like when they did Arrested Development and they just let them go for like forty minutes an episode, and they're all really shaggy. And I think this is shaggy. Not uh, Daredevil is not this shaggy, but I think there's some of that. There's only one episode of Daredevil that I thought was particularly like completely tight. Maybe two. I thought episode two was great too. But anyway, yeah. it's like. I don't know. It's just it's a thing that I don't get. And yes, American TV and TV in general has to deal with this of what do you do with episodic TV when the it was created to fill a certain number of weeks in a year. Now it's created to really fill a number of chapters in a story. Yeah. What do we do with that? Yeah, it's it's an issue. And, and I, I think for me, what Jessica Jones needed more than anything else was a built-in structure. And it's because, like, the fucking... It has this built-in structure exists for the character and the comic book, but they didn't use it almost at all except for at the very beginning, was Alias Investigations yeah. and having a built-in mechanic by which you can have an A-plot for an episode that's new for like each episode yes. and a B-plot that develops across. Which, like, you don't necessarily need that for every single episode, but there were definitely parts in the series where if that was a thing, that if, like, you know... How the fuck is Jessica Jones paying for her apartment? You know, like where is she? Like throughout most of the series, she's not doing her job. Like how is she like living? Like how is that happening? Like if you brought that structure in, which is what like I always really like about shows like The X Files or like Doctor Who, is that there's a built-in mechanic by which episodes can have an episodic structure, and if you need to, you can also lay in a larger narrative framework underneath all of that. And for me, I think that's the most interesting approach. Yes, and. Yeah, I mean, again, because when you look at the shows that traditionally did, like, the 13-episode cable-length seasons, that's what they do. Like, Mad Men has that, for instance. It's yeah. 13 episodes a season, but none of it drags, because each se- each episode is its own story, with a light overarching, you know, continuity and all that. Yeah, and I or think... Or The Sopranos, or any of those. They would they have stories for the season, but also episodes are things those characters are dealing with on a day-to-day basis. You don't have Don Draper working on one pitch for 13 episodes. Yeah, and I also think that that's mostly what Daredevil did. It kind of gets away from Daredevil near the end of its run. But I think definitely in the early going, like, each episode was about, like... Him being a superhero and fighting crime, and like for most of like, or him and Foggy having a legal issue. Yeah, exactly. And it was like structured around yeah them getting a case or him like going out and like trying to solve a crime, and that's how it worked. And the reason why that, especially for Daredevil, like worked so well is because it's based off of a comic book where that is how the comic books are written. That it's you have, or at least especially like the old comic books was literally it's like one issue was one story, and there are things. Like for Spider-Man, like Aunt May has been sick for like these five issues, and that's a subplot that's been developing. But like in like the first issue of that sort of subplot, he was fighting the Vulture, and then the next issue was Doctor Octopus, and the next one it was fucking the Molten Man or something. It's like all those are their own stories, but you do have the continuing thread that sort of guides it through underneath. And it is a different case with Jessica Jones because I totally understand the point of view that I would imagine Melissa Rosenberg would offer, which is once you start the Kilgrave stuff, it's probably really tough to do anything else. It's true. And I totally get that, but 
if you're given 13 episodes, I think the best thing to do would probably be, and this is how I understand the Brian Michael Bendis comics do it, is you start with a lot of standalones and you gradually ramp into Kilgrave. You yeah. don't start episode one, he's already there. Because I agree, it would be, I think it would be yeah, he, really weird if just randomly after Sinbin, she gets a new case and has to go do that. That'd be weird. But maybe you didn't have to do that that early in the season. You could have five or six weeks at the beginning of her doing different cases. We get to know her and Luke Cage and all these people through that. Yeah. And then Kilgrave re-enters, and maybe that's the second half arc of the season or something. Yeah. Yeah. Or, like, maybe Hope Schlotman is someone who's... Uh, she's, like, in the background. She's looking for this girl named Hope. And then that's what kicks off the main plot of the series is when the Hope stuff happens. It's a great hook for episode one, but it's really clear by the time you get to episode, like, six or seven... Boy, that shouldn't have been episode one. Yeah, because the th- yeah, because I mean, the thing is that you do when you get to Sinbin, it is like at that point, narratively, like past that, there's no convincing way to like make a a different a plot other than going right. and finding Kilgrave. The solution to that is make that the penultimate episode of your show, basically, right? Which would have been structurally more or less perfect. Like you didn't yes. need that whole gap. Yeah, and again, it's something thirteen episode shows would traditionally do. Even like some of the more narrative heavy Mad Men seasons. Like season three, I remember, which is the one that ends with the firm closing down and opening a new firm. The first five or six episodes of that season are like so standalone. It's basically just a little bit about character relationships. But other than that, they're just some stories. And then you don't even get into like the, the bad things going on in the company until like episode six or seven that year. And it's a very smart thing because if you did it in episode one, it would weigh down everything all the way to 13. So it's just, it's, a, it's like a key like pacing mistake they made at the very beginning that I understand, because the other thing is it might be hard to get a guy like David Tennant if you can't give him 13 episodes of work. I get that. Yeah. But, I don't know, it's, it's imperfect. And it's also like Kilgrave isn't someone you can build into a clear B-plot like you could with Wilson Fisk. Like, that's one of the master strokes of Daredevil. Yeah. Is that you could allow the episodes to run as long as they did and have basically one overarching plot for the whole season even though as you say there are some episodic things but even then it's mostly about Daredevil and Wilson Fisk yeah but you can have Wilson Fisk be half the episode because he's that kind of character you couldn't do that with Kilgrave he's too toxic and he's too out there you know yeah like it would be weird if you had a lot of Kilgrave scenes away from Jessica it just wouldn't kind of feel right yeah but it's perfectly interesting to have Wilson Fisk away from Daredevil so it's just different characters and different approaches but yeah it is something where I think when you have this episodic format, it is very important to understand, like, to take advantage of it and not just have it be just what it is. Like, there's, there is a real strength that you can gain from having your story be structured in that way. Yes. And because it's the only way, in my opinion, to make long-form storytelling work is to compartmentalize it. And like, like, create distinct sections with distinct themes and distinct, like, closed, like, beginnings and endings that all, like, have a cumulative impact that add up to create, like, the overall effect of long form story. And it yes. doesn't matter if you're writing a 100 hour, like, JRPG, like, Persona 4, or if you're writing, like, a 13 hour miniseries or a thousand page novel. If you're not structuring your story like that way to have, like, small stories within it, you're going to lose the attention of the people because it's just going to be, there's going to be too much fluff. It's, it's, you need to, if you want to have the story feel lean and also be, have it be long, you have to tell small lean stories within the overall longer story. Absolutely. And I think, I was just thinking about this because you talked about, kind of leveled something in American TV. I really do think they're getting so much, 
I mean, I think you have the early 2000s cable dramas that nailed it, and then I think the responses to those, which are probably what you're talking about, that got a little bloated. Yeah. And I think we're at a point, like, I'm just looking at, I had to pull this up, like, my top ten rough for the season, and I've got, like, 30 shows on here. And I'm just looking at them, and it does feel like we're in a renaissance for people figuring out episodic storytelling. Yeah. Doctor Who is a different thing. It's British, but this was a renaissance for Doctor Who, obviously. But, like, uh, Fargo, I mentioned, Hannibal is a great example of that, and I think how they handled seeing things this season. There were a couple of pacing snafus but here and there but overall I mean that's one especially if you look at how they did the Red Dragon arc and taking a pretty lean book and doing six individual episodes about it um, Better Call Saul which I think improved on the pace of Breaking Bad where Breaking Bad in some of its seasons absolutely had a supporting yeah, cast that I don't know what definitely. they were, that, and I think Breaking Bad got figured that out by the very end and the last season is their best because of it but Better Call Saul has a smaller cast and more focus and is better for it um the Leftovers on HBO is, I've talked about that before, great. Mad Men, which is going out the door. Parks and Rec going out the door. Doing it great. And Review on Comedy Central, which is brilliant in its own way in figuring out how to tell an episodic story in the year 2015. So, I think it can be done. It just That's why Jessica Jones, if anything, feels a little whiplashy to me. is because yeah. I haven't seen the pace botched this way in a while. For me, at least, in what I watch. Yeah. So, But I think I, I, I do want to end the discussion by just like saying again that at the very least even with the flaws that it has that we both recognize like the show does something that I've never seen any other show like the, the issues it tackles and the ways it tackles them I've never seen another show really do no and can I praise one specific thing sure go. the, the yeah. ending is so good I have sure, to talk yeah, about yeah. that because when she they go into the train station first and it's Trish there which is a cool twist yeah. and she's got the headphones it's like finally someone thought to use headphones great and uh, then, but then my one question is that she's wearing Beats, and I'm like, wouldn't you spring for like Bose noise canceling at that point if you're going in? Yeah, and it seems like it's maybe you're like risking your life a little bit on like getting shitty. Yeah, yeah <laughs> that was my only distraction. Anyway, and then, uh, but they, then that whole scene at the docks where Kilgrave is ordering all those people to kill each other, and Jessica just follows his command to stand there, and she just stands. Yeah. Until Kilgrave goes through like the five stages of grief. Back to happiness. Yeah. It's amazing. And I think David Tennant's performance there is so good because it, it like, in one fell swoop kind of connects all the disparate parts of this character. Yeah. Where he's really just kind of a pathetic kid who doesn't know quite what he wants or how to get it because he's had it all handed to him. And yeah. the one thing he wants, he's ruined without realizing it. Yeah. And so he's threatening Trish and he's doing all these awful things. And again, this is one of the most heroic things I've ever seen a Marvel character do of Jessica just standing there and waiting for her chance. And then he finally kind of has the breakthrough, realizes he's made her do it and he says smile and she gives the creepiest smile in the world and he says, tell me you love me. And she looks at Trish specifically because they set that up earlier in the episode and says, I love you. And that's how Trish knows she's okay. Yeah. And then snaps his neck. And I think killing him is actually... For the themes of the season, if your theme with Kilgrave is this is a guy who cannot exist in this world without being bad, it's it feels like a mercy at that point. Like, this is the nicest thing she can do for Kilgrave, and that's part of what is the complicated factor of that ending to me. Yeah. And then I think going on past that and having her at Alias Investigations and getting calls and maybe being a hero now, really good ending. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's like the one thing I, like... And it's just something like that I think carries over from my fandom from comic books that I don't like when comic book characters are killed in a way that's like, he's fucking dead. Like, if they try to bring him back, that would be pretty lame. Because there's, like, the characters are so colorful and interesting and there's always so much room to explore them still that, like, I kind of wish that, like like I said, like, did something where, because there's, there's a billion opportunities in the series they could have done it, 
developed a way that like they figured out, oh, if we inject him with this, he loses his powers, and so the character can still be around in some capacity for like yeah. potential future storylines, but who knows like how long the show might go on. Well, and the other thing is, I really doubt David Tennant would have signed on for That's more than true. one of these. Yeah. I mean, he is legitimately, I think, the best actor they've ever gotten for a Marvel villain. Probably, and yeah. getting him for a full season as they did alone is pretty cool. Um, and he's great here. But yeah, it would be tough to keep him around. And the other thing is, one thing I really respect about the Jessica Jones TV series is it's like the first Marvel thing that's not about a MacGuffin. It's not about sure, some cosmic yeah. doodad that they have to go find. And I think if they had done the serum thing, I would have been feeling it's a little doodaddy. It's, she's got the magical serum and she's got a... Like, I just... I so, like... I just, for me, it's like the, the idea of... Kilgrave, that character, like losing his powers, is so fascinating to me because it's like, is this the other place to take that character now? Is when you have had all that power and you have lived your whole life in this weird, like, Lacanian real state. What does it mean when that is all taken away from you? And maybe that, maybe the comics do that at some point. I don't know. I find that like such an enticing storyline that I, it's why I don't like it when they kill off characters because. Cuts off those potential storylines. I totally 100% get that. I did feel like for the level of grittiness and realism they devoted this show to, that the, the death felt like the most honest thing. Sure, like yeah. It felt like the thing Jessica would do. I almost feel like if Jessica Jones were offered the serum thing, the Jessica Jones played by Kristen Ritter would tell that person to go fuck themselves. Probably, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, the other thing we haven't praised yet, okay. Luke Cage. Yes. He's kind of minor in the overall scheme of things because he's only there at the beginning and end. Yeah. But... The best stuff is with him. Like, I really yeah. think that middle section drags in part because he's gone and that chemistry between him and Kristen Ritter is so key mm -hmm. and so interesting. And obviously he has to leave because I think it is a very powerful scene where she finally comes clean and I'm glad that they didn't drag it out longer than they had to. Yeah. And, and Luke is understandably very freaked out by this. And then when he comes back later, I think there's some good stuff. Um so I can't wait for the that yeah. Luke Cage show. Yeah, I'm really excited for the show because yeah, yeah. I mean, it's nice to also because again, like Jessica Jones and Luke Cage have so much history in the comics that it's. I think it's cool that they they did this where you get a preview of who Luke Cage is, and it also just like establishes that okay, good. Like the TV version of these characters have like the kind of chemistry that they need to have for them to have those relationships. Yes, and I don't feel like I need a second season of Jessica Jones anytime soon the way I did with Daredevil. Yeah, no, no. I don't even know what you would really do with it, but I hope she's in the Luke Cage show as much as Luke Cage was here because yeah. I, that's you could do more with Alias, for instance, just on that show. Like Luke goes and be like, I need you to find this thing or something. So yeah. Yeah. And I know they're shooting that right, or they, I think they just finished shooting Luke Cage, so it should be here soon-ish. I don't know how they're going to pace that with Daredevil Season 2 also just wrapping production. Right. So we'll see how those come out. But yeah. yeah, Daredevil I, Season 2, by the way, sounds good. Yeah. yeah. Got Punisher and Elektra and all that. Speaking of Daredevil, I kind of wish that we had gotten a more substantial character yes. cameo from Daredevil. I mean, it was cool to have Rosario Dawson as Claire Temple back as like the nurse character. Like, what if end. after she finally reasonably got rid of Hogarth as her lawyer she went to like Foggy and Nelson yeah because there's like it was just something where we were getting near the end of the series and I was just kind of expecting there to be at least one cameo and again there is like Rosario doesn't like obviously she's not like one of the main characters from Daredevil but she's there and she will be in Luke Cage because she's a more character more important character for Luke Cage anyways but like there's so much opportunity to have like Matt and Foggy pop in, or, like, Daredevil, like, I mean, if they had done, like, a more episodic structure, there would have been a lot of opportunity for, like, Daredevil to show up and, like, have an episode where he helps Jessica solve a case or something like that. And I was also a little distracted when Claire Temple comes in, and 
sort of mentions Daredevil and Kristen Ritter doesn't catch on to that because of course Jessica would have heard of Daredevil. If, yeah, because they both she lives in Hell's Kitchen. And so. he's like a huge news item. Yeah. Uh, assuming the continuity is the same. I don't know when this happens in relation to Daredevil. But yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's like it's not a problem. It probably is also something like a scheduling thing at some point for a lot yes. of the actors. But Well, because they were shooting, they went into production so quick on Daredevil season two because season one was such a hit. Um, yeah, it might have been tough. Yeah, but, yeah. but like... Just a little bit of a missed opportunity. It's it like there's like, so much, there was so much potential with all the lawyer shit. That's like, how do you just not have just a small scene where at least foggy? If you can't get fucking Matt, like at least yeah. foggy. Yeah, like if they had cut into the room after she kills Kilgrave, and didn't I would not have hired Hogarth if I were Jessica in that scene no. anyway. It made no sense. So if it had been just foggy there out of the blue, you would have been like, yes. Yeah, because it's like because again, it's what. The, the Netflix or the Marvel series have done so well is that like the important characters they fucking nail so much that when you think about like like what like for instance like what would it be like if Daredevil had to fight Kilgrave like that's an interesting question or like vice versa if Jessica Jones like was in a weird scenario where she was like involved in like kingpin crime stuff or like how like if like fucking Jessica Jones is has been arrested and then Foggy Nelson walks into the room like, how does that conversation go? And yeah. it's like it's like the imagination just jumps at, at those scenarios. Absolutely. That you really wish that they could have like gotten a little bit of that. Well, I think at the very least, The Defenders is going to be a good series. Yeah. Really? They still haven't cast Iron Fist. I'm super curious about that. Because yeah. I would imagine we'll see him in Luke Cage. Probably, yeah. It would make a lot of so sense. So maybe they have cast him and they just haven't announced it yet. I don't know. Yeah, anyway. But, uh, yes. So that's Jessica Jones. And the one thing I think I need to mention at the end, that it does better than Daredevil, better theme song. Sure, yeah. Because I don't really like the Daredevil opening credits. I love the Jessica Jones ones. Yeah, I only ended up seeing them like three times because no, Netflix does that thing where it automatically skips. Yeah. Which is very troubling for some TV shows you watch where they have cold opens and it just skips over the cold open and goes to the end of the theme song. I wish Netflix was maybe a little smarter about how it did that thing. I, I'm also like just fine fast forwarding, so I wish it didn't do it. Ever. Yeah. <laughs> but I get it. Um, yeah, no, I think because it uses basically the artwork from the comics and it's really cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So anyway... That's Jessica Jones. Fuck all of that. Sure, Doctor yeah. Who. I don't care about anything else. Doctor Who is so good. Yeah, let's talk about, like, like talking about, like, episodic storytelling and, right. and series that, yeah, like, fucking nail it. Holy shit, this season of Doctor Who. Holy shit, this season of Doctor Who. I finished the finale yesterday, and I had other work to do, and I literally could not think about anything else. It was so powerful to me. And then today, I really couldn't think about anything else, and then we just wound up watching the finale again. Yeah. Uh, I really, I mean, man, I don't even... Let's start just with the finale, and then okay, we're going to yeah. get into a lot of big Series 9 stuff. But, yes, I mean, to recap our thoughts on this season up to now, it's practically perfect. There was that one down episode yeah, of Sleep, Sleep No, no More. More. But Heaven Sent was a high point, not just for this season, but probably for Modern Who as a whole. One of the high points for, for Doctor, Doctor Who, Who history. Yeah, yeah. And, one, how do you follow that up? And two, if you're Stephen Moffat and you've got kind of a rocky track record with finales what do you do and how is this going to work and sean how do you think he did wrapping this great season up i mean he completely fucking nailed it and in kind of every way imaginable and kind of an insane way that i still don't because like you i've watched it twice now and i still don't fully understand how he managed to do what he did narratively which where he manages to give clara both the the like tragic and happy version of of like that character's ending and also managed to like make that a metaphor for like the completion of the doctor's character arc 
from heaven sent with his like the, the the culmination of his grieving process. Like I still don't understand how he managed to do that. Really, I I will say this. I think there was and and Hellbent. I don't think is the best episode of the season because Heaven no, Sent yeah. exists. It's definitely number two for me though, and that's because I think it sh- does such a good job with the themes and shines a light back on all of series nine that makes me immediately want to rewatch the whole thing and adds extra poignancy to all of it. And what I think Hellbent does is it reveals what the main idea that this season was built on really is about death and transience, and transience specifically, and whether or not... And there's a great old Freud piece I I quote in a lot of what I write called On Transience, where Freud talked about um, after World War I and a lot of people being very despondent about the transience of the world and that there is death and feeling like there was no reason to have any vitality for life if life was going to end in the way, obviously, it did en masse in World War I. Yeah. And, and Freud trying to say, no, transience makes the world beautiful. The fact that something is going to end is what gives it meaning and all these things. And I think that's the main idea this season of Doctor Who was built on. Yeah. And it's why you have the discussions of immortality in that first half of the season. And it's why you have the Doctor in such crisis because he's being faced with not his own mortality necessarily, but with everything that matters to him. And then with Clara dying, you get to have both the sad version of Clara's death like these cripplingly sad yeah. and then also this just beautiful soaring exit for her because it's always the two of them and I think that's yeah. the message of Hellbent and it's there's this great moment where the doctor at the end he walks out he meets Ashilda again and she says it's beautiful and it's sad, and it's sad about, yeah. about the stars he says no it's just sad and she says how can you not realize that yet and you realize that's his blind spot the whole season is he can't reconcile as none of us can because he is very human even though he's a time lord those two sides of life, which is that death is both sad and beautiful, and it's always those two, and you can't reconcile them. And so I think people talking about After Hellbent, whether or not it reduces the ending of Face the Raven, are so missing the yeah, point. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's about both of them. And it has to be about both of them, because if you've ever lost someone, it is those two things. And I feel like that's why this season was so good. Because I've joked, like, did Stephen Moffat go attain enlightenment in between 8 and 9? Yeah. And no, I just think he looked at season 9 and he had an idea and he built a season out of it. And it's the most organic, creative thing you can do. And I look at it now and it feels like such an authorial whole, even though it is episodic. Yeah. Because it's all riffing on a theme. And the way that theme comes to play in Hellbent is beyond powerful to me. Yeah, and it's something where, like, in particular with Hellbent, because I've, like, seen some... There's definitely, like... Not like an overwhelming, but there is a significant reaction from the fans, a certain section of the fans that feel like it, like bringing Clara back is a cop-out in some way. But I feel like there are, there are a couple of very key scenes, and you pointed out one of them with uh, when he comes out with the shielder at the end of the universe. And then the last scene in the diner, where it's some of the most skillful and sort of intricate dialogue that Stephen Moffat has ever written, that like those scenes deserve, like, a real close reading. Yes. Because, like, every single line, basically he's saying, like, five different things at the same time. And that, like, there's a lot of different layers that this is dealing with, that there is, like, there is the, the surface, like, what is literally happening layer, which I think is what a lot of people are focusing on. But there's, like, the... There's everything about, like, the subtext of everything that is going on with using the science fiction sort of like veneer that you are given and the narrative mechanics that that makes it possible of having the simultaneously that like Clara is alive and she's dead it's like and she has this sort of like triumphant almost sort of like heaven like ending for her character but at the same time she is dead and like 
And I absolutely do not think that the character's coming back. Anyone who thinks that, like, this ending is indicating that, like, Clara's going to come back in the future and that's why it ended this way, I think is completely missing the point. Because Clara is dead. Like, we saw her die and face the Raven. That happened. That will happen for the character. And that's the point of the ending. Yeah. She is headed there one way or another, as we all are. Yeah, and that, like... But even beyond that, like... She literally, like, we have seen her die, and that moment of her death is the moment of her death, and that has not changed. Like, that is, that is fixed, that happened, like, it's over, she is dead. And, like, if she comes back in some way, she comes back in the way that every Doctor Who character could come back, because it's a fucking time travel show. Like, you could always bring a character back, if you wanted to. For a time travel show, death can be transient you can, if you, you really want it to. You bring other doctors back. I yeah, mean. exactly. Like, you can break those rules, but that's not what's going to happen here because that's not what the themes are telling you. That, like, the state that Clara exits in is in, like, this... Like you said, it's both it's beautiful and it's sad. It's that she, she gets to live on as a story and she, like, has her tragic actual moment of death. And the doctor has to, like, deal with with all of that and deal with losing those memories but also sort of like knowing that that she's still out there you know like there's yes like it speaks to like again it's a it's the culmination of what heaven sent was setting up with him dealing with the grief in that way and this is him learning how to actually finally move on and then at the very end that's what happens is that he moves on with his life as everyone has to when you deal with something like that eventually you forget all those details and eventually like it doesn't like Occupy your thoughts every second of every single day, and you move on with your life because that's what happens. And and look, it's hard. It's a hard episode to get your head yeah, around. Yeah, definitely. And you know, I was texting with my brother last night because he watched it, and um, you know, just said, "Man, it's so." He loved it, but he was like, "It's so sad." The poor doctor not remembering Clara. And absolutely, that's totally a reaction you should have. But I was just trying to say, it's sad, but it's also so beautiful because she's gone, but everything she was still lives inside him. Yeah. And that's the whole idea. That's why it's not just that he's playing her theme on the guitar. It says something so much more than just... that Because that could be gimmicky, and it's not. Because no, yeah. he is fueling his feelings for her through this thing that is like his other arm, as has been established through this season. He loves that guitar. He loves yeah. just playing around with it. And it's part of his subconscious and always will be. And I don't know if you can give a companion a better exit than that because there are a lot of companions who I think the Doctor, they leave the TARDIS and he never thinks of them again. Yeah. I think that happens. I don't think he's thinking about Martha much anymore. (laughs) Yeah, no. You know? Most people aren't really. But I think they do it in such a way where Clara will always be there inside him in some way. And yeah, it's sad that he can't remember her face, but what is more beautiful than her living on in his guitar playing? Yeah, exactly. Like she, like... It's because it's not about, like, the specific memories. It's about that, like, your experiences with that person changed you. And, like, that's... That can't go away. Like, even if he lost all of his memories, like, that would still be a part of him now. There's so many, you know, different kinds of stories about loss. And I think there's different stages of it. There's the story you tell when it's raw. And there's the story you tell when it's recent. And there's the story you tell when it's mature. And somehow Doctor Who told all of them this year and it ended on the mature note yeah and I don't know with my own losses in life if I can say I'm on the mature note but I do feel what Stephen Moffat's writing about here where I think when it's raw you have that fear and that's what heaven sent us about that they're not there anymore and you'll never talk to them again and what are you without them and what can you be without them but then you find out life does go on and you are something without them but that doesn't mean they leave yeah and I think that's what hell bent is about in the end and it is so interesting that this season could really encapsulate 
a really big arc about loss. And I don't think it's just these last three episodes. I think the whole season no, about yeah. it. Um, I think every episode in some way except Sleep No More, which is this just kind of weird extra. You can almost treat it as a bonus episode this yeah. year because it has nothing to do with anything else. And that's fine. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it is... If anything, it's just, it just feels like this was Stephen Moffat writing about something that he has thought about an awful lot. And I don't know what's happened in his life, but clearly he's thought about it. And I, and I think the people who have acted in this show this year have thought about it and directed and, and Murray Gold writing the music have thought about it. And no, it's, it's like it's a fundamental human experience is. at some it point. Is. Like, it would be pretty extraordinary if you managed to live to be, like, any sort of reasonable age and didn't have someone close to you die at some point. Right, but that's different than really pondering it in the artistic sure. sense that they are here. And I... Cause well, I... Just, I, I I think it's kind of impossible for it to have that happen to you and not ponder it in that sense. Yeah. Like, again, it's a fundamental human experience. It is, but it's it's not always done this well. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a difference between pondering it and having, like, the, the skill to yes. demonstrate it. Yeah. yeah. So, all right, where, I mean, we should probably start at the beginning with Hellbent. Sure. Yeah. Because there are so many ways you could tackle this episode. We're primarily talking about the end of it. Yeah. But, I mean, everything up to that is great. Because, especially watching it a second time, I realized... It's not just like the first 15 minutes that have a Western feel. There's very much a Western kind of structure imposed on the episode. I think the whole thing of starting with him in the diner, talking to Clara, and we don't exactly know what the equation is there, is brilliant. And having it be about storytelling, because that's a theme that comes through at the end. And it's another Moffat pet theme that is done better here than ever before, which I love. It's very, like, it it echoes of a lot of stuff from the end of season five, definitely, with, like, the Doctor becoming a story. And very poignantly, I think. Um... But yeah, so yeah, I think the opening is great, and if you haven't watched Hellbent a second time, you totally should, because same as with Heaven Sent, which we both watched for a second time this week, Yeah, there's so many things that are in that episode that don't resonate as powerfully unless you know what's coming, Yeah, and particularly if you look at those scenes in the diner a second time, Capaldi and Coleman are playing it just right, yes. because she knows and he doesn't, and you yeah, don't and feel... Yeah, and, and I feel like your default assumption is the other, yes. like, like even when you don't necessarily have a reason at the very very beginning to assume that the doctor knows the position of the character of the doctor yeah. makes you just like naturally assume well of course he's the one who actually knows everything that's going on and clara is not yeah no i mean they're it's, playing it at the end and it's so beautifully done uh so poignant yeah. but then you go back to gallifrey and yeah they fuck yeah in those 10 minutes doctor who does a better western episode than they ever have yeah i mean and it's just like every i mean the best part about all of that, I think, is just the fact that Peter Capaldi doesn't talk for, like, yeah. until uh, Rassilon shows up. And it, it's just fucking pitch perfect. And again, it's something where if you go back to A Town Called Mercy, which is obviously, like, that's the, like, the thing to compare it to. Because comparing it to Gunslingers from the first Doctor era would be a little bit bizarre to try to do now. But, like, A Town Called Mercy paid a lot of lip service to the idea of what a Western was. And that episode's not terrible. But it it's got not the veneer right, but it didn't yeah. get the substance it, right. It got the, like, general aesthetic of it. But, like, this is, like, there's nothing about it that's, like, because it's not set in an old West American town with people with fucking six-shooters and, like, fucking cowboy hats and, like, long leather dusters on and stuff like that. It doesn't have any of that stuff. There's no, like, swinging saloon doors. That's not... Because, like... That just happens to be what would like what existed in the time period that you reference when you make a western. This is like it's just this is just as much a western as it is a samurai movie because those two genres share the same DNA. Is that it's about him being it's this lone character that you think is he's basically the hero, but he's the hero kind of in an uncomfortable way. Yes. He's very scary, and he's not saying anything. He's very intimidating, very imposing, and he takes shit from no one. It's like, and it's that sort of aesthetic, and like the bleak, 
barren sort of like desert wasteland sort of aspect of it it's like it captures that and that's what the western is about it's like it's about that like thematically and artistically and it's not about the little trinkets and stuff and like the the cling clang of the spurs on your boots like that's not what a western is no and there is so much that is suggested about Gallifrey in those ten minutes that another yes. thing I think people are missing in reactions to Hellbent where they're saying, oh, they didn't really capitalize on the Gallifrey stuff. For this story, they did. Because yeah. one of the things I love is you get a little bit about like Gallifrey and class systems just in those ten minutes mm-hmm. where the Doctor, as in many Westerns or samurai movies, he's clearly aligning himself with the peasants, yeah. with the outcast, with the kind of disenfranchised. And... He has drawn that line in the sand, quite literally, yeah. and he's waiting until he can kick out kind of the oppressors. And it's this great, as you say, samurai slash western story that is told within ten minutes. Yeah. And then he talks, and we get on to the next part of it. But it doesn't feel like a separate part of the episode to me. It's the necessary first step in the larger story. Yeah, because it sets up so much about like where the Doctor is right yes. now and like his mindset after Heaven Sent. But then it's also just like, like fucking man... I had no idea I wanted Peter Capaldi to be in a Western so much. Like, I didn't realize that that was something he could do so well, but he fucking nails it. Like, he is so good. He is so fucking good because it's such a specific thing. And so few actors have that quality that, like, Toshiro Mifune has or, like, Clint Eastwood has. It's like... Just being able to convey so much with saying nothing. That, like, you can watch this dude just walk into a room and, like, go up a flight of stairs. And it, like, says everything about everything in the scene. Yes. Which is what you need for that kind of story. Oh, I mean, it's like, I, we've talked before about every episode this season has been a different challenge for Peter Capaldi. And yeah. we're on 12 for 12 with that. Because this one is, alright, last week, Peter, you s- talked solid for 55 minutes. Yeah. Now, let's be silent for 10 and have you command rooms of, like, 30 people. Yeah. And he totally does it. Yeah. 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 Would, we've, had, we've had American Westerns. We've had Spaghetti Westerns. I want our Scottish Westerns. Exactly. Because it's the... And it's, it's something where... Like, if he was actually, like, cast in a Western, we'd have to maybe do something about the accent. But maybe not. Like, maybe he would, like, be able to sell that. It would be a little strange. But oh, he could do... Is there anything he can't do, Sean? I've, after this season, no. I don't think so. Let's think in this episode, the amount of different... Things he has to play. Yeah. He has to be the goofball a little bit. He has to be the Western hero. He has to be the broken hearted, memory lost guy. Yeah. He has to be raging against fate. Yeah. And he, he has, has to be sadly playing the guitar. Yeah, the, the, the guitar playing drifter. Yeah. yeah it's. And, and there is like a. Like going back to the, the Gallifrey stuff a little bit. The thing that I really like about it is that one, I do like that this episode just sort of like puts Gallifrey back into the conversation in a legitimate way that it can be revisited in the future for the series and not have to be a big fucking deal if we revisit it. And I think that's a smart place because it's there's no reason for it to be off limits. And I don't want like an entire season set on Gallifrey or something like that because again, classic who overused Gallifrey at a certain point and lost track of what was interesting about it. But there are a lot of things that are really interesting about exploring Gallifrey that we haven't gotten into that deep. And there's something I love how artfully this episode does. Because again, it goes for like almost all of like the major Gallifrey stuff has no real dialogue associated with it other than the Matrix section. But like all that him like out in the the, the Badlands and stuff, there's basically no dialogue whatsoever, but it conveys so much. Like it's such an evocative session section of the episode that it tells you so much about Time Lord society and like what life is like on Gallifrey 
in, in so many ways and what like has happened to Gallifrey since Time War and all that with doing so little and that's exactly what you want because I think if you get too deep into Gallifrey it then just kind of turns into techno babble nonsense too much and like gets very stuffy and pretentious whereas like if you just sort of like skate on it a little bit and sort of just like touch it and like give you like a little bit that allows you to interpret a lot which this episode does in a lot of different places very skillfully that's where you want Gallifrey to be at for me because that's what the Deadly Assassin did so well absolutely and yeah Stephen Moffat just got it here which is we're not going to go so deep it alienates people like I knew none of what they were talking about with the Matrix and all that yeah. stuff but you don't need to because it's not what's it's a important. computer made of ghosts guarded by more ghosts yes well I got that but, like, you know, it's important to the Doctor, and it's the stuff that gets us where we need to go. Yeah. But I like that it felt like a fully fleshed out culture, but we weren't drowning in it. That's yeah. the important part. And, yes, and one more thing about the whole desert section. Mm-hmm. They've gotten a lot of mileage now out of that set they built for the 50th special. Yeah, the barn. That barn you had no, great. It's like you had no idea that this was ever going to become a thing, but it's popped up ever since, like, in every season since yeah. the 50th anniversary. Because I just rewatched the 50th special. It's a great set in yeah. that. It's really what good, well used in Listen, and it's used better than ever in this one yeah like it is such a great western setting and like god that fucking shot when he's at the top of love like it, the, where the cot is and the woman's there and the camera pans and it's like the the, the wooden beam moves a bit like to reveal his face it's like yep. so fucking good it's so, so fu- good so fucking good and you understand why she without having seen this face would know who it is yeah yeah, yeah. And, it, and it's like in there like it, it reminds me that like the Rachel Talalay again is the director for this episode that she was the director for Heaven Sent and like holy shit she has got some serious chops because like yeah. this because this episode also like has to do so much else like there's a lot this is a very diverse episode in terms of like locations and sort of styles it moves through in it a lot of different ways but she's able to nail all of them and in particular like I said like it's it's the little touches of stuff like how that shot is used of the camera moving and him standing at the top and revealing his face like that. It's such an artful touch that evokes so much that that goes back to how the sort of spaghetti westerns were shot. Yes. It's like she absolutely nails it. No, really I, these are the two best episodes, best directed episodes of Doctor Who ever. Yeah. But hands yeah. down. And yeah, I it's and all this whole season has been fantastically directed. I think everyone pulled their weight. Yeah. But Rachel Talalay, yes, she found another level. I mean, Hellbent has probably visually my favorite scene of the season, which is the one at the end of the universe. Right, and yeah. it's not just the, the set they built, it's the way it's lit and shot, and again, how she chooses angles. It's just fucking gorgeous. Yeah. And evocative. Just the kind of stuff that you rarely see on TV, let alone Doctor Who, which, you know, historically is kind of a seat of its pants production. You know? yeah. yeah, but like when I'm talking about like how well like the episode nails the western thing like it is mostly due to her direction yes, that absolutely. like it nails it that's like well, who no, I'm truly complimenting there her and Peter Capaldi's acting absolutely because Stephen Moffat on the page you know I imagine that's a couple paragraphs and then they make it into this it just sings but silently yeah. it's all yeah so well done and then you get into basically this is a three act episode you have the first 20 minutes on Gallifrey then you have the 20 minutes when he gets Clara back yeah. and then the last Matrix. 20 when they're in the TARDIS and yeah. on to the end and each one of them works so well. But that first part where, I mean, the Doctor just starts kind of kicking ass and taking names without doing anything in particular. Yeah, like, that's just, like, all that... Just the idea of that section where he just keeps on going back in and, like, yep. 
doesn't say anything, and like the higher ranking people come out, he goes back in and just like until fucking Rassilon himself shows up because the doctor's not going to have a conversation with anyone other than who's in charge. And he says, "Get off my planet! Yeah. Get off my planet! Great!" And you 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 wait ten minutes so he can deliver that line and yeah. make it great. It's and it is a really good line for him to come in on. It's yeah. like this is the doctor that fucking means business. Yep, and. You know, we also get a good feeling of who the war doctor was in this one. Yeah. And what the doctor was during the war because you get, you know, what was he in Gallifreyan culture to them at that? Yeah. And if you haven't watched the 50th special recently, it's worth watching again if you liked Hellbent just to shed some extra light on things. Yeah. And I think, I continue to think, John Hurt is fantastic in that yeah, episode. definitely. And if they ever, you know, I know he's doing some stuff for Big Finish and I really look forward to that because I think that's a character worth exploring. But Peter Capaldi, in ten minutes, tells you more about the War Doctor than John Hurt was allowed to within that structure yeah. in a whole 75-minute special. Um, because you just get this sense of the absolute respect, fear, and admiration all commingled that everyone on Gallifrey has for this guy. Yeah. And I love just the whole sequence where they're laying down their guns, and then the general finally does it and says to the president, Get off his planet. <laughs> or, with all due respect, sir, yeah. get off his planet. And... Yeah, I mean, you, you get... I can see Peter Capaldi in the Time War just as easily as, you know, John Hurt. Yeah, because there is something about, like, that firing squad scene where I just... I love that the line where it's, he says, like, the first thing you notice about the Doctor is that he's unarmed and it's usually the last thing you notice, too. And it is something... It's such a it's such a Doctor Who thing. It's one of the things that makes the Doctor such a unique and interesting and compelling character is that he doesn't carry weapons because he doesn't need them and he doesn't believe in them. And it's like... And it's it's just such an interesting thing where usually it makes him see, feel so vulnerable, but in that scene it's twisted so much of it's like, no, like he doesn't need the weapons. Like that's not that's not how this works for him. Yes. So I love that whole side of it. I love how Gallifrey just kind of rallies around him. They kind of trust him. Yeah. And uh, but... because he was, I think it's important to remember. I think this it's a they never say it, but I think it's a valuable bit of context if you've seen classic Doctor Who is that technically. The Doctor was Lord President of Gallifrey. He was elected Lord President of Gallifrey when he was Tom Baker and continued to be so when he was Peter Davison. I don't remember. I think they revoked it by the time the Sixth Doctor came around with the trial. But, like, you get a bit of that of, like, he, like, for a while he has been someone who is important to Gallifrey in that sort of sense. And how he got elected was sort of a, you know, it was a Tom Baker episode, so it was a bit of a fluke. But it's a... <laughs> It, 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 there's something about that that I think is conveyed here. That's It's an interesting detail from Classic Who that I think if you know that, it adds a little bit of a wrinkle to it of the, like why people are acting this way. And there's also only one line about the end of the Time War, but you do get a sense that all these people know what he did for them in the 50th. Yeah. And and after that, and so I like that. There's a lot of acknowledgement of continuity, but very subtly. Yeah, it's just like what has happened in the past informs what is happening right now, but you're not like... Because again... Like, I think it's smart that they don't sit down and it's like, well, in your third, fourth regeneration, you were Lord President of Gallifrey, so that means here there's a Sash of Rassilon or something. Like, they don't need to do that. No. But, it, like, you, since it's Stephen Moffat for the episode, like, obviously Stephen Moffat fucking remembers that. It's a pretty significant plot point for several major episodes in the history of the show. And so, like, it's definitely an element there if you know it's there, but it doesn't, you don't need to know it's there to sort of get something from it. Absolutely. So, all right. Um,. Gallifrey costumes? Good. Thumbs they've up. made them even more ridiculous, I think, every single time they've popped up. They have kept the tradition, I should say, of making the Gallifrey costumes more ridiculous every time they show up. Because that is something where it's like, when they first popped up in the second Doctor uh, War Games episode, they basically just kind of looked like, sort of like 
slightly like more upper class monks or something like there's just kind of normal robes and nothing too extreme and slowly they've gotten to the point where now like Rassilon has like this fucking crest that's practically the size of his torso just like hanging off the top of his body and like these super lavish robes and his big gauntlet and all that shit I just figured out who Rassilon is that actor, I have seen him. He's a character actor, so you see him all over the place. Yeah, he's on Game of Thrones. Oh, okay, he's the dude who it's takes Game of Thrones care of, guy. Yeah, he's from. Well, he's he dies in the second season, but he takes care Spoilers. of Bran. It's okay. He's not that interesting a character, but he is on the show. Okay, I'm sorry. I just I just figured it out. It's been bothering me. Like, what show recently was he on? Because I know I've seen him in lots of stuff. Donald Sumter. He's in things, but yeah, I think I'm right on that. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But that I think right. I think he is someone who's from Game of Thrones because I saw someone okay. say something to that effect. Anyway, but yeah. So anyway, I love all. So so eventually, Peter Capaldi, Twelfth Doctor, gets the uh, extraction chamber going. Right. And this was an interesting scene for me. I do want to say visually, everything in this episode is great, all of it. So it's kind of a baseline. But I love this too, where you the effect on where Clara yeah. is the between heartbeats and that kind of rainbow effect, and then going into that extraction chamber, which is this like stark medical white. A lot of good staging there. Yeah. But that was a scene where I think you and I probably had the same reaction, which is, where are you going with this, Stephen? Yeah, that was a point, that was like a huge starting point in this episode of like, and it was one of the main reasons why I really wanted to watch the episode again before we recorded the podcast, because it's like I hadn't fully solidified my feelings on like how they were dealing with bringing Clara back and then like watching it the second time. It's like, okay, yeah, when you look at these scenes again, it is absolutely the right choice. But yeah, that could have been fucking terrible if they had done it the wrong way. Like a lot of things in Series 9, we are taught that context matters. Yes. And story choices are good because of execution. And they are bad yeah. because of execution. Yes. Uh, story, I feel like maybe we're being taught that ideas themselves are not good or bad. It's how you use them. Yeah. And this is a good idea because really the full plot of the episode is the Doctor trying to save Clara. And I think if you look at this three episode arc we've had now of Face the Raven, Heaven Sent, and Hell Bent... He would, obviously. Yeah, and it's now that, like, now that it's what it is, it feels so obvious to me that, of yes. course, that's what it is. Like, how could it possibly... And like, what the fuck would the plot of it be if it wasn't about that? And it's like... That's the best thing you can say yeah, about exactly, it. Yeah, exactly, yeah. It feels so natural, and I, I love it, because this stretch on... We don't need to talk about every single scene, but what starts to happen there in that scene in the extraction chamber is the turn of the episode for me where it goes from really interesting to, okay, we're getting into all-time territory again, is... That Peter Capaldi, again, talking about the different challenges he's given. I have never seen this on Doctor Who before. And maybe you can tell me if this ever happens on Classic Who. Mm -hmm. But I've never seen an episode where I feel like we are actively meant to feel scared of the Doctor. And not in the sense that he's going to hurt people necessarily, but that I don't know this guy. He is broken and vulnerable to a level I've never seen. He is acting out of character in some ways, but in character. Out of character, in character, if that makes sense. And... You know, he is just shaking apart at the seams and all he can think to do... I mean, he is so broken on the inside. He spent four and a half billion years yeah. trying to get to this point and he literally does not care what happens and he also doesn't know what happens. He is being reckless and and self-destructive to a degree that I haven't seen in a modern incarnation of the Doctor and it's it's heart-wrenching. Yeah, I mean, like, that specific version of it has never like quite been done but it does evoke... A bit of like the earliest William Hartnell stuff, and then when uh, the Sixth Doctor came around with Colin Baker, they did s- similar stuff of like, I mean, specifically with William Hartnell, it's when like you didn't know anything about the character because the character yeah. had just been introduced, and he's like th- advocating smashing like a caveman's head with a fucking rock to try to escape. Like the Doctor is, it's it's one of the greatest things about the show is that the Doctor as a character like has a legitimately like significant and interesting character arc. 
over his like his original incarnation where he evolves to then become the kind of person that when he regenerates into Patrick Troughton becomes the basic formula in the format of the Doctor character as you come to know him and he's not like that in his inception and it's a deliberate character arc it's one of the things that makes the show so exciting and works so well in its early going but yeah then when you bring it back with Colin Baker that was the intended effect and they never quite managed to pull it off but like the rainbow suit wasn't intimidating yeah but there was an aspect of it of like trying to make him mysterious and dangerous again and that sense of like I don't quite know who this guy is he's like big and has curly hair again now he's wearing a rainbow suit and what the fuck's going on he's choking his companion he just died to save exactly yeah but yeah definitely nothing quite like this where the doctor experiences such a severe emotional trauma that he is in that sort of state because it's I mean you get a little of it in the scene in the extraction chamber where he doesn't even know what to say and he's scared of saying it. But then it's when you get through all the stuff with the um, the Matrix and then they're on the ground kind of decoding that thing on the ground, all those runes. And she realizes, Doctor, how long has it been for you? And yeah. the way, the look in his eyes, it's like he's he's gone. It's like the, the, the man we know is not there at the moment. Like he's in there, but he's not in charge, you know? Yeah. He's very shaken to his core and he's just kind of operating on instinct, you know? It's it's like he's a cornered animal or something. It's really yeah. fascinating. Yeah, like, Peter Cabaldi definitely... Like, yeah, this a- episode asks him to do so much because he does move through so many different stages of the character where he obviously has, like, the Western hero thing at the beginning. And then when he meets Clara again, he has to play it, like, more vulnerable than, like, the character has ever really been in the history of the show in many ways. That it's like he is very emotionally raw and sort of frightened because he knows that he's doing the wrong thing he knows he shouldn't be doing any of this but he can't really stop himself yes. it's a really interesting spot for the character to be in well and it feels like such a natural culmination because I've been talking about all season that I feel like the core characterization for the 12th Doctor is his vulnerability yeah. and it's what separates him from the other Doctors at least in the modern era and, and many of the classic ones and it feels like this is the natural culmination point for all of that. And that's what I feel like is the main source of praise for Hellbent time and time and time again is it's things where it's stuff I had, or I, you or I or both yeah. have picked up on over the course of this season and parts of season eight and now are getting paid off. And it's there is nothing more satisfying than that than it being in the hands of a writer and production team who know the story they're telling. Yeah. Because it's so frustrating, and this has happened in the Stephen Moffat years, and it definitely happened in the RTD years, where you get through and you're like, I know where they're going with this, this is such an interesting story, and then it's a left turn. Like, this, like, season six seemingly being about death until the point where it's about being a magician, you know? Yeah. And, okay, then nothing I saw in this season was really there. Or, I don't know what you would say about season seven. Or series eight, where some of that's there, but it's not really paid off on as full as it could be. So it's stuff like that, but here, no... They knew what they were doing, and we picked up on it because they knew what they were doing, and that is so satisfying. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, you have all that stuff there. I mean, there are some... We're going to talk about... We might as well just do a ranking. What are the biggest tearjerker moments in Hellbent? Right. Because there are a lot. But there's definitely one on the floor there between the two of them. And I think it's it's Jenna Coleman's moment where she's standing up and just realizing what's going on and confronting the Time Lords about it. And... You know, I think there's a beautiful moment where she says those words that we're going to learn later, but they kind of just pan out and do that beautiful shot up the Gallifreyan Tower yeah. and play Clara's theme and then come back. Just that whole exchange is such an interesting moment. And at that point, in my first viewing of the episode, I think that's where I was really sold on. All right, bringing back Clara was a good idea because these scenes feel vital. Yeah. You know? But uh, then the Doctor steals another TARDIS, 
We get as, another, as he does. As it's he does. His, it's his thing. It's, it's what his, he does. As Clara says, and we get another, like, a great final caper with Capaldi and Coleman there. And the TARDIS. Yes. It, you go on this. It's, this is, we get the fucking First Doctor's TARDIS room. That's probably, as you pointed out, the one from Adventure in Space and Time, which is the sort of documentary about the William Hartnell years that was made for the 50th anniversary. And it definitely, if it's not exactly that set, it's basically that set. Because it is... So much just, it is the first Doctor's TARDIS, it's the fucking console, it is stark, white, blindingly white walls, because the show, obviously the production values of the show have increased so much, and like, just the resolution of the image has increased so much, it makes you realize why this is not a suitable TARDIS console room for the entire show. Yes. It's like, it's a nice little treat to get here, but like, good god, like, you could not have done, for example, Heaven Sent, if... This was no, the TARDIS console no. room you're in. Because this is it's, fucking scorchingly white. It's also clearly made for black and white. Yeah, yeah. Where whites become gray, basically. Yeah. And yeah, it's... But yeah, but it's so nice to get that. And you get the thing I've missed so much. And I think the choice they made when bringing back the TARDIS for the new Doctor Who was the right choice. But I missed the old interior doors on the yes. TARDIS. Where you have to press the switch and they go... And then you like walk out. Because obviously... Like, now they've just, like, made it so, it, like, the doors of the TARDIS from the inside just look like police door, or, yeah, police box doors. Which, like, makes sense if you think, like, well, the TARDIS has looked like a fucking police box for thousands of years at this point. Maybe it would just, the doors would, like, start to look like that eventually. But I always yeah. just liked the idea of these, because they were so shitty in the original series where, <laughs> like, they would get stuck or and they would wobble and, like, it was obvious that, like, they just didn't work very well and the doors were way lo- made of a lot lighter material than they looked, so it's like it looked really fake. I missed that so much, and I missed the noise. I missed everything about those fucking doors. Because it was always such a... Because it's so much more believable the way they do it now because now they have, you know, such great effects where you can just, like, have... Like, like the 50th anniversary has a really good one where you go from outside to into the TARDIS completely seamlessly. I still don't know how they did that. Yeah, like, it's a great, great fucking effect. It's obviously the way it should be done. But there's something so, like, obviously, this was shot in a studio and this was shot on location about classic Doctor Who that those doors represent to me because those doors (laughs) obviously lead fucking nowhere. Like, there's nothing on the other side of that except for probably a wall that's like, I missed it. And I'm so happy that we got a little bit of it. Yes, I love it. So, here's the thing. You are this happy about this. Yes. For Peter Capaldi, lifelong Doctor Who fan. Yeah. There from First Doctor on, fan club writer. What do you think was a better day for Peter Capaldi? The birth of his child or getting to shoot an episode on the First Doctor set? I, I think it would be a hard choice to make. I, yes. If I was in that situation, I don't know what I would say. That, I mean, he must have had so much fun with that. Yeah. It would have been cool for everyone, I'm sure, but he fucking watched that as a kid. Yeah, exactly. Gets to be on this perfect recreation. And it's not, I like that it's not just a scene. It's like, because that's the thing I want to say about now we're getting into this part of the episode. I did not realize until I watched it a second time, I thought everything from when they get in the TARDIS to the end was like 10 minutes. It's 22 yeah. minutes. It's over a third of the episode, and it's very meaty. So, the, the pacing of this episode is phenomenal. Yes. Like, like, especially when you compare it to what I think has always been the downfall. Well, one of the many things that has always been a downfall of, of Doctor Who season finales. But it's almost always been the pacing is where it really is to shit. And that's why Wedding of River Song is the absolute, like, fucking terrible episode it is. is because the pacing is insanely bad. Here, the, like, like with this entire episode, it, like, the pacing has been phenomenal. But this is, like... 
this episode really allows itself to breathe. And like you said, it's like you have long, prolonged scenes where there need to be, where it's not just like, okay, now we're in the TARDIS, and now now we're at the end of time, and then we're back in the TARDIS, and then now we're cutting to this, and cutting that, and cutting that, and all, and all these different locations because we have to move through everything. It's like, it's a very reasonable, sane amount of material to use for your 50-minute time slot, and they use it very effectively. Yeah, I mean, it's a 60-minute episode, and effectively the plot is done 38 minutes in. Yeah. I mean, getting off Gallifrey is kind of the goal. He achieves that, and then it's just reckoning with those decisions for 22 minutes. It's a very, I think, almost Return of the King-style thing where they give the weight where it needs to be at the end yeah. for a long-form serialized story, and it feels so right because... Yeah, and again, it's once you're in the TARDIS and they're off, and I think there to the end, it is just dynamite scene after dynamite scene when they're in the TARDIS together and Clara is unable to find her pulse and the Doctor yeah. is just shaking apart at the seams. Okay, he's, he's shouting at her. He's, yeah. Because usually we see the Doctor in control where if he has an idea, he says, your pulse will come back. You just expect it's going to happen. Nope, doesn't happen. Everything's going wrong. Clearly he did not think any of this through the way he did Yeah, it's to. like obviously he has no idea what he's doing. He's just like reacting to everything around him. Yeah, he's got a rough plan, but it's not a good one. And nope. he knows that deep down. And yeah, it's fascinating. And then they finally get to the end of time. And again, just such beautiful and poetic writing from Stephen Moffat on a yeah. lot of this. Of the idea of going to the brink of the universe because... I'm accountable to no one anymore. The universe doesn't have a say. It's just me. Yeah. And of course, that's the moment where I feel like he even realizes he's gone too far because he is accountable to someone and he's accountable to who he's always been accountable to and that's Clara Oswald. Yeah, and I love that they don't make it a line of dialogue. It just cuts between the two of them yes. a couple of times and that's it. Yeah. Yeah, because and that's the, all you need. And then there's four knocks. Yeah. Which uh, I'm okay with them calling back to that because that's maybe one of my favorite pieces of Russell T. Davis writing ever. Sure, so, yeah. Yeah, and he goes outside and meets me. Which is... He? Again, I want to underline that Stephen Moffat introduced a thing this year where a major recurring character is called me, and at no point did that become stupid. Yeah. It, be it was a really interesting theme from start to finish, and if anything, used best here when it could have been used worse. Yeah, and I like that this is the first time that like Peter Capaldi, the Twelfth Doctor, just basically calls her me, and that was it. Like yes. He only calls her a shielder when she's introducing her again to Clara. Yeah, because Clara would not know about yeah. me. So... Yeah, and that scene at the end of time, good God, is yeah. that a great Doctor Who scene, and kudos to Peter Capaldi, but kudos to Maisie Williams. Yes, yeah. I think, I've seen her for five years on Game of Thrones, she's been in three other episodes of Doctor Who, that's the best performance she's ever done. Is yeah, she scene. really is able to convey, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's the most impressive thing about her performance is the fact that it's like, this is the fourth time we've seen this character, and she's completely different every single time. Yes. Like, Obviously, like, the original Ashilda from The Girl Who Died is vastly different from all the other versions. But even, like, the one you see in The Woman Who Lived, who is so desperate to sort of, like, escape the situation she's in, is very different from the Face the Raven one, who is, like, where she is, is very, like, satisfied where she is, but doesn't necessarily have, like, she has a certain amount of authority, but is obviously, like, under a lot of pressure. And then now you have her here, where she's been alive for billions of years. Far and, older than the Doctor. Yeah. Far wiser in a lot of ways. Yeah, and, and yeah, she's able to convey that of being this sort of, like, timeless being at this point. And it's so impressive. I mean, she's 18. Yeah. It's um, incredible when you think of what Macy Williams is doing there. And it's another case where you and I keep talking about this off the air, where I keep saying Doctor Who keeps employing actresses who would be perfect female versions of the Doctor. Yeah. And they can't use them now. Like, Alex Kingston as River Song would make a good female Doctor. 
Jenna Coleman would absolutely do it. Yeah. And Maisie Williams, I can see that pretty easily. Yeah, definitely after this episode for sure. Yeah, it's it's kind of incredible. So they're out there. That's good to know. Um, <laughs> and that, that the writers can do that. Hopefully, if it ever comes time to do a female doctor, they remember the lessons from those characters. Yeah. Um, because it's going to be a tough thing, but I'm I, I think they've proven maybe it can it can be done well. Which is which has been our only concern ever. Yeah. Is not whether it should or shouldn't be done. Just can you do it well? Yeah. Um. It's clearly a hard thing, but no, that and that whole end of the universe scene. I think the writing there, as you you said earlier on about like the very final scene, but there's so many in this episode where you just want to like type the writing out and look at it for yourself. Yeah, because it's so well done. And I, this is the scene where we get the final revelations about the hybrid, and this almost feels like Stephen Moffat looking at his younger self and some of the other stories he's told and having regrets. And doing the right version of it. Yeah. Where the hybrid is not a MacGuffin. It is not a plot point. It is not a monster. It's none of that. It's a theme. Yeah. And it's what it always had to be, which is Clara and the Doctor. And I'm amazed no one guessed that. Or at least I didn't. Either. Yeah, I mean, because it's something where you are, because of the way that Doctor Who has treated its finales historically, that it's always, with the exception of Name of the Doctor, and I think this finale here is like... Stephen Moffat learning what he did wrong with Name of the Doctor, but taking the lessons of the much more personal style of finale that that was and applying it to great effect here. Yes. Whereas historically, the Doctor Who finales have always been like, we're building like some dumb fucking bad wolf thing around it that like is going to be pieced throughout the episodes. And then we're just going to have this huge, massive, insane fucking like galaxy destroying threat. And it was something like, particularly the RTD years were the ones that suffered from it the most because like the scale of it got so fucking stupid by the time you got to season four where the fucking Davros has like taken like all these planets and like moved them and all this shit and it's like this just doesn't it it doesn't make sense anymore I can't even understand what the threat is supposed to be at some point like what is actually at risk because you're just fucking with the scale of these issues so much I don't even know what's going on then season five I think is the only one of the finales that has like a very huge scale to it, but nails it really well. Because it's rooted in the character. Already. Exactly, yeah. But like, you still get like the destruction of the universe, but like, you have it rooted in these like really well defined character arcs, so that works. Then season six, it doesn't work. Then season seven, he tries to go very intimate, but for a huge laundry list of reasons. That does not work. I mean, I'll say this. Name of the Doctor is one I've always been a little intrigued by and respect certain elements of. It doesn't work. No. But I think, clearly, as you say, there's ideas that are fundamental to something better there. Yeah. Then, then season eight's finale is better. I, I Actually, having rewatched it recently, I feel better about it now than I originally did. Because I think if there's some stuff with, like, Clara that works better for me now that I have, like, a different perspective on it. But it still has an issue where, yeah, where the scale of it is too big and it's trying to work through too much stuff. And so then finally here, you get to, it's like, no. It's like, this, like, we don't need to end this season on, oh god, the, the, all of time and space is going to collapse. Like, it might. Like, that, that's like the threat that is parroted of, like, what might happen if he doesn't, like, if Clara doesn't go back to her death. But I don't think we ever really believe that that's actually a plausible conclusion. It's not really a threat. It's just the, it's just a reason why this situation can't keep on going on. But it's not like... There's like it's not like the doctor has his gun like to the head of the universe. It's that's not what it is. It's just him having to deal with these issues, and it's a very personal thing, and that's what it's all about. And whether and I think the thing that's so skillful that they do with the hybrid is that 
it's like whether it's not even important whether or not the actual prophecy even exists within the context of the universe or if the prophecy is true within the context of the universe or if the prophecy even refers to the doctor and clara or if the prophecy is even anything that the doctor has knows anything about none of that's what's important it's just what's important is the idea of the hybrid and what the doctor's doing and like how he's dealing with these issues and that the hybrid is just a name for those things yes it's and that's what's so important about having Maisie Williams and Ashilda there is it's something he is too close to it to see and she's able to give him that perspective that once given all kind of becomes clear yeah which is that you know what you and Clara are are beautiful together but at the same time maybe destructive yeah and again that duality is what the entire season is about that things can be beautiful and sad and destructive all at the same time that's what their relationship is and like all things it has to end for it to have meaning yeah and that's what the point of the hybrid is it's also i think a very for a companion exit episode let's talk about where this ranks among those um it's a very beautiful description of what this pairing was because i think you know What's most important about a companion isn't just who that is as a character, but what they say about that doctor, too. It's the yeah. relationship. It's the two of them, you know? It's the do- or three, if there's more. But it's, it's Doctor Who is never a one-man show, except in yeah. Heaven Sent, kind of. And even then, her, her ghost is there for it. Yeah. Uh, it is, it's, a, it's a two-hander. It's a show with a, with a small cast that is constantly revolving. It's the a show with of, about co-leads. Yes. It's like it has and been it started, for almost the entire history well, of the show. Yeah, I mean, you start with episode one, An Unearthly Child, and it's about this weird family that comes together yeah. that the Doctor kidnaps. <laughs> but they become something. I mean, I love, that's one of the most satisfying things about, like, uh, the Daleks, which is the second serial. Yeah. It's just watching the kind of weird trust that starts to develop between these four unlikely allies in that episode Um, so it's been there from the beginning and what that the whole hybrid idea is is a recognition of what was the core theme of this relationship and it was these two people who were very similar to each other and in ways that bolstered both of them but also could have been destructive for both of them and was destructive for both of them yeah Um, and I love that and I think it feels so poignant and correct because they built to it and they earned it if Doctor Who has ever earned anything they earned that you know yeah and I think this is, like, a good example of what Stephen Moffat has done very poorly in a lot of other areas. I think, like, specifically Sherlock Season 3 was where I took a lot of it. Just, I did, really didn't like it, where he was obviously very conscious of the conversations that were happening in the fan community around his series and was playing with them in a way that was maybe a little bit too fourth wall breaking with like the theory stuff for Sherlock and particularly with how did Sherlock survive and all that shit. And there's like a long dedicated section in that episode that that whole episode is yeah, about it. And it's just like, it's just really kind of, I kind of kind of sort of pathetic is how I describe it of like, you're like, it's a kind of thing that you should just ignore. But here I think what I really like about it is because everything about this episode and the way this episode is structured and what it does is about like undercutting your expectations and like the things like you, everyone thinks this is going to go in a certain way and at every single turn it goes in a different direction. And I think what I love about the hybrid theory scene is Ashilda and the Doctor bouncing theories back at each other and him saying it's like, well, it's you, which is what of like everyone who was jumping at that like the hybrid is me line where like it's like oh the hybrid is Ashilda it's like fucking no it's not obviously it's not but then it's like the other thing is like well it's the Doctor because of the half human thing which is sort of like they surface a little bit. And but again, I like that they don't actually. They never say it's like, well, it's not you, Shielda. Like obviously, like they don't prove that it's not Shielda, and they don't prove that it's not the Doctor. They don't even prove that the Doctor's full time Lord. They leave that ambiguous. 
obviously I'm just going to assume that he's a complete 100% time lord because I've, I've always yeah. thought the half human idea was stupid but I think it's just a nice nod to that in yeah. a way that is evocative and kind of but, interesting but what I like about it is specifically is that both of those theories are ones that it's like well you could write a story about both of those if you really wanted to it's not like that's impossible, and you could even make it a good one. But what the Stephen Moffat's sort of like doing here is he's taking a stand and saying, but it's like, no, of course it's not going to be either of those two things. Because if it was either Shielda or if it was the Doctor and being half human, half Time Lord, neither of those would actually matter, like in with a story that we're telling. Like you could make that the resolution in the way that like the Tesselecta was the resolution for season six. But that's the wrong kind of choice to make. The choice that you need to make is the one that's like, the kind of the sentimental one that is no it's the doctor and clara and it's about them like this whole season has been about them the last season has been about them it's like because that's what doctor who is about it's about the doctor and his companion and so it, we don't need like the big grand theories and like oh i am half dalek half time lord ha 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 i'm gonna blow up the universe you don't need that to be the resolution you want it to be the very thoughtful emotional resolution and that's the direction it goes in and again i think there's something about the dialogue that's so smartly written that it doesn't feel like it's poking fun at the fans really it's just like the saying it's like this is what people expect but we're undercutting it and it's like maybe this is what you really want and what we really need to be focusing on and how this show should be written and i feel like that's a lot of what season nine has been is saying it's like this is the way we have been doing it up till now, and we're conscious that this is the way the show has been constructed and the way we've dealt with these kinds of issues in the past that has not worked well, and this is the better way to do it, and we're trying it like this, and it works phenomenally. Yeah. No, I... Exactly. So, we finished that scene outside at the end of the universe. Not of the hat to Douglas Adams. I think there's a yeah. little bit of Douglas... I think there's a lot of Douglas Adams' DNA in, in whenever I mean, you... He, he wrote two episodes through serials in Classic Who and was a short-lived script editor. Yeah. So there's, there's, Do- there's Douglas Adams' DNA in Doctor Who, whether you realize it or not. Well, and the important thing to note also is there's Doctor Who DNA in Douglas Adams. That's true, yeah. He was, he was kind of raised on Doctor Who yeah. also and, and, and used that in his work. So it was an inspiration both ways, which I love. So anyway, I always like to give a nod of the hat there. And uh, then we go back in the TARDIS, and again, that white set, as you say, would not be sustainable, but good God, is it the right set for these scenes? Yeah, yeah. Um, so Shilda's in the TARDIS with them, and the Doctor kind of has to come clean about his plan, and then, it's the same, Jenna Coleman, same as Peter Capaldi, every time you think she's topped herself, yeah. she goes another level, because I think that whole speech about, you know, the present, the future belongs to no one, but the past is mine, and yeah. I have the right to it. That whole thing where she has to refute what the Doctor is saying is so powerfully done and so simply done. Again, I think Moffat's getting a lot out of a little. Like, it's not big speeches. It's little speeches. And then the Doctor realizing, of course you're right, you're always right. What was I thinking? Yeah. And, but then coming to the realization we have to do something here. And having the memory wiping device... Little nod of the hat somewhere in there to Donna Noble yeah, too, definitely. recognizing. Again, I feel like there's an element of the way this episode is constructed that is conscious of how finales yes. have been constructed in the past. It may be some not elegant and maybe very unfair ways that certain companions have been treated in the past on their departures. Yes, absolutely. Well, it's like the Donna Noble one is interesting because I think it is the most effectively tragic of the RTD exits. I also think it's something that character in no way deserved. Yeah, it's needlessly cruel, and it's, yes. it's sort of like takes away the character's agency in a way that's like really, like in a way that's like if this was a resolution to something classic Doctor Who, I would sort of raise my eyebrow at it because it would be kind of weird, anyways. But it would be more acceptable, like the way that like Susan leaves the show is obviously not great, but it's, since it was the fucking show came out in 1963, it's hard to get like angry about it. 
Yeah. But when it's like 2008 or whatever, you definitely expect more sensitivity and, towards yeah. those things. Yeah. And just like and the, the skill at, at handling something like that, a character departure in that way, you just you figure out that it's not the way you want to do it. You want to give like that character an elegant departure, not one where like everything, all the character's agency is stripped from her, and the doctor oh. forcibly mind wipes her. Oh uh, yeah, I mean if you want to talk about. This episode, looking at the past of Doctor Who, Clara's entire exit is about agency. Yeah. I mean, it is a very specific refutation, not just to Donna, but to the whole arc of that kind of thing you're talking about. I mean, it's to any kind of sexist or lack of agency kind of exit that characters have usually had. Yeah. Because it isn't, doesn't even, it's like, with female characters, it oftentimes is a sexist thing, but it doesn't even have to be. Like, it's right. not just that it's sexist because it's making certain assumptions in, about how we use female characters very wrongly. It's also just bad writing if it's a male character or a female character. It's just not a good way to write out a character that's been on the show for this long and is that important. Exactly. So, yeah. But anyway, he gets the dial ready and we do the coin flip, basically, with yeah. it, where they're going to touch it together. And, yeah, this is, having seen the episode twice, this is the scene that breaks me both times the most is... Uh, you know, the, the Clara says, I could never forget you, Doctor. And he says, I don't think you're going to have to. And he starts to collapse. Yeah. And they go back and forth a little. And then Peter Capaldi starts giving a expanded version of the speech the three Doctors give in the 50th special, which is sort of the Doctor's oath. Yeah, never cruel, never cowardly. But he's saying it to Clara. He's yeah. saying, he's saying you're me now. I mean, he's literally passing the theoretical and thematic baton to her. And... I, it is so perfect for those characters. It is so beautiful. It is such a poetic piece of writing. Uh, very well undercut with the line about the pears. Yeah. Because that's, yes, the Twelfth Doctor would say that. Yeah. Uh, so beautiful. So incredibly beautiful. And, man, because that is really the last scene between the two of them as we know them. There is some more in the diner. Yeah. But in terms of the characters on equal footing, that's it. And I don't think you can ask for something better than that. And what I really like is that it's a really great example of show don't tell in writing for your character arcs. In that, obviously, the, the theme for a long time has been that the Clara that Clara is very similar to the Doctor in a lot of ways, and being with him makes her more and more like him in a way that is both can be good for her and is also very destructive and dangerous for her. And obviously, that's where like Face the Raven culminates. But here. Like, obviously, the positive version of that character arc, which is what we end on with this whole episode, ends on, is that, that Clara becomes basically another Doctor and goes off into space and has her own adventures. But here, they, the way they show and not tell the character arc is just that the way that Clara reacts to the Doctor, the quote-unquote dying here with his memory wipe, is exactly the way that the Doctor was reacting to Clara when he realized that Clara was going to die. And, yes. like, she can't quite accept it, and she's fighting against it in, like, in a way that directly mirrors that. And the Doctor is reacting with his memory wipe in basically the exact way that Clara was reacting in Face the Raven to her realizing she was going to die. And that, like, those two scenes mirror each other, and there's nobody saying, this is what these characters are, this is where these characters have come to, this is what the theme is. It's just by juxtaposition of those two episodes and those two scenes, you realize that's what it is. And, like, that's where we have come to that Clara is the Doctor now, like, in basically yes. her totality. Well, and, and again, talking about mirroring and showing, don't telling, there are three specific moments at the end of this episode that break me. That's one I just said. But yeah. then it's when he goes in the TARDIS and he looks at the white, the, the chalkboard, and it's Run Clever Boy, which on its own, that's a break moment because it's yeah. a great callback, but then it's down and, and be a Doctor. 
Yeah. And it's what he told her to do. It's what she tells him to do. And you don't ever... You know what? You you technically don't ever need to see either of these characters again. Because yeah. that is such a perfect encapsulation of this story and where they're both going to be going on their separate tracks. Yeah. Yes. Um, anything else to say about that scene? It's really good. It's yeah. very... It's Again, it's something where I feel like with this and Heaven Sent... I feel like they're upping the ante for when Peter Capaldi is eventually going to have to leave the show. That his regeneration scene is going to be fucking hard to write, I can imagine. Because it's like... Because you get a pseudo-regeneration scene here with him of like the way he's acting is very like he's dying. Yeah. And then obviously, heaven sent, it's just like the scale of how badass he is there. I but, think he's going to have to like ride a flaming bird into the sun. Yeah. with the guitar, Playing the guitar with the sunglasses on. Yeah. That's it. I mean, they're going to have to figure out something that's going to be really fucking cool. Yeah. But yeah. Anyway, um, so let's see. Uh, then we have the final scene in the diner. And yes, um, him playing the guitar again and her saying the line about a story becoming a song is the other moment that breaks me. Yeah. But other things we have to talk about in this scene. Okay. I love that Stephen Moffat has now made it a pattern that when a companion leaves and her best episodes are listed he lists the worst episode from that companion's run because with Amy oh, right, they yeah. listed the pirate episode right, and yes. here they list the Cold, Cold War, War episode yeah. they find the most dull episode and it's one of the two or three that are listed at the end that felt like a joke to at, me at, I love it at least they threw Mummy on the Orient Express yes. in there to like balance it out <laughs> but it, yeah I did catch the two of like why pick like why not like say it's like and we visited like the rings of Akaten. Like why not pick one of the better ones? It's like remember when we were like chasing ghosts? It's like and I will say the the, the like uh, cadence of those words in that scene of you know we fought an alien on a on ice a, warrior on yeah. a submarine. Which I feel like the main reason why they picked that is because Peter Capaldi just wanted to say ice warrior on yeah. set because it's like it's such a great classic Doctor Who villain that's been gone for so long. Well, and again, I think the cadence of the line, that yeah. into Mummy on the Orient Express, it makes sense. Yes. But I just think it's funny between it that and then in Amy's ex- exit episode where she starts her final line talking about the stupid pirate episode. Yeah. It's hilarious. <laughs> anyway, but it's a beautiful, that whole scene, because that's when you see the Doctor's full vulnerability, kind of, is he doesn't really know if he's searching. All he knows is there's this feeling inside him where he remembers all of it, but he can't see her face and he doesn't remember what she sounds like. And Clara has to look at him. And and keep a blank face. Yeah. And he's technically talking, but that's some good silent acting for both of them there. Yeah. And it's definitely, like, the most interesting thing, I think, about watching it the second time is watching Clara's reactions. Like, not just yes. here, where obviously you, all, you already would know the first time through, but then in earlier scenes, like, you see, like, the little cracks in her face, basically, of, like, like what she's putting on in scenes where the first time through you don't realize, like, oh, that's why she's, like, reacting that way. Yeah, absolutely. So, so good. Um, but what else do we want to say about the dialogue here? Because you, you, you singled this out as a great scene earlier on. I mean, it's all the stuff about, like, the memories becoming stories when you're forgotten and the way that that plays into, like, the, for me, it's, again, it's, it, it's everything about what this episode does here at the very end where it sort of, it basically manages to have its Clara and kill her too, where it's, you get to have her happy ending while you already had her tragic ending, but at the same time, her happy ending... Like, I feel like there's an, like, a very fairy tale aspect to, to it, very intentionally, because, again, it's all about the stories. And this whole episode is him telling a story, and it's very important to remember that, of, like, it's, it's narrated by him to Clara. It's that, like... 
there's a very easy way to just sort of like look at this as like maybe like this the scene with Clara and me and the TARDIS kind of almost doesn't even literally happen. It doesn't matter whether or not it literally happens, obviously, because it's a story regardless, because it's, it's you're fiction. getting into weird postmodern shit. It's like becomes hard to talk about. But there's an aspect of that where her like going off in the TARDIS and becoming a story in the way, again, that echoes a lot of what Moffat has dealt with. I think most specifically with at the end of season five, where he like talks specifically in those terms of the Doctor being forgotten but becoming a story, and her and Clara moving off and going into that realm and becoming Clara Who, becoming the star of her own hypothetical TV show where she's having her own adventures, where she like because again, literally, she is a memory that has been forgotten by the Doctor, and so she literally becomes a story, and that happens, and it's like there's a lot of different levels that happen there that then also for the Doctor the whole aspect of her having been for him forcibly forgetting her just simply acts as a metaphor that I feel like at least my first time watching I didn't realize what we were building up to was this, this being the last stage of grief which is actually beyond the stage of acceptance and it's the stage of where like forgetting basically of like moving completely past it which happens eventually where like straight up like you don't remember kind of what the person looked like unless you have a picture around and you don't remember what they really sounded like you don't remember like what their laugh sounded like or like what their smile looked like you forget so many of those little details unless you have something around to remind you of them because those people do become stories when they are no longer memories to you when you no longer have the specific details that you can call back to they become these sort of like fables that you tell yourself to remind yourself of who this person was and what this person meant to you and after so many years when you keep on doing that process eventually the real person is lost in that process and they're like that that story just kind of becomes a part of you and who that person was becomes a part of you but in that very sort of like story fable-esque manner and that's what happens to the doctor here at the end that like caps his arc that he really started with heaven sent of dealing with the grief and uh, praise to Moffat for all of that. Also praise to Rachel Talalay for this scene because yeah. there is a visual and aesthetic layer to that. Yes. And why the guitar playing breaks me is the way she frames those shots where he stands up, she's going into the back room, Clara is, and we have kind of this low angle on Capaldi. The scene is so well lit as he's playing that. And she's gone, but she's right there. And, yeah. and it's that is such a profound visual metaphor in so many ways, not just for this story, but for its larger implications. Yeah. Um, because everything you said is is totally true, and I think the underlying point there is that, again, she's still there. It's it's a different thing. It's a story. It's a memory. Whatever you want to yeah. call it, but that still is all there. Those things don't leave. You yeah. know, they, the energy does not dissipate completely in the universe, and and I think that is portrayed just in that little moment. No words, just the song and yeah. him playing and. That it is Peter Capaldi actually playing the guitar and him being an actual guitar player, I think is more important than people realize because yeah. I know several guitar players like you, yes. like my mom, and the way I see like when you are sometimes just playing your guitar around here, you're not playing with any direction in mind. You're yeah. not performing. You're just playing the guitar, and it's what comes to mind, and that's what it feels like Peter Capaldi is doing in that moment. Yeah, and it's like he's not keeping like super strict time no. or anything, and his posture isn't perfect, and he's kind of slouching. Yeah, like it's he's just playing, yeah. and that's why the Clara stuff comes through so powerfully. Is it's not something he wrote in his performing, it's just coming through instinctually. Yeah. Yeah. And then a couple of last great triumphant scenes where 
You know, I never thought we would top the high you feel like you go out on at the end of Series 5 with the Doctor and Amy and Rory all in the TARDIS again, and it's all great, and they're going off to have another adventure. Yeah, they, but, with Mummy on the Orient Express that, like, originally comes from. Yes. From that, at the very end, yeah. Yep, and, uh, but no, this is even better because you have, one, you have Clara and me on yeah. their TARDIS together. Clara try, and her companion. Yep, Clara and her companion, and Ashilda trying to figure out how to work the TARDIS, and they and have the same problem the Doctor does. Yeah, she does. can't figure out the chameleon circuit, so they're stuck. I thought that was a great detail. Yep, and uh, so they're off to more adventures, and the last, even though there's a lot after it, the, like, three more minutes, the last words of the episode are Clara saying, the long way around. Yeah. And she leaves, and then the Doctor gets back in his TARDIS, and sees the thing on the chalkboard, takes his velvet coat yeah. up off the thing, and and looks puts it on and looks dapper and badass again. Very doctory. And uh, gets his new sonic screwdriver. Yeah. More on that in a minute. And, and then uh, he uses the force to propel it to him or something. I'm yes. not sure how he did that, but that's okay. It's he is that awesome. <laughs> yeah. I think Peter Capaldi actually has that power. Probably yes. And uh, snaps the door shut, and the twelfth Doctor theme is yeah. playing in probably its. Fullest version yet. I mean, it's so beautiful. The yeah. 12th Doctor theme there. And, and uh, takes off. Takes off, and great visual metaphor to end on. She goes one way, he goes the other. Yeah. It's the end of the, Furious and, and 7. And then the, the, the mural on the TARDIS, like, disintegrates. Yeah, yeah. disintegrates as it dematerializes. Uh, perfect, perfect, yes. perfect, perfect. Every single note of this episode, just perfect start to finish. Yeah, and it's something where. And then again, going back to like the the direction in the visuals, where I feel like I I really need to find someone or like just do it myself who has just taken a bunch of screenshots of specific moments from Heaven Sent and Hell Bent, and just turned them into wallpapers because it's like <laughs> there's so many beautiful visuals. But I think my favorite one between both of them is at the very end of this episode, where when the Doctor gets back into the TARDIS and opens the doors, and, the and, and the, yeah, and the TARDIS is powered down, and you have that natural light like blasting into the TARDIS and it slowly powers up like that is so beautiful to me like everything about that imagery it's like it's so because that's actually the moment where I kind of get the most emotional like there's something because it's it's he's back home yeah and it's so specific to my attachment to the show in so many ways of like where Doctor Who starts again now like it's and, and I feel like it's the almost every single season finale of New Who has basically ended that way of like we go back into the TARDIS and we take off somewhere like except for season eight, actually, weirdly, kind of doesn't where it hangs on Clara walking away. And season seven doesn't. No, oh, yeah, that's. I mean, yeah, season. I count Tea Time of the Doctor kind of is the okay. end of season seven, and that absolutely Fair is enough. that of yeah. them dematerializing, taking off. But this is like the best version of it because it feels like we have been because we have been gone from the TARDIS for so long from the actual TARDIS. Like obviously the it's set pops up there. all the time in Heaven Sent, but it's not actually there. It's like. It's like we're finally back after this like long three episode. It's not a three part story necessarily, but like this like kind of like epic that has just happened for Doctor Who, and you're finally coming back and like the Doctor is in this brand new place that he is in personally compared to when he started, and it's like he's home again and he's ready to start new adventures. And there's just something again about the visual of like that really harsh natural light coming in in like the very mechanical TARDIS interior that they have now. It's like that, that contrast is really powerful. Yes. So good. I mean, it's a homecoming, but he has changed, the show has changed, and we're ready to have more adventures. Him and his constant companion, the TARDIS. Yeah. And they're off again. And, yeah, I mean, I said this after last night, you know, if you needed to do another 15-year hiatus, you could do it after this episode. Yeah. I wouldn't feel wrong. But I'm very excited to see where they go next, obviously. Yes. But it's just, it is such a clean ending that is so hopeful and looking towards the future it, it really does. I mean, if you had told me this was Stephen Moffat's last episode, 
you would believe it. I mean, it yeah, this yeah. feels like him cleaning house and, and finishing all family business and leaving the door open for whoever comes next. Kind of like how RTD cleaned things out after the end of End of Time, almost. Yeah, um, only a little bit cleaner here yes. than, I don't want to go... Which is not the, the nicest note to, to usher in the new era in, but... It's a great line, though. It's a great line! I'm just saying yeah, yeah. that that maybe it was great for that story, but maybe when you look at how Tenant fans reacted then when <laughs> Matt Smith came in, maybe it wasn't the best choice to make for, like... No, I get it. ...that side of the show, but... Yeah. No, but perfect. Just just a perfect fucking episode. Yeah. And uh, by my count, that's two in a row. Yeah. Maybe three in a row. Maybe... They're not all perfect, yes. but you know, it's God, good God, a lot of them are close. Yeah. So, any other thoughts on Hell? Before we move on to other things, any other final thoughts on Hellbent as an episode? Um, I guess like a little, like small details. I really liked that they sort of, I mean, all the stuff they did with the Doctor's costume in this episode from like the beginning, where he's got that kind of Han Solo look going on, where he's taking off his jacket and like walking around, and then he gets that William Hartnell echo kind of thing going on with the long black coat. And then, but and I really love that that Clara line of like, what happened to that velvet coat? I liked it. it was very doctory, which is like, it is like it's a very doctory costume, and it's something I really like that they end on that note with him getting the coat back on. And I hope that that's like, because I've really liked what they have done with him so far, where it's like season eight, he has his sort of like very specific sort of variations of that version of the costume, and then season nine now he most of it was like that hoodie kind of look he had going on then ending with this velvet coat and i kind of hope that they use the velvet coat now as like a base for season 10 it almost of feels like, his like version of the costume this there. was the extended 12th doctor origin story yeah and now we're off to see what the sequel is going to be yeah you know but i i always like when the doctor's costume has little video variations that's why i like the third doctor and fourth doctor's costumes the most yeah. is because it's like they have a clear basic theme and style, but it evolves very organically, and it never like it's never like a complete change. Like when Matt Smith, like in season seven, B, his new costume felt like there are like elements of the original there, but it's definitely not like tweed, you know. Like it's moved right. past that. I like that it, this is like it's the same basic looking costume, but little stylistic elements of it have changed over the years. That I like absolutely. Um, also, final praise to Murray Gold. Yes, the score yeah. in this episode is fantastic. Not up to the level of like Heaven Sent because it couldn't be. That's asking a totally different thing. Yeah, but so much good stuff here. I think specifically if you listen to his score in the scene with Ashilda on the end of the earth, that or the end of the world, that is yeah. incredible music. Yeah, and I cannot wait for the Series Nine soundtrack because there's so much music in this season. I want to revisit. And I'm really excited to, to get that. Yeah, I also really love the echo of the Ninth and Tenth Doctor themes in like the Western version. Yes, on Gallifrey, like the sort of like whistling, like it's really good. That's what that is. It's yes. the ninth, tenth theme. Okay, yeah, because they do the actual theme song briefly. But yes. Other than it's yeah, it's ninth and tenth. Okay, it's been a while since I've heard those. So yeah, yes, okay. And I, I've always liked that theme. I mean, man, Murray Gold. It's it's he doesn't get enough praise. He has been with the show ten fucking years now, eleven years now, two thousand five, yeah. two thousand fifteen. All nine seasons, every single episode, he's reinvented the entire musical identity of the show three times now. Yeah, it's, in, it's insane, and it's better than ever. I that dude, he can he can write music. Yeah, he can write a lot of music yes. very well. Yeah. All right, so Sean, that is Hellbent. Yes, another in a long line of great episodes this season. So series nine as a whole, great season of television. Yes, definitely. great season of Doctor Who, best of the modern era, easily as you say. Probably if you just look at them as seasons, this is the best of. Best season Doctor Who has ever done. Yes. Which for the 35th season of a long-running show, I mean, there's literally no comparison. Yeah. 
And again, it's like it's a weird thing when like you look back to old Doctor Who where it's like seasons back then are not. No, they don't really matter. Yeah, like it, it, because I'm literally I've been like slowly picking my way back through like the Patrick Troughton stuff because like my memory of some of the reconstructed episodes was very vague, and you I forget that it's like. Companions didn't, like, leave at the end of seasons or anything like that. Like, the season designation was more or less arbitrary back. Like, it was, like, it was a year. But, like, the way that they produced the show, it was, like, people leave when people leave. Like, the fucking the first Doctor regenerates after the second episode or the second serial in the fourth season. Like, he doesn't regenerate at the end of the fucking season. It's just, like, randomly, nope, now it's just Patrick Trouton. Yeah. So, yeah. So, all right. This was great. I mean, as I said... This just is one of the best seasons of TV I've ever seen. And I think the more I think about it, the more I feel that way. It's just, it's hard to find an analog for a show where you come out of it every week completely jazzed. Feeling more positive every week than you did the week before. It keeps going to new heights. And the story that begins in season one pays off so completely at the end of episode 12. It's, I mean, it's, it's great. I mean, you have that Sleep No More episode, which is not a bad episode. But it's not yeah, a particularly good yeah. one. But it's also, like, you could just skip it and you would never know. And so it does no damage to the season. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. There's nothing wrong real with it being there, really. So it's fine. If it's just one last normal adventure for the Doctor and Clara, I'm okay with that. That's fine. Yeah, because at the end of the day, the number one thing that Doctor Who needs to do is it just needs to make good episodes. And I'm yeah. happy. But this, was a, this is a year, and I think this is why it feels so transcendent for Doctor Who, is they made a lot of good episodes. They made 11 out of 12 great episodes not just good great episodes that's insane for any show especially something that can be as erratic as Doctor Who and so you have 11 out of 12 but you get the best of both worlds you get those 11 great episodes and yet what they form as a whole is greater than the sum of the parts yes definitely it really is and yeah I feel like they just to whoever wants to listen they just taught a lesson to basically everyone working in television yeah and it's something in like and then also just for like Doctor Who specifically I think what this season has done and done very consciously and I think it's a culmination of a lot of what Moffat has been trying to do ever since he took control of the series and has never really managed is like bringing Doctor Who back to sort of like its natural state in a lot of ways and sort of like finding the core of what Doctor Who is and modernizing it more effectively than New Who has in the past in that I, I absolutely respect Russell T. Davis and what he did when he bring back, brought back the show. And I think a lot of the choices he made, like the Time War, were the right choices at the time to make to bring the show back and to create an element of mystery and intrigue. But I think overall, like a lot of that stuff made such a huge impact on the, the show and the character and, and cast such a massive shadow that it took like so long for us to like really be able to move past it. And it wasn't until you got to the 50th anniversary special that I think Stephen Moffat really realized that's what we needed to do all along. It's like that's part of why some of that Matt Smith stuff, particularly in season seven, maybe struggled is because he didn't deal with the time war. He just sort of ignored it instead of like, like let's like move through this stuff and let's bring Doctor Who back to the place that it more naturally is at, which is which allows you to just have these fun adventures that aren't necessarily connected to everything else. But if you need to, you can create these, like, character arcs that carry through. And that's what this season has done. It shows that you can have the, like, really well-paced, really engaging, interesting sci-fi stories that Doctor Who very uniquely is in a position to tell. And you can tell them, and they're great and fun on their own. And they do not have to be, 
like overshadowed by the Doctor having PTSD and all this stuff that, that made a lot of David Tennant episodes occasionally very obnoxious, like Voyage of the Damned or something, where like that aspect of the character is so heavy and so just dominating everything about that the character is doing, where it's like now you don't need any of that, but then underneath all of that, you don't even really need to have like the Danny and Clara stuff that I liked in season eight, but wasn't like the most subtle stuff in the world. Like it was it intruded on episodes sometimes more than it needed to. And here you just very naturally bake in a theme or a character idea that carries through all the episodes, carries through, through everything, that then when you get to the end of the season, you have your like sort of like epic thing at the end of the season that deals with all of that and unpacks all of that and puts a fine note on it that then allows you to move into the next season and that's how New Who should be constructed it shouldn't be about these huge long elaborate plot arcs with all these mysteries and twists and turns like season 6 tried to do that's not what it needs it needs the much more elegant undercurrent that then simply supports like the the really strong solid foundation of the individual episode structure which is what Doctor Who is actually all about and I feel like this season far and away has proven that that's where the future of the show is is that's where there's so much room to explore and that's where I think the future of TV kind of should be is not necessarily looking towards stuff like Breaking Bad that was great but also had like these issues with its pacing and with the supporting characters because it was so focused on telling this long continuous storyline instead looking at like how can we merge the anthology story stuff that's sort of at the roots of television and like the more long form character based storytelling that it has evolved into I feel like that's what this season of Doctor Who proves yeah I mean it feels like the most effective melding yet of the old with the new. Yes. You know, because this is a season that takes so many cues from Classic Who. Many, in many ways, it takes the best cues from Classic Who. But then it also takes the best of what modern television can do. I mean, you know, the, the realization in the 90s and especially the 2000s of serialization on TV is obviously something that you look at and you're like, how did it take people so fucking long to see how well this, you know, medium can be used for that? But it is a balance you have to strike. Yeah. And so... But I think they struck this balance so well there where this feels like kind of the ultimate realization of what Doctor Who can be, where you tell these great stories, but you also have a self-contained season that, you know, season nine will sit on a shelf, digitally or literally or whatever, and you can pull it out, and it is a great work of art on its own, but also contributes all these little smaller great works of art to the whole that is the Doctor Who tapestry. Yeah, that you can go back and just watch The Girl Who Died on its own and be fine and have fun with that. Or, Or even you could watch Heaven Sent, which obviously, like deals more directly with the issues of the season but is so well made and so perfectly capped and contained within itself and says so much on its own that you can just sit down for an hour and watch Heaven Sent completely outside of the context of the rest of the season and have an incredible experience just watching that and then not necessarily have like time or interest in watching the rest of the season along with it you know yeah all right so next question okay do you think in in next season Stephen Moffat should continue doing the sort of loose um adherence to two-parters i think so like i think if they can manage to still do it because i think that's the best part about this episode i think for me the most striking episodes of this season with the exception of like like the zygon version and that stuff is really great and like on its own is like a really fantastic version of the old school style two-parter so i'm going to put that to the side for a second but for me the most striking episodes of the season are the Girl Who Died and The Woman Who Lived and then Face the Raven, Heaven Sent, and Hellbent. Because all of them are something where, like, 
you can basically look at the girl who died and the woman who lived and call them a two-parter if you want to, but they don't necessarily have to be. Like, it's, right. there are two episodes that are, again, they're very self-contained. You can watch them on their own, but there are also two episodes that are in conversation with one, with one another in a lot of different ways, and they are better watched together, and they say a lot of things about each other, but you in no way need to watch them right next to each other if you don't want to. No, and, again, as we've said, the woman who lived could have been split several episodes apart from Girl yeah. Who Died, and it wouldn't have been any weaker. Yeah, and I feel basically... And then obviously, like, you would need to put Face the Raven, Heaven Sent, and Hellbent right next to each other for them to make sense in the context of the season. But you could watch any of those episodes in isolation, and they're fine. Like, they, like they say what they need to say. Like, Face the Raven... Is it's a single episode that is all about Clara's departure on the show and like that tragedy and like that is what that episode is. It is a tragedy and the fact that the Doctor gets teleported away at the end and obviously there's a further story to explore there is not the point. Like that's why that episode has that stinger at the end of the cliff or at the end of the credits with uh, Riggsy painting the TARDIS. Like that's why that exists. Is like that's what that episode is about. Then Heaven Sent is like also self-contained and is about the Doctor dealing with his grief in like those early stages in like creating this elaborate allegory for that in self-contained and it works and it's on its own and then Hell Bent is all about the last stages of the grief of that grief and then again because of the structure of Hell Bent because it like creates this closed loop narrative of beginning like after the story and then like going back and telling it in sections because of that is entirely a self-contained story that you could absolutely watch on your own on its own and be fine like you could take someone who basically has almost no knowledge of Doctor Who and they could just watch Help In and they would have questions about a lot of stuff obviously but the basic fundamental like development and plot and character arc and thematic development of that episode would be absolutely clear to someone who has almost no idea what Doctor Who is and that's what's important about the episodic structure yes absolutely and I think you're right those five episodes are the most important of this season not necessarily the five best but just the five the biggest revelations for what Doctor yeah. Who could evolve into uh, I would also point towards the first two two parts of the um, season yeah, yeah. Magician's Apprentice which, which is familiar and I'm going to try this for the last time this season guys under the lake, yes. Before the flood, yes. You got I it. did it. Okay, um, those ones. I mean, those are more traditional two-parters. But even then, I thought Stephen Moffat and then Jamie, not Jamie Matheson, uh, Toby Whithouse. I think. Toby Whithouse. Yeah. Yes, I think did a very good job of making those two-parters feel like each episode was an episode. Yeah, it didn't necessarily tell a close-ended story, but it was an experience where I didn't feel angry having to wait a week. Yeah, and I should say that, like, yeah, I think, like, I should have probably mentioned Under the Lake and Before the Flood too, because I think those, like, I think the opening two-parter has a bit of that, but I think. The, the Toby Whithouse ones yeah. are a little more effective with it. And specifically, again, it's little details like like a really canny and interesting move that Before the Flood makes is opening it with that breaking the fourth wall yes. scene that, again, creates a closed loop for that episode, which also is like a, almost a meta-commentary with the, uh, the paradox that they talk about in the episode. But yeah, like creating that sort of sense of the closed loop of like this is the idea that this episode is about that's what's really important I think Under the Lake is not as successful at that but that also that episode's also like a fun adventure so it doesn't need to be as much right no I mean it really is an interesting thing and I would like to see Moffat maybe experiment with this more but I do think the idea of let's say roughly we have at least two episode blocks like yeah. still do the thing where what there's only six directors and they each take two yeah and then just say, however we arrange that, there's going to be something about these episodes in conversation with each other. If we have to go to three, we can, whatever. I think that's a nice just starting point because it clearly pushed the stories in a direction that... And I don't know what choice came first. Yeah. You'd have to ask Stephen Moffat that. 
but wherever it came from, structurally, this season was pretty ingenious. Yeah. To the point where it was clear, like, the failing of Sleep No More, ultimately, is that they had 11 episodes of story, and they had to fill 12. Yeah. And what do you do with a one-off in a season that is not built for one-offs? You ask Mark Addis to write a script, because unfortunately, yeah. I feel like that's the position he's always been in, is like, <laughs> well, we've got a slot to fill, and that dude can fucking write a script. Let's give it to Mark Addis. Yeah. He can always write a good script, but he can write a script. Yeah, it's like, and it's always like a producible script. Like you know that he can, he knows how to write for TV in a way that like he's not going to write an episode that's like over budget or something like that. He's he knows gonna, what's manageable. He's not going to write like the Doctor's Wife. Yeah, exactly. Where you're like, well, fuck, we're going to have to plan out like two seasons ahead to like get a, to gather the budget for to make this episode. Yes. Yeah. No, that's great. Um, yeah, definitely. I think there were some structural breakthroughs this year. So, with that in mind, yeah. let's talk about the best episodes. Number one is Heaven Set. Yes, yeah, obviously. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, my number two would be Hellbent. Would you have a different number two? Um, I would maybe Hellbent. I'm leaning more Girl Who Died. I really love that episode a lot. Yeah. So I would probably... I'm going to say Girl Who Died for my number two and Hellbent for my number three. Okay. But they're all up there. Yes, yeah. Definitely. Um, I thought a lot about what my number three would be. It would either be Girl Who Died or maybe Zygon Inversion. I do think... Zygon Inversion has one of just the best self-contained scenes of the season, and I rewatched it recently with my brother because he was watching it, and I think that entire episode is just, it's on fire. I think yeah. there's a lot of great stuff in there. Girl Who Died is probably a better just one punch of an experience, so that's yeah. probably number three for me. Yeah. So then, yeah, my number three would be Helbin, so then I'll just go to my four would be, I guess, probably The Woman Who Lived, maybe? Or, if you think about this for a second, um... I'm going to say The Woman Who Lived okay. would be my number four. My number four, can I do Zygon Invasion and Inversion as one? Yeah, because that's what I'm okay. going to do. Because yeah. that's, again, like, that's such a traditional two-parter that, like, I don't even know what I would do with Zygon Invasion on its own. Right. So that's a, that's a four. And my five would be Face the Raven. Okay. Yeah, my five would be probably the Zygon Inversion. Okay. My six would be Woman Who Lived. Okay, then my six would be Face the Raven. My seven would be... Under the lake before the flood. Are you putting those together? I don't... I know they have their own things. I don't know how to separate them. Okay. Is that fair? Sure, yeah. I'm going to separate them, and I'm going to say that my number seven is under the lake. Okay. Then what's your number eight? Before the flood. Okay, but you're... you're okay, I see where you're going. Okay. My number... My next one would be... I can't think if I'm missing anything. I think Magician's Apprentice, slash which is familiar. Okay. And then Sleep No More at the bottom. Yeah, that's how I do it, too. Okay, yeah. So we're we're like we we're basically the same, yeah. It's yeah. just like a couple of episodes are like swapped, but because yeah. I don't think we disagree on the quality of any of these. It's no. just what interests you more. Yeah, the, sort of. the personal preference. Yeah, yeah. Like the girl who died very specifically hits some notes that I find fucking fascinating. Yeah, and I understand why some people aren't that enthralled with it. And I do think, like, I have watched the last ten, last fifteen minutes technically of Zygon Inversion four or five times now. And I do think I might submit that as the best written scene of the whole season because Maybe, there's just yeah. something in the writing of that scene and how it goes through so many emotional climaxes and then somehow keeps going and the way it builds on Peter Capaldi's performance, some very smart direction, and then just... And Jenna Coleman doing this weird thing as a villain. Uh, yeah, that scene knocks my socks off every single time as if I'm watching it for the first time. And I just think, yeah, I mean, in, in terms of a climax to an episode, that's why that it has to be the traditional two-parter, because they're building yeah. to something so strong, you can't do it in 45 minutes. Yeah. You know? And I think the Zygon Invasion has some weaknesses in that it is 
it's a little fluffy. Like, it feels at yeah. certain points like they have to get it to 45 minutes. Because you have, like, because that's where you get, like, a bunch of the subplots that are sort of, like, expanding out and kind of feeling like they go nowhere, like Kate Stewart yeah. in America and stuff like that. It leads to some suitably badass stuff with Kate in yeah. the next one. But, yeah, it feels a little like there's too much of it. Um, but still, I mean, you can sit down and watch all 90 minutes of that and you wouldn't regret it because where it's going is so good. Yeah. And, I like, it's, it's weird to, like, think back going back to the beginning of the series where it's like... Like fuck, man! Like I, it, I find it surprising that at, by the end, the wishes familiar is as far down yes. as it is because that's a really great episode. Like yes. there's like that stuff with Davros is fucking amazing in that episode. Yeah, and obviously it has its flaws, which is why it's fallen as far as it has. But like it, when you like sit down and really think about all of them, it does shine like a huge perspective on just how good this season has been. That like that really great episode is that far down in, in the list. Oh, I mean, kind of roughly, our lists go backwards from the end of the season to the beginning. It's true, yeah. And I just think, if anything else, like, forget... I mean, yeah, the, the Magician's Apprentice slash Witch's Familiar has some flaws. None of them are terrible or anything. No, yeah, definitely But not. it's still... It's it's a great episode, I would say, collectively, that's like an A- minus to A, you know, something like that. And what it really is is that it's the foundation, though. It's the beginning, and then it just gets better from there because it's building off of that. Like, yeah. I think if you look back at it, that's a really savvy season premiere, those two episodes together. Because they tell their own self-contained story, which is great, and I think was a big stepping stone for Moffat to finally say, I'm going to tell my own self-contained story. Yeah. But they also set up the themes and dynamics of that season in such a clever way, and so it's worth praising for that. And then you get to, like, I'm also surprised that Under the Lake, Before the Flood, I've done this three times now, I'm so proud of myself, yeah. is as far down for me as it is, because it's, it's a true, great yeah. Doctor Who episode, but... It's not, you know, it's just, it's not Heaven Sent. It's like, and you can't blame an episode for not yeah. being The Girl Who Died or Heaven Sent. Because it's not really a masterpiece, but as a just normal episode of Doctor Who, it's pretty superlative. It's pretty yeah. spectacular. I mean, it's one of the best versions of the Base Under Siege story that they've ever done. And, like, yeah. that's a super common Doctor Who's uh, basic, like, plot structure. Yeah. So, again, as I've said many times, that, you know, Sleep No More is the weakest of this season. And that actually says something good. Because Sleep No More slotted in other seasons... Wouldn't necessarily be one of the best, but you would never call it the worst. Yeah, it's like it's certainly not like Fear Her or Love and Monsters or one of those. You know, it's not the Crimson Horror. No, it's not. Yeah, it's, we could go on and on about. It. It's not Daleks in Manhattan. Yeah, it's not Tooth and Claw, the, the werewolf one. We could just list all of season two. Except yes, yeah, at some point, other than Girl in the Fireplace. <laughs> yeah, it's right. not the fucking master finale from fucking season three. Good no. God. Yeah, that's a bad one. Uh, <sighs> Yeah, the Doctor doesn't become a shriveled, like, CGI character. Yeah. Yeah. It's not the pirate one that you pointed yeah. out in Season 6, Curse of the Black Spot. That one's... that Curse of the Black Spot probably still, like, holds the, like, award of being the single most dull episode of Doctor Who ever made. Like, it's really just... there's Because there's nothing exactly that you can point at. It's like, this is just bad. It's just like, none of this is particularly interesting. It's a really weird one. It did the bare minimum to get on the air and nothing else. Yeah, but it's like, it's not incompetent in no. any, like, demonstrable way. It's, yeah, it's not like Love and Monsters where there's, like, these severe structural issues with how the story's told and, like, just some disgusting aspects yeah. to it. It's just like, it's just, like, kind of there. Yeah. Well, let's put it this way. Series 9 had no blowjob slabs. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, if you're setting that bar, a lot of stuff is really amazing. If that's, like, the bar you're setting is, like, does it have a... I realize it is entirely possible many of our listeners have never seen that episode. That's Love and Monsters we were just referencing. Yeah. Ends with the blowjob. Yeah, slap. that wasn't just a random, like, fetish that Jonathan has. No, like, no. I would understand if... Come on. Believe that. 
But no, he's referring to the ending of Love and Monsters. Don't watch it. I'm just realizing, I mean, it's very plausible that people did not watch season two but are watching it now because that's how Doctor Who viewership right, goes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, especially in America. Yeah. Because yeah. it's, it's gotten so popular over here. But anyway, yeah, I mean... Yeah, so what other Series 9 ending questions do I have? I'm trying to think if I have any other just about the season as a whole. Um, okay. okay, here's a good one. There were a lot of great rubber suits this season. Yeah. Favorite rubber suit? It's And this actually would be fucking awesome. It's a fight for me between <laughs> the Fisher King and the Veil from Heaven Sent. Yes. Like, they are two, like, really great. And, like, in two very different ways. Because the Veil is legitimately fucking terrifying to me. I think that's a fantastic monster. Like, you could drop that into, like, a modern, like, low-budget horror movie that's really effective, like the Duke, And, like, not fucking, like you know, blink, it's like, it's fantastic, it just works, and, but the Fisher King, like I said when we talked about that episode, he, it's just a fucking Power Rangers monster, and that's awesome, and so, my, my, it's, it's a tie between those two to me. Here's how I break it, Heaven Sent, the Veil is the best monster of the season, but the Fisher King is the best costume. Yeah, Come okay, yeah, yeah, definitely, it's, and, yeah, yeah, the Fisher King, the, the, again, I think you just have to, you at least have to recognize the Fisher King as being one of the coolest, like... Because the Veil's not exactly a monster. It's like, it's a concept almost at some point. Right. It's like, the Fisher King is one of the best just proper Doctor Who monsters we've gotten in a long time. All right. He's really cool. Yes. Okay, so, without, you know, considering the Doctor, Clara, or Ashilda, who became basically a recurring character yeah, this season, character. who would be, like, your favorite one-off from this season in a two-parter or a single episode? Just a guest star who was on the show, who made the biggest impression, and you can absolutely say the Fisher King. <laughs> Um, I'm going to think for a second. It's probably... I really like the general returning from the 50th anniversary. I like that guy a lot. And then it was, I like the regeneration scene. Oh, we didn't even talk about that. That's a great yeah. great idea. Yeah. She, he turns into a black woman, and that actress did a great job selling that transition. Yeah. yeah. And I just I just love the line where she comes up and it's like, well, God, that was the first time I was in a male body. And yeah. it's like, I, I just like that idea. Like, it's just a fun twist on, like... You just would assume that, like, because you, you, how, who knows, like, how often Time Lords might end up changing gender and regeneration. Because the regeneration stuff is very famously, nobody understands how it works. Nobody making the show has ever understood how all that stuff is meant to work. But I like the idea of, like, you have only, you've seen this character now two times. And he's fairly prominent because the actor has, like, a really good, he's a really great character actor. Like, he just has a lot of presence and is very recognizable. He yeah. has a great voice. And so you just assume it's like, well, it's just a guy. And then it's like, oh, no, that was like the one time this character has been male. I find that interesting. Yep. But actually, I would have to say that this is a little bit of a cheat because of who it is. But it's Davros. Okay, that's a good one. It's because Davros, I mean, because obviously, like, Davros is a one of the, the great characters from the history of Doctor Who. But it was had been so long since we'd seen him done and seen him done well because I think, like, season four... Like, he is there in the season four finale, but he is in no way memorable or interesting. Like he's, he's just a mustache-twirling villain. Yeah. Like, here, like, we really got Davros back and, like, got into the humanity of Davros and, and the how dynamic and interesting of a character Davros really is. And so I would say him. Okay. Uh, I would go with, just as a one-off guest star, I really like the deaf woman in Under the Lake Before yeah, the Flood. Yeah, she's really good. Uh, and in terms of, this is a character we had seen before, but I don't know her name, the actress who plays Osgood... Great yeah. job taking that character from just kind of a sideshow in other episodes into the beating heart and soul of those two episodes. It's a good pick. Yeah. yeah. All right. I'm getting into harder ones here. Okay. Favorite Dr. Clara scene of the season? Fuck, that's... Do you, is, I is mean, I would say 
like if like it's a little bit of a cheat, but I think it's fair because of how it's used. I would say all of the diner stuff in Hellman okay. is my favorite. Yeah, I go with that. I don't. I have no idea what my answer to this would be. Um, that's a good one. Uh, I still might say I love how everything is played at the end of Face the Raven. Yeah. Um, but I also, if you want to go for a short moment instead of an extended scene, at the end of Zygon Inversion, where she asks, you know, how long was it for you or something, and he says, it was the longest month of my life, and she said, it could only have been five minutes, and he says, I'll be the judge of time. Great, great scene to yeah. end an episode on. Also, the end of The Woman Who Lived has that really good one where she's yes. been absent for the whole episode, and then she comes in, yeah, yeah. like she has the picture and all that stuff. All right. So is that a wrap on, on just Series 9 stuff? I have other things to yeah. talk about, but as the season, I think that's... I don't have any other hard questions. I, I have a question. How do you feel about the new Sonic Screwdriver? Because we didn't talk Love about it much. Love it. I think yeah. it looks cool. I can't... I said Texas to Thomas last night. Yesterday, I'm like, I can't wait to pay way too much money for the replica of that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's definitely... When you look at that, you're like, I'm going to have to get the toy version of that at some point because it yep. looks really fucking cool. Yeah, it's nice. It, it, I don't know. It kind of looks like the thing... The kind of thing 12 would make. Yeah. I don't know why. But, like, you know, him having 11s, it never quite felt like what he himself would choose. Yeah. But this one does. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm excited to... Because we'll get a little bit of it in the Christmas special, presumably. Yes. So that'll well, be and I, I knew he was going to be getting a new one just because the Christmas special poster shows it. But it just shows a blue light. It didn't show uh. what it was going to be. So I didn't know when he would get it. Um, but I liked when we saw it and we saw the specific design. I'm like, yeah, I can, I can roll with that. Yeah, blue but, and gold is a good color combination. Really do you think pops. the Sonic shades are gone? I would say probably. Like, I feel like like both the Sonic shades and the hoodie, like, sort of the very ragged hobo-esque costume that the Doctor had for most of this season, I think was a very deliberate choice for, like, character choice for this season that I feel like would not make as much sense if brought back. Like, I think, like, him playing guitar is, like, a, like, codified version, like, like aspect of this Doctor that will continue to appear that was introduced this season. But I think the Sonic sunglasses and the hoodie thing are, like, very specifically like the... Like him just sort of slumming it almost kind of. But like yeah. he's so comfortable with his relationship with Clara and like them just going off and having adventures that he's not really like trying to like present himself much anymore. And he's just sort of having fun, which was both really fun, but then also built up to the, the themes of like them being a dangerous combination together and the doctor maybe not being as careful as he normally would be because of that. Yeah. Awesome. Alright. I think those are all my wrap up questions. The only other one you could ask is best Capaldi scene, but Heaven Sent nullifies that. So. Yeah, because the, yeah, the entire episode <laughs> is the best yeah. Capaldi scene, basically. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, so let's go ahead and move on. Uh, Peter Capaldi will continue with this show, and maybe we can talk yes. about him a little more later. Yeah. Jenna Coleman, this is the last time we get to talk about her at length on a new episode of Doctor Who. Yeah. Um, I would say easily this is the best companion exit we've had on the modern series. Yeah. Where does it rank in overall companion exits, do you think? Um, again, that's a... Because it's such a hard question, because Classic Who dealt with it so differently. That, like, you have... Because it was so chaotic. Because you would have, like, when Susan leaves, it's a really strange moment in the context of, like, that entire serial of the Dalek invasion of Earth. And, like, why the Doctor suddenly decides, well, Susan, like, you're just going to stay here and probably marry David. I don't know. I'm leaving. Bye. That's a, It's a really weird. But... Like, that's also where the first Doctor gets, like, what is probably his most famous moment. That, like, if you're, like, someone working at the BBC who's creating some sort of, like, retrospective Doctor Who show, you probably have, like, on file specifically, like, ready to use the speech he gives about go forward in all your beliefs and prove to me that I'm not mistaken mine. Like, I will come back. Yes, one day I'll come back. That scene, like, beautiful, unbelievable scene and, like, proved that... 
they should have given William Hartnell more good speeches because he always nailed it. So I think that's that's a really remarkable one. Though Joe Grant's is a really great one, mostly because of like how it focuses on the Doctor, because that's the one where it's iconic. Even if you haven't seen the yeah. episode, you kind of know the moment. Yeah, because she's sort of like fallen again. Female companion has fallen in love with some like random guy. Although this one makes a lot more sense based on who Joe Grant's character is and the guy she falls in love with, who's like this this environmentalist dude. And they're out all at a party and having fun, and then the doctor just sort of like quietly sneaks out and gets in Bessie and drives away. Like that, like that one's just such a like pure moment. Like it's there's something so genuine about it that you can't necessarily replicate on modern TV because the climate is so different. Where it's just like back then. This like Doctor Who was so technical because it was just you didn't have a lot of like those sort of pointing character moments. Whereas nowadays, like every show, like you know, if you go back to the RTD years again, like it was almost sort of suffocating how much they tried to have those moments all the time. In fact, that was like it was so rare. It was like that was just like that one time. It's almost like if you like the people you work with or something that like most of the time it's just a totally practical relationship and it's fun and interesting and you like those people. But then like every once in a while, like you get like a genuine human moment with someone that you normally are only with on a professional basis. And it's like those moments are really impactful. So it's like it's stuff like that that I can't possibly compare. No, I know. Like I can't. It's like it's it's definitely better than most companion departures because most companion departures in Classic Who was like when Dodo left or something with the first Doctor and like she literally just like is hypnotized and then like in like episode two of the War Machines and then episode four of the War Machines the Doctor's getting late ready to leave and he gets like a telegraph and it's like that one of the the new companions tells him it's like oh Dodo is out living in the countryside and she's decided not to go with us anymore it's like okay yeah she's just laid straight up. Like, the, the actress Jackie Lane was just told that she wasn't needed anymore, and she was just fired on the spot, basically, for no good reason. It's like, that's the way the TV worked back then, because the people running TV were fucking assholes. It's like, that was how it normally went. So I'd say that this ranks very high in the scale of the overall show, when you keep that stuff in mind. Nice. I just wanted to kind of revisit some other good ones while we're... Re- Sarah Jane's is also really great. I think Sarah Jane's has, like, one of my favorite um, the lines, or, like, like, little moments at the end, where... Sarah Jane says, like, don't you forget me, Doctor. And then the Doctor is like, oh, Sarah Jane, don't you forget me. That's a really great moment. And then he drops I'm her off. I'm smiling in, thinking about all yeah, these. They're great. He, she, he drops her off in Aberdeen when she lives in Croydon. And that's, it's like, that one's really good. Sarah Jane's is, like, legitimately really great. Nice. But Sarah yeah. Jane happens to have just one of the, like, best entrances and exits. She's yeah. great. Yeah. yeah. Time Warrior's really good. All right. But Clara Oswald. Yes. Um, maybe we'll do some more rankings later. Let's just talk about the character for a little okay. bit. Because... Clara did not have the most auspicious start in that Stephen Moffat, I think, didn't quite know what to do with her. He kind of rent himself into a corner with Amy and Rory. Yeah. Wrote himself out of that corner a little clumsily. Angels Take Manhattan is probably a better companion exit than most of the RTD ones, but it is still kind of suffocatingly tragic in a way those characters did not need to have. Yeah, and didn't, where it's not indicated really in any meaningful way the way it was with Clara. No, and... You know, again, I think the Angels Take Manhattan is a very good version of what it is. I just don't know if we needed it. Yeah, um, is what I would say about that. I mean, no, we definitely didn't need no, it based either. on how no. season six ended. But yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, if the God Complex were the one where Amy and Rory left, they would be on that list, frankly, of good yeah, companion exits. I agree, um, but that's not what happened. So anyway, 
so, you know, you had her coming in to a doctor who was entrenched with these other two companions, who was really defined by them, and who had not had a clean break with them. Like, I think one of the smart things Stephen Moffat did here is that this is a clean enough break that when we come back and Peter Capaldi needs a new companion, that baggage won't be there. Yeah. And you can very easily just get going again, and that'll be great. Um, but they couldn't do that. So Clara appeared twice. She appeared as Oswin. Then she appeared as... Is she named Clara? It's just Clara, okay. yeah. Yeah, and Stoneman. And then we finally meet her in the Bells of St. John. I really like those first three appearances. I particularly like the Bells of St. John just because I think it's... The first time in a while Matt Smith had just gotten to have fun and, and have something new as the Doctor. Yeah. And I think it pointed towards a chemistry that ultimately didn't exist with his incarnation in Clara, and that's too bad, because I think they're beautiful together in that episode. Yeah. Um, but then we had you know a very messy 7B. Uh, a lot of ups, a lot of downs. Dame Diana Rigg <laughs> uh, nursing an alien baby, and Clara... Mr. Sweet. And Clara thinking the TARDIS didn't like her... And right, Clara yeah, wondering yeah. if she was good enough to travel with the Doctor, and just all the different characterizations she had before we wrapped up the Impossible Girl arc. And then I think, what would you say is the turning point for Clara Oswald when she started to go from, an, an, not a bad character, but an ill-defined yeah. character, to someone who could become one of the greatest Doctor Who companions ever? I mean, it starts with Day of the Doctor because it's something where because I very recently just like rewatched all the Clara stuff because of, with Face of the Raven that I just like felt compelled to do so and it was something I was interested in in revisiting her and there's something kind of weird with like the way that now retroactively sees like how she's used in season seven B while I don't think it's like intentional creates a kind of interesting weird character arc where. Clara is not a well-defined character in those episodes, and she comes across as an incredibly generic companion for the most part. But I feel like that's almost kind of intentional in a weird way, or like it, it feels like it's a part of a more legitimate character arc than maybe I originally gave it credit for, in that the reason that it seems that way is because the Doctor does not care about her. He only cares about the mystery surrounding her, and he's so fixated on the Impossible Girl storyline, which maybe... Maybe this is almost like a good postmodern thing of where you're looking at, well, maybe this is just talking about Stephen Moffat as a person yes. almost at that time of his investment in the plot side of the characters instead of the character side of the characters. But you just never got to know Clara, but there are the seeds of her character of like the stuff of like how she has this very controlling aspect to her personality, much like the Doctor, which is expanded on much more with Peter Capaldi, that is always there, and you know it's always there because she is the only companion who has a relationship with the Doctor on her terms because he comes to her and not the other way around. And it's like, that is there, and that element is there. It's just never explored. And it's not till Day of the Doctor and Time of the Doctor where you start get a little bit of it, where you get like a couple of moments of the 11th Doctor and Clara just being on their own with the, the the specter of knowing that the Doctor is actually investigating Clara the entire time and just trying to figure out what she is, like, that side of it is completely gone. And, like, you get a couple of moments like that with Day of the Doctor and Time of the Doctor, but it feels like it's too little too late because it's like you're dealing with such big stuff because you're dealing with all the chaos of the 50th anniversary and then you're dealing with all the chaos of having the ushering Matt Smith out the door and now bringing in a new doctor that there was no room to really expand the relationship so it wasn't till deep breath that then it was like you got to stop and be like okay let's take a deep breath yeah exactly <laughs> let's calm down let's take a deep breath let's like get our shit together let's figure out Clara and like 
use her to help us figure out now who this like new version of the Doctor is. And that's really where it starts in, is in Deep Breath, where it's like you get... Because you get that new relationship between her and the, and the 12th Doctor, where they are much more combative and they spark off of each other, whereas the 11th Doctor and Clara were just kind of chummy a lot of the time, and that was mostly what their relationship was, once it was past the him trying to figure her out thing. It was like this, it was like they are very combative, and that's that was what made it really interesting, and what shone a light on both her character and, and the new Doctor. I mean, I think that is one of the great things about Clara Oswald and about this era so far with the 12th Doctor is you even though she's a you know kind of veteran of the series at that point she's been around a whole season now she's back for series 8 he's on his first is you got to discover them together and they are so intertwined yeah and it's why actually her exit being done as well as it is matters so much because you could very easily risk it to a point where like Matt Smith you've broken that Doctor for any other companions and they haven't done that which is very and I it's tough I mean I understand that because why they wrote themselves into a corner with Amy and Rory is they wrote two really good companions yeah. and a really good doctor to go with them and then it just gets tough and and here though they wrote 12 and Clara together they were always evolving together they had this interesting chemistry where each of them felt so in flux as characters and you know really in series 8 she is kind of the main she is the protagonist that season sure yeah maybe she's not the main character but she's the protagonist because she is the person with the clearer arc going through those 12 episodes where she has basically she does not have a romantic relationship with the doctor but she's having an affair with him in a sense yeah uh she is kind of cheating on danny with him in an emotional sense and she's also kind of cheating on herself because she doesn't quite know what she wants to be and he is kind of this mirror for her because she is theoretically the stable transient human but she also has her spirit in flux in much the same way as the 12th doctor is a very vulnerable person as we come to learn over those episodes yeah. um, but I mean you have great moments even early on where I think I do think the end of deep breath where he just asks I want you to see me yeah. why can't dynam- you see me yeah that is the kind of the foundation for everything that would come and it is still one of the great moments between them yeah and I do think there's a lot of stuff in because also like in my rewatch like there were the, like the things that I think on second viewing that I like realized I maybe had too harsh of an opinion on originally was I think like Clara's character arc in season seven B I think is better than we gave it credit for now that we know that like it goes yeah that that like it goes places because it's always that thing where it's like if it had ended with time of the doctor and she like left for whatever reason there like no it would not have been okay it's only knowing that once we actually get to move past that step it feels like it's a legitimate narrative function whether it was intended to be or not I think it does function that way when you watch it like sequentially in like a marathon session it comes across that way because there are a lot of really good scenes between her and Matt Smith where you realize that, like there's a very dark element of it with the doctor of like him just completely ignoring who she is as a person because he doesn't fucking care like he just wants to know how she could be dead twice and be alive with him now and like that's it and so it's like, I think that is stronger than we originally gave it credit for. And then I think Deep Breath is a better episode than I originally gave it. Again, because I think like the stuff that then season eight went on to do very well is there in Deep Breath. And it's still like, what is messy about it is still messy about it. And there are some issues with the writing in it. But overall, I think it does create a very fascinating blueprint for where those characters go. And is a very effective means of sort of building Clara's character by sort of like, transitioning her from like being this sort of like fairly generic companion with Matt Smith who had that very sort of like surface level relationship with him like by sort of by design on both parts and saying it's like no like 
you are now with this person and you need to figure out who this person actually is and it's not this sort of like kind of handsome dashing time traveler dude it's like it's this very vulnerable emotional but fascinating individual that you can learn a lot from and build a lot of strong relationship with it is so fascinating to me because I think in the moment we weren't wrong to be hard on deep no, breath no uh, yeah and and what, with what we knew at the time, and coming off a fairly rough year for Moffat, we weren't aware he was about to go into the biggest renaissance of his career. Um, but I, D- Deep Breath has stuck with me in a way. Episodes I thought were bad don't stick with me. Yeah, there's a lot of that episodes that sticks with me, and I would call it a pretty good episode in the end. Now, yeah, like it's got a couple of flaws that are still grating. That I think the writing for Madame Vastra and Ginny is very sort of like sophomoreish there, in like yes. a way that's not in their other appearances in a way that's like very strange though I do appreciate and I've said this to you I think it was off the air that it's a deep breath is a lot like uh, Tom Baker's first episode robot in a lot of ways because of the the persistence of the previous doctors supporting cast that it's like with Tom Baker you had this earth based story with unit and the brigadier and and charge of Benton and all of them and like the doctor just kind of it's the wrong doctor for that kind of story and so it's really fascinating and there's an element of that there where it's like this is the wrong doctor for this supporting cast. Like, he shouldn't be around Strax and Ginny and, and right. Madame Vastra. Like, they're not right for this character anymore. He has to... And there's an interesting contrast there that doesn't necessarily work on the first viewing and on isolation because you don't know if this is just going to be what it's like for the future or if this is, like, a conscious sort of, like, juxtaposition to then make a new, like, starting point, which right. is what it ultimately became. Absolutely. Um, let's see. What other questions? Uh... I mean, so yeah, series eight. Clara has this very big arc with Danny Pink, who is I really I think a really great character that yeah, season. Yeah, I really like Danny. Uh, the, the, I don't know the name of the actor who played him. I forget. Um, oh, yeah, but he, he was he was head. great throughout that season. I do think there's a lot of bumpiness in those last two episodes and how they wrap a lot of that up. Although that was also a point that, like, on my rewatch, I like that a lot more than the first. Time. In particular, I think I was too harsh on Missy as a character the first time around. Though, like, aspects of it is still a little bit grating, but I think. I didn't give the performance enough credit that, like, it shines a little bit more in which is familiar, and then when you look back, you can see more of that there, I think. Yeah. And then also, I do think that, that the, the last episode is a better, like, culmination of that season than I think I originally gave it credit for, and there was uh, a couple of criticisms. I've, yeah, no, I get you. Yeah. I, I've rewatched that one, too, recently. But did you watch it in, quick, in, like, the culmination of, like, the marathon of the rest of the season? No, and I need to do yeah. that. Um, but what I was going to say is, I didn't like most of it still, but I do think the last ten minutes of that one are fantastic. Yeah. And I think we get to Clara's first exit, which was, you know, with <laughs> first theoretical exit, where she has that scene with the Doctor, where they both basically lie to each other and leave. And, you know, if that had been it, that would have been terrible because we would have lost season nine. Yeah. But it is a beautiful moment, and I think it's the right ending to that season no matter what. And uh, overall, I mean, Series 8 is a great season. So yeah, yeah. Can't take anything away from that. Um I want to mention Last Christmas really quick because okay, yeah. I have not rewatched the whole thing, and I know yeah, you have. Very recently did, yeah. um, I did watch the last like ten minutes again, and it plays way darker when you know where that relationship went. Yeah, because it's basically the two being unable to resist each other, and the Doctor asking in one of his most vulnerable moments, "Please come with me. Please come with me." And and she's like, "Okay, yes, yes, yes. Let's go. Let's go. Where, wherever you want, I will take you. Let's yeah. go." And that enthusiasm, which carries right into season nine and leads to her death. I mean, it's... Yeah. I watched it after Face the Raven, and I was like, oh, God. I thought that was a happy moment. <laughs> yeah. And it is, but, you know. Um, yeah, it's, that's a, it's a great fucking ending to that episode. Like, yeah. it definitely... Yeah. And again, it's something where when you see where they go with it, it's just it's, a, it's one of those things where when you're watching a TV show week by week, the experience is so different than marathoning it. 
where it's like week by week you have no idea where anything is going so you have no idea like issues that might be present in the episode are not actually issues they're just like things that you don't have the perspective on to fully understand what it's actually saying yet. absolutely and you know you have to be cognizant of those things when you review TV and I think we are on the show yeah. hopefully try to be at we least. try to be I mean yeah, as much as humanly possible um, but that is kind of the exciting thing about when you're in the hands of a good showrunner and the show is done well that's what I like about watching TV week to week sometimes is yeah. that aspect of discovery uh, it can be a really fun thing yeah uh, Doctor Who obviously has done it very well for a couple of years now. Yeah. So, uh, and generally does that well. So um, then we have Series 9 and Clara obviously just... She is not in the first half of that season as much as she was in Series 8. But she really does feel kind of like the focal point of Series 9 when all is said and done. And when it all comes down to it, I mean, Jenna Coleman is just such a great actress. And as much as we praise Peter Capaldi, and rightly, because he's amazing. And he is yeah. doing everything you would imagine a legend doing on Doctor Who... And more. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't get to be any of that without Jenna Coleman. And that will carry through no matter how many more companions he has, no matter how long he sticks with the series, no matter what his legacy ends up being. It is Peter Capaldi's legacy is tied to Jenna Coleman's, and I hope we never forget that because from episode one, from Deep Breath onwards, the Twelfth Doctor doesn't get to become the Twelfth Doctor without Clara Oswald, and Peter Capaldi doesn't get to reach the heights he did without the duet partner who was Jenna Coleman. Yeah. Now, I say that like she's dead. She's not. She's going to go do other things. And I look forward to her as an actress and, and what she's going to do because I think of all the companions in Modern Who, she has the best shot of being a star because she is so good. Yeah. You know, I yeah, mean, I mean yes, yeah, she is truly, really remarkable. Yeah, I mean, that's part of it is just that she's the best actress they've had on the show in Modern Who. So, yeah. And someone I can imagine in a lot of other settings. But, yes, I mean, definitely this was a companion who earned the size of the exit she got. Yeah, and then also it's something where it's it's so fascinating. I think actually the, the part that is the most interesting to me to go back to with the perspective we have now on the character is the 50th anniversary. And, like, I think it was it was in Zygon Inversion that, like, it, it had occurred to me and we talked about it on the podcast that, like, that how much that would, like, matter to the Doctor and, like, what that means to yes. the Doctor that you don't fully realize at the time that it's like... It's like, and maybe it would have been the same if anyone else had been there, but, like... It wasn't anyone else. Like, it was Clara was there, and her reaction was what motivated the Doctor to sort of, like, take a step back and think, like, no, maybe I'm looking at this the wrong way. Maybe there is a way to change this. And and helped him, like, really move through what, again, like, what he had been ignoring for the entire 11th Doctor run, which was the stress of the Time War and everything that that, like, the trauma that that inflicted on him. And, like, putting that to bed, both for the character and for the show, was so important that then... Like, Clara being the character that did that does create, I think, this incredible gratitude from the Doctor to Clara that... It's the first time he sees her as a person in some ways. Yeah, exactly, with, like, tying into the Impossible Girl stuff. And it's, and it's something where I love that they never just straight up say it, and the closest they get is the Zygon inversion, which sort of tips you to it. But I do think that, like, then when I went back and watched all that with Peter Cobaldi, I think that is absolutely there in their relationship of, like, one of the reasons why he's there with her all the time, even when he doesn't really know her that well yet, is that, like, he has this sort of responsibility and duty to this person that, like, she has done so much to him that he owes so much to her. And so this, like, then it speaks so much when you get to hear that when he says he has a duty of care, I think it's like... It's like she means so much to him and he owes her so much that like not being able to give her what she's deserved tears him apart. And it's like, and it's that 
that aspect of it that's really powerful. That again, it's a, a really great example of show and don't tell, which is an issue that Moffat has had in other seasons, where it was like all about telling you the plot arc and not showing you like what matters to the characters. Yeah, absolutely. So, Jenna Coleman, Clara Oswald, one of the all-time great Doctor Who companions. We don't need to play the ranking game. She's the best. Because of the that's moderns. insane. It's because... insane. She's definitely the best on Modern Who. Yes, yeah. But like going in and ranking yeah. her with like classic Doctor Who companions is like I don't want to fucking make that list. That's no. like a list that's like fifty people long. One of the best, though. Yeah, definitely. And definitely in terms of her impact on the show, yeah, she'll be missed. But at the same time, Doctor Who marches forward, and you yeah. you feel that sense of regeneration literally in this episode, and yeah. I love it. Oh, one other performance I want to mention. Okay. Uh, I have not seen it since it aired. You've seen it more recently. Time of the Doctor. That yes. is probably the first like home run performance Jenna Coleman got to give yes. on the yeah. show. Yeah. She is outstanding in that one and sells a lot of what could be messy about Matt Smith's exit. Absolutely. Yeah. So she she could have gotten very easily buried in that one, and she doesn't. And I think maybe that was one of the indications that, that Moffat had when he went to write Clara 2.0 for, for Series 8. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, Peter Capaldi's the man this season... Good God, the Twelfth Doctor has already, to me, become the best of the modern Doctors. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the, and just if he continues in this vein, he could be pretty high on that pedestal. Yeah, I mean, because like, because there is that moment like at the end of Hellbent where it's like he comes back into the TARDIS and he puts on that jacket and like the fucking sonic screwdriver flies into his hand and he snaps his fingers and the TARDIS doors close and his theme song is playing. Where it is like a moment where he's obviously he's always been the Doctor, but like there's an aspect to that scene where it's like. He owns the role. Yeah, it's like he is really here. Like, it's like he is so the Doctor, like, in a way that, like, there's so few moments in the show where, like, you really get that sense of all the history of the character, like, coming to a point here. And it's like it was that moment of, like, yes, like, and and again, it was something that sort of feels like a, a bit of a reaction to the way that New Who has treated the character of, like, having the character be saddled with, like, this intense trauma and all that stuff. That was interesting at the time. But it was just like not a sustainable character element for him. That this, that for like this moment, it's like yes, he has moved through this grief with Clara, and he has dealt with the time war stuff. That he has gone back to Gallifrey. That's not hanging over his head anymore. And it's like he just put all that to rest, and he just gets to be the Doctor. And all that's in front of him now is the future, you know, and like getting to move forward into what's going to be the Christmas special, and then getting his new companion in Series 10 from there. And it's like, it's such a beautiful starting point and ending point at the same time. Yes. It's a beautiful hybrid, one might say, of that moment. That, like, it, it's really powerful. And Absolutely. And if Peter Capaldi leaves after three seasons, I will kill him. <laughs> yeah, I would be so sad. But I'd here's be the thing. devastated. If Here's the thing. If we've thought of it, he's probably five steps ahead. Yeah. I don't... I think he knows. He's got to stay longer than that. He's got to do at least four or five. I mean, come on. Yeah, because it's something where... Because I know that, like, if you do the math, like, the average is three years. That And then, obviously, with, with New Who, actually, with New Who, it's weird because you don't have enough, like, of a sample size, really, to draw a meaningful average. One, three, average. three, so far. Yeah. yeah. I mean, but one, kind of three, and kind of three, because it's like both of them are a little more than three. Yeah. Like, when you, when you do count all the specials for, obviously, with David Tennant, and then... The, the like Day of the Doctor and Time of the Doctor for Matt Smith. It's a little bit more than three years for right. both of them. But then also, if you go back to classic Doctor Who, it's like, actually, while the first Doctor and the third Doctor were both basically around for three seasons, three years, like, the amount of material that they output in three years was fucking astronomically larger back then. Like, there's a huge amount. Like, the first Doctor and the second Doctor have 
just as many like individually, if not more than the fourth Doctor has in terms of numbers of episodes. And so back then, like like the first Doctor and the second Doctor, three years, but with like the way that they made episodes back then, way more, way more episodes than than later Doctors would be. The third Doctor is five years. Seventh Doctor is seven, or fourth Doctor is seven years. Then fifth Doctor is three years. Sixth Doctor is two years. Seventh Doctor is three years. So like, but when you really look at like the output of episodes and stuff. The average isn't really three years. Like, no. what that three years means is so different. And I think it's we are in a place where it feels really appropriate for me to have a much longer-lived Doctor and for him to stick with the show for a longer amount of time. And Peter Capaldi is so good that it's like, there's no reason for him to leave. Like, he doesn't... There, there's so much more to explore. I can't imagine that it, I would be, like, feeling that there was... He was sort of on his way out after next season or something like that. And the way that, like, I thought, like, Matt Smith could have stuck around longer than he did. But it also felt fine for him to leave when he did. Because Amy and Rory were gone and they clearly couldn't fully move past that yet. And it was like, okay, maybe it's appropriate for, for him to step out now. Yeah. No. Peter Capaldi has to stay. And I feel like he probably wants to stay. I mean, if he, again, if anyone knows how long Doctors are supposed to stick around, it's him. Yeah. And it's also a different scenario. With David Tennant and Matt Smith, you had younger guys who had careers ahead of them, who it was very clear why they would want to leave after three or four years. Just yeah, for not type, typecast. Yeah. yeah. But Peter Capaldi has a long career behind him. I'm sure he'll do many great things in the future. He's not decrepit or he's 57. No, yeah, yeah. But... He can stay around as long as he wants, and his legacy is secure, and he'll have more work in the future. It's like, none of that's a problem for him. Yeah. Um, And I hope they accommodate if there needs to be, like, a year where he needs to do less or something. Just do less, and then let him come back for more next year. Yeah. Um, Just get that guy to stick around, because I do think the primary reason Series 8 and 9 have elevated as far as they have in the writing and everything else is because they have Peter Capaldi and Jenna Coleman to motivate everyone. Yeah, because, I mean... Because, like, we talked about on the Heaven Sent episode, like, straight up, it's, like, maybe David Tennant and Matt Smith would have been able to carry that marvelously and they could have risen to the challenge. But it doesn't feel like that's an obvious conclusion. That, like, it feels like that is a kind of episode that only Peter Capaldi and his version of the Doctor could really occupy an episode like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, he really is a sort of a a step above in a lot of different ways. And it would feel so, it would be such a shame if he left only after three years. Well, and I, the other thing, though, is that if they're giving him this kind of material, why would you want to leave? Yeah. This is the best stuff he's ever gotten to do, probably. Yeah. I mean, Malcolm Tucker is a classic character. The Thick of It is a classic show. But Doctor Who is on another level, and this yeah. Doctor is on another level, and I, he knows that. I mean, he's got to. And, I mean, he's had enough creative input, if you look at the interviews and stuff. The sunglasses and the, the, the guitar work, all of yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, I... Uh... And, he, you know, he just got his new sonic screwdriver. He needs that for more than just one season. That yes. would be weird. So, but we've got a full year to look forward to next year. Sean, what are your hopes for the future of Doctor Who? What would you like to see next year and beyond? I mean, I think that for me the, the most interesting point is what's the new companion going to be like? Like, I really desperately hope that they go for something more exotic than what they have done in the past. That, like, because there's so much area to explore. And it's something where I have relatively recently rewatched City of Death, which, like, talking about Douglas Adams, that's the one that's mostly pinned by Douglas Adams. And it's one of the best episodes of the Doctor Who, City of Death. It's fantastic. Is that Tom Baker one? Yes, yeah. Yeah, it's him and Romana. And the reason why I brought that up is because Romana is his companion, Romana 2, Lala Ward. And Romana is one of my favorite Doctor Who companions because she is a Time Lord and she was assigned to him during the Kita Time arc 
where he was like tasked with going across the galaxy and finding all these different keys to time and putting them together. And so she was assigned to him to sort of help him accomplish the task. And then in the next season, she sticks with him and regenerates. And she is one of the most interesting companions because her relationship with the Doctor is so different than any of the other ones because she is not necessarily on equal footing like she's kind of on equal foot like she's a very different person but like she's not like dumber than the doctor in any way like she she in fact she is a lot smarter than the doctor in a lot of ways because she's more educated than he is she like graduated from the academy from a higher level of the academy with better grades she knows how to fly the TARDIS better than the doctor does like she is more technically minded than the doctor is but the doctor has the street smarts that he has acquired from traveling around the galaxy for hundreds of years and it's that relationship that like illuminated so much about the character of the Doctor for me of realizing that again something that the Peter Capaldi years have kind of gotten back to that he's not a genius like he's he's an idiot like he's this like kind of punk guy who's like I'm not going to stick with Time Lord Society I like I don't like how they're handling things I'm going to take this TARDIS I'm going to run away I'm going to explore the universe explore the galaxy see what's out there and it's only because he has had this like fucking amazing hundreds of years of this these incredible experiences that he can draw upon now that like he's able to have because of his time lord background that he's smarter than normal humans are because of where he comes from not because he's a genius but he has all that experience that he's able now to sort of like have the street smarts and sort of like outthink other people and conduct the lateral thinking that normal people normally wouldn't be able to and he's not a genius he's not he's a fucking idiot and that's something that's I think really important and key to the character to keep in mind a lot of the time is that he's only as effective as he is because of the experiences he's had and not because of like the way that he was born and it's like and it's you only can get at that aspect of the character if you have someone like Romana for him to bounce off of so I think if they had another Time Lord Romana 3 yeah I mean you could you could if you wanted to like I mean, she's like Lala Ward has done a lot of stuff in Big Finish with Romana, and I would it would be weird to have that character come back in any way because of how expanded the character became. I don't think the they do that either. No. But yeah, but yeah, but having another Time Lord companion or someone like that, or like Zoe, who was a Second Doctor companion, who was a human from the future. I love Zoe. Who she was like better at math than the Doctor was, and that always she got liked, on his nerves. She liked the computers while the Doctor hated yeah, them, <laughs> and like yeah, she she like they have a fantastic relationship. Oh, I desperately want Peter Capaldi to be at a computer bank and like smash at it, like stupid <laughs> stupid computers. <laughs> he could totally do that. Why do you humans always use these stupid computers? Why can't you just think for yourself for once? <laughs> yeah, that would be great. All right. Yeah, I mean, I agree Someone with all like of that. that. And I, what I want them to do in Series 10, it's going to be a really tough act to follow, and I get that. I don't need them to try to one-up themselves, but I hope they keep challenging themselves. Yes. And I hope they keep challenging Peter Capaldi. That's the way you get him to stick around, for one. And I just hope they don't rest on any of these laurels, and I just, you know, hope Stephen Moffat finds some new writers next year, and I hope he brings back some of these old favorites. Yeah. And I hope they keep challenging themselves, because I think it was very apparent this year that when they took risks, they paid off. Yeah. Not every single time, but 11 out of 12 is pretty fucking good. Yeah. And, yes. And that's the heart of what Doctor Who is, and that's what makes Doctor Who work, is always pushing yourself pushing the, the limits of what you can do both creatively and like sort of practically with the, with the budget and the effects that you have and always shooting further than you're able to actually execute I think is this is what the Doctor Who was made in the spirit of and it's it's in the DNA of the show to constantly re-evolve itself and constantly sort of like examine what it does well and take those elements and then like apply them to the future yes and yeah I think 
I, I, I have every confidence that that's the direction that we're going in. But. And if next year does turn out to be Stephen Moffat's last year, which we're hearing rumblings of, but then again, we kind of heard that after Series 7, so who knows. Yeah. Um, you know, look, Stephen Moffat is one of the most important figures in Doctor Who history. He's absolutely the most important in Modern Who. Yeah. It'll be really weird when he's not on the show anymore because he's been kind of the heart of it since the show came back. And if it is his last year, I hope he goes out on top. That's all I can yeah, say. I yeah. hope he continues to push himself. Doesn't necessarily need to be better than this season, but I hope if there's any more stories he wants to tell or anything like that, he gets to do it. Um, because, man, if his legacy wasn't secure yet, good God did Series 9 secure it. Yeah. He hasn't always been a perfect Doctor Who writer, but he is a great Doctor Who writer. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's a weird thing where after Season 7, it was, you, like, you got the sense of, like, well, maybe it is about time, like, Stephen Moffat was, like, like would consider leaving the show because Season 7 was such a sort of mess. But then, yeah, like, Season 8 was really good. But then there was, like, maybe in the sense of, like, well, maybe that was sort of a bit of a fluke and it was, like, Peter Capaldi brought so much to the show. But then Season 9 came out and it's, like, no, not a fluke. Like, he's better now than he's ever been. Like, you've, I feel like we've seen him mature as a writer yeah. in so many ways in that, like, those rough, like, he had those rough years, and that's, like, really understandable. Obviously, like, any writer's going to have rough years, and, like, with the amount of stuff that he is asked to do all the time, he has to write an insane amount. Like, not even just on Doctor Who, obviously, with, like, all his other responsibilities with Sherlock, but he has written in a crazy amount of Doctor Who episodes. Over 40. I, yeah. I counted the other like, day. Like, it's nuts. Like, he's... He, if you didn't have the situation like with Doctor Who where Doctor Who had individual serials composed of four episodes he would probably be the most prolific writer on Doctor Who like there are definitely yeah. classic Doctor Who writers who have written more episodes technically but not more serials than him right. so yeah like he's written a crazy amount of Doctor Who and you're going to have some bumps in there but I think when we got through the bumps like it's clear that he sort of like re-examined again like, like everything about the season indicates that he re-examined not just how he ran the show and how he wrote episodes in the past but how like Russell T. Davis ran the show and how the show was in the classic years and he took all that information and sort of like took that and he evolved it and created a dialectic that was like well this is how this stuff should work we're going to take the best stuff of classic who and the best stuff of new who and figure out how that works together in a new and interesting way wonder if that means next season of Sherlock will be better. I hope so. I just wonder, because yeah. Sherlock is a show that to me has never fulfilled any of its potential necessarily. Yeah, that, like and it's gotten really close in certain episodes, but it's like, there's always like, it feels like it could go that one step beyond like true greatness. Yeah, I think it's a tremendously messy show with two great performances. Yeah. So, yeah, so maybe that would, that would be great. I mean, I'm actually really looking forward to this special they're doing in January. Yeah, that feels like it could be a great thing on its own because it's completely self-contained, obviously. Yeah. Uh, if you don't know, it's basically, it's in Victorian London, so it's obviously not canon to the other stuff. Yeah. But, yeah. but it's canon to the other stuff. Yes. Because it's the actual Sherlock Holmes now. Yeah. All right, look, I think, Sean, we have maybe never had a more fun 12 weeks of podcasting than these last three yeah. months. Getting to talk about Doctor Who was a privilege this time. It was a gift. It was a blessing. Um, and I think it elevated our podcast, too. Yeah. This was just, this was an honor to be able to talk about... 12 of the most consistent and great episodes of TV we've ever gotten to witness. And uh, I look forward to doing it again next year. Yeah, on the, and we still have the Christmas special that's coming up soon. I'm really excited about that. I'm dreading, though, like the aftermath of the Christmas special where it's like, fuck. Because like now it's like the Christmas special is several weeks away, and I can just like hold that hope, and it's like, well, you know, the season of Doctor Who is over, but there's still more Doctor Who in the foreseeable future. And then after that, it's like, ah, like, God. So, when is there, season 10 going to come out? Between now and season 10, there's a lot of new Big Finish stuff. 
It's true. I'll have to. We can talk about that. I'll have to do know. something. Like, God damn it. Doctor Who has been so good, but then you just get to that end and it's like, we'll just have to wait. But you know what? It's it's both sad and beautiful. Yeah, we'll have to spend a lot of time rewatching season nine in the meantime. 